Hi, three Arkansas law enforcement officers have been suspended and Arkansas State Police are launching an investigation after a social media video revealed two of these law enforcement officers beating the crap out of a suspect while another officer held him on the ground. I'll be talking about this in a few moments, and I'm going to show the video. I have to warn you, uh, you might want to close your eyes. Welcome to the Mop Up for August 22nd. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 77 degrees and rainy. Let's turn now to man-made climate catastrophe caused by fossil fuels. When we talk about climate change, we're talking about climate catastrophe, and it's caused by one thing, fossil fuels. What normally takes three months happened overnight when monsoon rain caused flash flooding in Dallas, Texas, with nearly 10 inches of rain soaking the eastern part of the city early, early this morning. This is the fifth heaviest downpour ever recorded in Dallas. And with more rain on the way, it's turning out to be the wettest August on record in Dallas because of fossil fuels. 13 million Americans are now living in what is known as Flash Flood Alley, which spans parts of northeastern Texas into northern Louisiana and southern Arkansas. And they're living under flash flood warnings today and tomorrow. Cars were submerged underwater on interstate, uh, on the interstates in Dallas last night. Passengers were forced to open their car doors and try to swim to higher ground. On Sunday, America's reliance on fossil fuels resulted in heavy rain soaking Arizona and New Mexico. 160 hikers had a shelter in place after flash floods banged into New Mexico's Carlsbad Caverns National Park. In Utah, a hiker is still missing after a climate change-related flash flood hit Zion National Park on Friday, shoving her into the Virgin River. Again, all of this is caused by fossil fuels. Now, while Texas is enjoying flash floods, America's Northeast has the pleasure of learning that there is such a thing as a flash drought. I'm not making that up. I had no idea there is such a thing as a flash drought. What is a flash drought? It's a sudden and severe shortage of rain. Nice, right? Flash drought. Within only two weeks, eastern Massachusetts, Connecticut, and all of Rhode Island moved into a status of extreme drought. No rain means dried up rivers, which dries up the cost of water for farmers who are unprepared for an increasingly dry and then suddenly wet planet. Farmers in the Northeast right now have no idea what is going to happen to their crops and livelihood this summer. And once again, let's be clear, this is all caused by America's reliance on fossil fuels. The Japanese attacked us on December 7th, 1941. Fact. Al-Qaeda, with funding from Saudi princes, attacked us on 9-11. Fact. Now, 
all of America is under attack by ExxonMobil, British Petroleum, Chevron, Coke Industries, Philips, Conoco, and Occidental Petroleum, all of whom spend close to, I don't know, half a billion dollars a year lobbying Congress. And that's the money we know of. There's also the dark money that goes into super PACs as well as think tanks like Cato and the Heritage Foundation. Who knows where that money ends up? Here's the point. This is an attack on our planet, the same way the Japanese attacked us on December 7th, 1941, the same way Al-Qaeda, with the funding from Saudi princes, attacked us on 9-11, the same exact way those attacks were launched against us, the petroleum makers, the, the refineries, the coal producers, the people who make fossil fuel are attacking our planet and killing us. The weather you see is the sole province of the fossil fuel industry who funds our Congress, our television shows, and God knows who else. They, they fund think tanks like the Heritage Foundation and Cato in order to attack this planet. We have no idea where this money from the oil companies ends up. It ends up in the pocket of Dave Rubin, the Jewish and gay toady of the intellectual dark web, who claims he's a classical liberal, but is in fact a classical grifter taking dark money from Coke Industries. The Koch brothers, through a financial partnership with Learn Liberty, which according to Aaron Friedman, writing over at the American Prospect, is a think tank started by the Koch-funded Institute for Humane Studies, they fund the Jewish and gay toady of the intellectual dark web, Dave Rubin. He gets money from the Koch brothers, according to the American Prospect. This is how they buy people, using a fire hose of dark money, fossil fuels, tentacles, are fracking the right-wing echo chamber, and getting them to downplay the connection between climate change and fossil fuels, as well as distract us from the role that fossil fuels play in climate change by uh, distracting us uh, from fossil fuels by raising phony issues like critical race theory or what bathroom the transgender community should be using when the issue of our time is the war being raged against our planet by the fossil fuel industry. The Petroleum Institute can't win the argument. Climate change is here. We see it. It's causing drought, famine. It's washing away homes here in America. It is settled silence, science and silence from, from uh, the right wing. Uh, it's hitting Texas, climate change, climate catastrophe is hitting Texas hard. And uh, that is a serious problem for the oil industry because Texas sits atop the Permian Basin, which is where all of America's oil and gas sits. Yes, they're fracking Pennsylvania and California, but pound for pound, 
really all the oil and gas is underneath Texas or off the coast of Texas in the Gulf of Mexico. No part of America and practically the world comes close to Texas's Permian Basin. 30 billion barrels of oil and 75 trillion cubic feet of gas have been wrung out of that Permian Basin. More than 5 million barrels of oil a day are pumped out of Texas. If a barrel of oil is worth, what, $90 today, that's $450 million a day just from the barrels of oil. It's a lot of dark money to spread around to pay seemingly reasonable think tanks and seemingly reasonable pundits to say that climate change isn't real. But if it is real, it has nothing to do with fossil fuels. Dark money from the oil companies, specifically the oil companies, which are waging war against this planet. Dark money from the oil companies shapes the debate. It shapes the debate because it, the dark money hires people on the right to find other things for us to worry about instead of the issue of our time, the war against our planet being waged by the fossil fuel industry. For example, Senator Joe Manchin is the largest recipient of oil money in the Democratic Party. He also makes millions off his own uh, coal companies. And he can't win the argument on climate change, especially in his own party, the Democrats, which, you know, despite all the problems with the Democratic Party, it's still better than the GOP, and at least acknowledging the role oil, gas, and coal play in destroying the planet. Did I, did I just say the role oil, gas, and coal play in destroying our planet? I'm sorry. We have to stop saying that. Oil, gas, and coal don't play a role in destroying the planet. That's a linguistic couching we've all been brainwashed to deploy instead of stating the truth, which is oil, gas, and coal are destroying the planet. They don't play a role in destroying the planet. Or actually, let's call it what it is, climate catastrophe, not climate change. Uh, it's climate catastrophe. Call things what they are. And oil, gas, and coal don't play a role in climate catastrophe. They are the cause of climate catastrophe. That is a fact. That's non-negotiable. Climate catastrophe is caused by oil, gas, and coal. So Joe Manchin, Democrat, takes more money than any other Democrat from oil, gas, and coal. He can't win the argument, so he changes the conversation. He's a fiscal hawk. He's worried about inflation and jobs. That's how he slows things down, because he can't make the argument that oil, gas, and coal isn't killing us. Watch Mad Men. You know, if you haven't seen Mad Men, just watch it. Don Draper, the advertising guru, says, if you don't like the conversation, change the topic. That's from like the 1960s. If you don't like the conversation about climate change or climate catastrophe and 
and it being caused by oil, gas, and coal, you change the topic. Hey, what about uh, transgender kids using the wrong bathroom? There's a problem in Texas. It's dying from climate catastrophe, flash floods. We are now coming up also on the fifth anniversary of Hurricane Harvey, where Houston ended up completely underwater. I'm going to play you a clip. It's from Sky News. And it's amazing how quickly we forget these things. I want you to pay attention to how indiscriminate the flooding is in Houston and how it hits these million-dollar homes. But the, the right wing is still insisting Climate catastrophe is not an issue. This is ground zero. This is where all the oil and gas comes from, the Permian Basin. This is Houston, Texas, paying the price for all that drilling. This is Houston, Texas, America's fourth largest city. Much of it is now under flood water. Streets and neighborhoods swamped after one of the heaviest downpours in U.S. history. More than 76 centimeters of rain has fallen since Friday when Hurricane Harvey made landfall. And it hasn't stopped. The deluge is incessant. The floodwaters continue to rise, destroying lives and livelihoods. Water is probably another four inches since I was here a couple hours ago. Emergency services are at breaking point, unable to cope. Very eerie. Your stuff's floating around. You know it's all lost on the bottom floors, and you're trying to save anything you can. So it's a real heartache, and it's something that uh, we'll live with forever. And it's going to continue. That is Texas dying from climate catastrophe. Those were rich homes. Those were at least a million dollars in Houston. And that's the future for Texas. They know that in Texas. Texas has known the future for decades because that's where Exxon Mobile is headquartered, and for decades, ExxonMobil has known they were heating up the planet, and instead of you know coming clean, they they came dirty and hid the evidence. Here's the story from Scientific American, okay? And I'm gonna read to you from Scientific American. I've noticed some people just read things from the newspaper or a magazine or a book and they don't It's plagiarism. You have to tell people where you're reading from. This is from Scientific American. Exxon was aware of climate change as early as 1977, 11 years before climate change was a public issue. This knowledge did not prevent the company, now ExxonMobil, and the world's largest oil and gas company, 
from spending decades refusing to publicly acknowledge climate change and even promoting climate misinformation, an approach many have likened to the lies spread by the tobacco industry regarding the health risks of smoking. Scientific American goes on to write both industries, tobacco and oil and gas, were conscious that their products wouldn't stay profitable once the world understood the risks, so much so that they used the same consultants to develop strategies on how to communicate with the public. The difference between the tobacco industry and the oil industry is you can quit smoking. It's hard. But you can quit smoking. And except for secondhand smoke, you're really just killing yourself. This, what the oil, what ExxonMobil kept secret, affects everybody, the entire planet. And that's from Scientific American. You don't get any more scientific or American. And that is a fact, a non-negotiable fact, whether or not you like it. That's from Scientific American. Exxon, headquartered in Texas, knew as early as 1977 that they were destroying the planet and they kept it secret to protect their profits and they hired consultants to develop strategies on how to spin climate change to the public and make it look like it wasn't real, and it wasn't man-made. This is going to destroy the planet. This is, as Noam Chomsky has said about the Republican Party, they are more of a threat to humanity than the Nazis were. Their position on climate change, climate catastrophe, is worse than anything Adolf Hitler could have dreamed up. That's a fact. It's non-negotiable. This is a fact. The oil companies are responsible for climate catastrophe. What you're seeing now, the, the flash floods, the flash droughts, the famine, this is caused by the oil companies. That is a fact, whether you like it or not. Japan attacked us on December 7th, 1941. I don't care if maybe Franklin Roosevelt knew the attack was going to happen beforehand and let it happen so he could get us into World War II. I don't care. The fact is we were attacked on December 7th, 1941, and Japan attacked us. On September 11th, we were attacked by Al-Qaeda and the Saudi princes who funded Al-Qaeda. And this is a fact this planet is under attack by ExxonMobil, which is headquartered in Texas, where all the flash flooding is happening right now. Fossil fuels also, are, you know, uh, also kill millions from lung cancer, asthma, and heart disease each year. Uh, that's the least of what's wrong with fossil fuels. This is a fact. Fossil fuels and only fossil fuels are responsible for heating up the planet, causing the planet and the climate to change in unimaginable ways. 
resulting in massive flooding, drought, famine, and entire cities like Houston underwater and cities in Florida soon to be permanently underwater. Florida's going blue, not because of their politics, because of the water. ExxonMobil, the oil companies, create climate change, which causes the zoonotic leaps from bats and monkeys to humans that result in massive outbreaks of newly discovered viruses like COVID, monkeypox. This is all a fact, non-negotiable. Now, it's Texas's fault because ExxonMobil is headquartered there. And there are other oil companies, but I'm singling out Texas right now. And uh, if climate change were localized to where it comes from, Texas, most of us would say, well, it's Texas's responsibility. Let them fix it. They keep drilling the Permian Basin. They keep denying climate change. They're suffering because of climate change. You know, that's their responsibility when they're underwater. You know, we warned them. This is what happens, right? And, you know, it's all about personal responsibility down in Texas. Problem is, if it were localized, that would be fine. But Texas's lack of personal responsibility is killing the entire planet. The same way their lack of personal responsibility with guns is killing their school children. The guns. Texas needs the guns not to keep each other safe, but to keep the oil profits coming in. It is the distraction the oil companies need. They need a border crisis to distract people in Texas of the brutal fact, from the brutal fact that their Permian Basin is killing them and the planet. They need to ban books like The Diary of Anne Frank. I'm not making that up. They're in Texas. They're banning The Diary of Anne Frank, while at the same time accusing the left of violating their First Amendment rights because we believe shouting the N-word while killing an African-American should carry a stiffer sentence than killing an African-American by accident. Uh, Racism, misogyny, gun rights, hatred for the LGBTQ, uh, that distracts Texas and unfortunately many in this country, it distracts us from the real issues. Well, there's only one real issue, the war against our planet being waged by the fossil fuel industry. Flooding, drought, famine. It is caused primarily by the drilling taking place in the Permian Basin, which sits underneath Texas. Uh, So in Texas, it's not climate change, it's climate change, the conversation. Oil is a trillion-dollar industry in Texas. Change the conversation by any means necessary. Texas is all about personal responsibility. Well, 
Since Texas is the home to the Permian Basin and ExxonMobil, the world's largest oil company, here's some personal responsibility. You are personally responsible for the destruction of our entire planet. It is a state fronted by hateful idiots who work for the oil companies. I will talk about Governor Greg Abbott and Paxton and, you know, uh, all, all those wonderful people. But before there was Abbott, there was the closeted homosexual Rick Perry. Governor Rick Perry, the closeted homosexual. Google Rick Perry, closeted homosexual. Type in the word chef. On the campaign trail when he was running for president, he compared homosexuality to alcoholism. Uh, right. If it, you know, if something feels good, it's an addiction, but you can give it up by surrendering to a higher power. That's what Rick Perry accidentally said and apologized for. He's, he compared homosexuality <laughs> to alcoholism. Because... Uh, I think once the chef got a couple of bottles of wine in Rick Perry. Uh, anyway, uh, now how do you get there? How, how does Rick Perry let slip a sentence that homosexuality is like alcoholism? He's thinking that an alcoholic desperately wants to swallow that evil spirit, but you give yourself over to God and you will be released from temptation. This guy is a moron. Uh, He's dangerous. When he was governor of Texas, his state was suffering from one of the worst droughts in history. So in April of 2011, then governor of Texas, this effing moron, Rick Perry, declared that Good Friday, April 22nd, 2011, through Sunday, Easter Sunday, April 24th, 2011, would B, he decreed it would be the days of praying for rain. He, he held a big rally on Good Friday to pray for rain. Uh, and when the prayers started on Good Friday, 2011, 15% of Texas was suffering from drought. And Jesus heard the prayers. By August, more than 70% of Texas was suffering from a drought. After Rick Perry staged his prayer for rain, it took 168 days for it to rain in Texas. But it's the federal government that can't do anything right. 168 days for prayer to make it rain in Texas. It got worse. Your prayer made it worse. 168 days for rain after you prayed. By then, the crops were dead, and uh, Jesus finally made it rain. But you know what happens when it rains after a drought? You effing moron, flash floods, because the earth is too hard to absorb the rain. You effing moron, Rick Perry. Oops, oops, praying for rain. Uh, he did. And this was back in 2011, and his prayers got Texas 
a record drought. Instead of telling his Texans to do the righteous thing, get good with Jesus by getting off fossil fuels, this effing moron, Governor Rick Perry, blamed it on Jesus, right? Personal responsibility. He blamed Jesus for the drought. That's how devout a Christian this effing moron Rick Perry is. Don't blame me or the fossil fuels for the drought. Blame Jesus. We just need to pray to him. And if he hears our prayers, then we'll have rain. How is that Christian, you effing moronic pagan? You are anything but a Christian, and you don't believe in personal responsibility. You're blaming the drought on somebody else. You're blaming it on Jesus of all people, you effing moron. You effing moron. So everybody in Texas, or actually not everybody, uh, people who listen to me in Texas right now uh, are, I'm making it wet in Texas right now. Um, Some people are so happy. Uh, So Rick Perry blames it on Jesus. And Jesus said, F you. I'm not taking the rap for, for, for drought. This is your crime. This is Exxon's crime. This is your crime, Rick Perry, for taking money from Exxon and heating up the planet. I keep sending you signs to get off fossil fuels, but you're making a billion dollars a day from it. You chose to put mammon before Jesus. I'm not helping you out, bitch. Go ask Satan. He's the one you're serving, not me. That's what Jesus said when all the crops in Texas failed that year, and it took 168 days for it to rain after Rick Perry prayed for rain. Jesus said to Rick Perry, Jesus said unto Rick Perry, F you, bitch. You destroy the entire planet with these fossil fuels, then you lie about it. You lie and you say these fossil fuels don't heat up the planet. And then when it stops raining, you beg me to hear your prayers. Go F yourself, Rick Perry, you little bitch. I heard your prayers and I answered them. No rain. No rain for 168 days because I'm getting Old Testament on you bitches. You keep telling people I'm a vengeful God, which I'm not. That's what my dad did. But okay, I'm a vengeful God. I'll go old school on you if that's what you want. No rain. Drought until you get off fossil fuels. That's all you get, you whiny little bitch. And when you do pray for rain... You know what? I'll be a vengeful God like my dad, and I'll give you rain. I'll give you so much effing rain, you won't know what to do with it. No matter what you pray for, you won't get it. And when you finally do get it, you won't want it. You want rain? I'll give you rain when you no longer want it. That's how I'm going to F with you until you finally wake up, church. Wake up, church and realize you're praying for the wrong stuff because you're not real Christians. Get out of my church, Rick Perry. You, as my father says, are a Shonda to the Christians.
That's what Jesus, that's how Jesus answered Rick Perry's prayers. You're a Shonda to good Christians. Uh, Sadly, the majority of Texans agree with me. Texas supposedly is all about uh, personal responsibility uh, for poor people, not for millionaires. Uh, And there are no millionaires on death row. That's the Texas legal system. Uh, There's a cap on how much you must pay in civil damages in Texas, tort reform, in Texas, passed on 2000, in 2003. Greg Abbott was the attorney general back then. He, uh, he was collecting millions from his tort claim. At, he was already being paid millions for his tort claim. And then when he was attorney general in Texas back in 2003, he was all in on tort reform because he got his... He got all his millions when the tree branch snapped his spine. Screw everybody else. Uh, He was all in on tort reform because he couldn't be all in on his wife. So he figured, let everybody suffer. Greg Abbott, sitting in his wheelchair after a tree branch snapped his spine. Greg Abbott said, if I can't get an erection, then nobody should be happy having sex. No, Texas, that's Texas. Texas is all about personal responsibility when it comes to balancing budgets on the backs of poor people. Personal responsibility is only for unwed single moms in Texas who should have thought twice before having the sex Governor Greg Abbott can't have because he's confined to a wheelchair and had to adopt a child because he can't get it up. His penis doesn't work, so he had to adopt a a child, and he resents women for having sex. So you have sex, you get pregnant, you keep the baby. You can't have an abortion. That's the price you have to pay for a tree branch falling on Greg Abbott's spine and snapping it 40 years ago, rendering him unable to walk or have sex. And because he resents women who want a hard penis, which he cannot give his wife, uh, he's going to torture. He's going to get even with all those women who won't have sex with him because they require an erection. Uh, You get pregnant, you're going to keep it, and we're going to make daycare so unaffordable you can't get a job because Greg Abbott hates himself. And he lashes out at pregnant women because a tree branch snapped his spine and he can't get an erection. That's why Texas refuses to do Medicaid expansion under Obamacare. 1.5 million Texans don't have enough health insurance, including single moms. So there's a good chance they or the baby will die during childbirth because Greg Abbott, the governor, had to adopt because he couldn't father a child, because he can't have sex. So he's pro-life. He's pro-life, except if you're a mother uh, giving birth. And if you're a baby. 
Texas ranks in the bottom half when it comes to infant mortality in America. You think abortion is the problem in Texas? I think it's infant mortality. Uh, your, your policies are killing infants, and you're worried about abortions. It turns out the stricter the abortion laws, the higher the infant mortality rates. So we'll keep you safe in the womb, but the second you're on your own, then you're on your own. Here are the states uh, dead last in infant mortality. Mississippi, Boggs decision. Uh, not the Boggs decision, I'm hot. The abortion decision that overturned Roe. Uh, Mississippi took place in Mississippi, dead last in infant mortality, followed by Arkansas, then a few notches up above. It's Louisiana, West Virginia, Tennessee, and then Texas. These people uh, in Texas destroy the planet by encouraging the use of fossil fuels. They love guns. They never met a country of brown-skinned people they didn't want to drop bombs on. They think everyone should own a gun, no matter how many mass shootings we have every day, which is about two. We're averaging two mass shootings a day. They oppose Medicare for all. In Texas, they won't take the Obamacare Medicaid expansion, and they call themselves dis disciples of Christ? Is there a version of the New Testament I haven't read? I've read the New Testament. If these are the conclusions Texas draws from the New Testament, then it's high time we put the New Testament on the same list that Texas has put Catcher in the Rye to Kill a Mockingbird and Lady Chatterley's Lover. I think the people of Texas, I think their brains are too undeveloped to understand the New Testament, the subtleties of the New Testament. They should not be allowed to read the New Testament or be allowed to be call themselves Christians. Uh, you're not reading the New Testament. Uh, I'm not trying to be cruel here. Uh, these people are, and they call themselves Christians, and they're anything but. We are up against hard-hearted people who feel life has treated them unfairly, and whether they know it or not, and they don't know much, especially about themselves. I mean, you look at this effing moron, Rick Perry, <laughs> calling homosexuality akin to alcoholism. I mean, there's really no self-awareness there. What, so whether they know it or not, they want to punish the world uh, for how they feel, how they wake up each day, how inadequate Greg Abbott, Rick Perry, they wake up every day feeling inadequate and lousy, and they want to lash out and make people suffer. I'm not trying to be cruel here. I'm just explaining why there's so much cruelty coming out of Texas. This is not cruelty. This is not insensitivity. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is confined to a wheelchair. He had to adopt a child because a tree branch snapped his spine in the 80s while he was out jogging in between studying for his bar exam. 
Uh, Abbott now opposes tort reform. He hates trial lawyers. Yet he sued the owner of the property and the tree trimming company for the tree branch that snapped his spine and made it impossible for him to get it up uh, and have sex with a woman. Uh, He then got one of the top trial lawyers and he sued, right? And he reached a settlement in which he personally would receive millions of dollars paid to him over the course of his life. It's approaching something like $10 million so far. The longer Greg Abbott stays alive, the more money he gets. Uh, That's why he's pro-life. Because the more life he gets, the more millions of dollars goes into his pocket, which uh, has never felt or hasn't felt an erection since a tree snapped his spine. His penis doesn't work properly. He can't father a child. I am not making fun of him. I'm explaining him to you how he reacted to a tree snapping his spine, Greg Abbott unable to father a child to get an erection. I'm not being cruel. I'm telling the truth about him, his hatefulness, his vindictiveness, and where he's coming from. And he ain't coming from his penis. Franklin Roosevelt was also confined to a wheelchair. Unlike Greg Abbott, He went from being the son of a multimillionaire to a champion of the underdog. Life does that to everybody, right? That's what life is. It is a tragedy that you try to repair. Some people get their tragedy early, but in the end, life is a tragedy. So what you want to do is make it better for others, right? Not Greg Abbott. Franklin Roosevelt, greatest president, maybe better than Abraham Lincoln. Greg Abbott, deeply flawed man who wants to punish people because his penis doesn't work. Greg Abbott is seething with resentment. And uh, he prays every day begging Christ for answers. And Abbott, like Rick Perry, won't listen to Christ, who's telling him, unconditional love, you effing maggot. I keep telling you, unconditional love. And Greg Abbott is saying, yeah, I know that, Jesus, but I'm not into love. What else you got for me? And Jesus is saying, that's it, maggot, unconditional love, forgiveness, devotion to those less fortunate And Abbott's saying, yeah, but I don't do that. I can't get it up. I resent people who can. So that's not my style. What else you got for me? And Jesus says, nothing. Unconditional love and forgiveness, maggot. And Greg Abbott is saying, "Hmm, you know what? I'm going to read your writings, Jesus, and find something else. I can find something else in there. And Jesus is saying, you'll see. You keep calling calling yourself a Christian. I'm going to punish you, maggot. Philip Roth, the novelist, famously wrote, my friend Michael gave this to me, 
This is what Philip Roth wrote. Old age isn't a battle. Old age is a massacre. We are all witnesses to this massacre. The longer you live, the more of the massacre you bear witness to, Greg Abbott. Which is why with age and tragedy, with age and tragedy, should come humility, tenderness, and most importantly, concern for the less fortunate, because some people are less fortunate than others. Eventually, we all are less fortunate. It's all about luck. It's why they call a lot of money your fortune. Hey, Warren Buffett has a fortune. Why? Because he's fortunate. Oh, no, no, he picked the right stocks because he did all the research. It's, it's hard work, not fortune. No, you're a moron. Warren Buffett is the beneficiary of good fortune. Uh, he's white, male, born in the United States to a United States congressman who got him investing in the stock market when Warren was seven. And Warren Buffett tries to present himself as folksy. You know, he even supported Barack Obama. And he also gives good investment advice. He says, don't pick stocks. Don't do what I do. Use an index fund. He says you can't beat the market. And he's right, which is true. Begging the question, how come Warren Buffett beats the market when nobody else can and nobody else can beat the market? Because Warren Buffett doesn't pick stocks. He picks actual companies and then buys them or a minority stake or a majority stake in that company. He's not a stock picker. He's a company picker. And the companies Warren Buffett picks do well because Warren Buffett is evil. Warren Buffett is an effing evil prick who will rot in hell because like the Texas oil billionaires, he is responsible for the destruction of our planet. He owns 10% of Chevron. He's not the majority shareholder of Chevron, but he owns 10%. And as of last week, Warren Buffett, this evil, evil prick, became the majority owner of Occidental Petroleum. Look up Occidental Petroleum. While we're trying to get colleges and hedge funds to divest themselves, of oil companies, Warren Buffett, this evil prick, is busy buying up Chevron and Occidental Petroleum, which are killing, those two companies are killing us. And he's making money off our destruction. Ergo, therefore, Warren Buffett is an evil monster evil. He's also the majority owner of Coca-Cola. Warren Buffett basically owns Coca-Cola, which, like the oil companies and the tobacco companies, kills people all over the world each day from obesity, diabetes, cancer, and heart disease. Sugar water is poison. It's a slow poison. Coca-Cola is evil. Warren Buffett is evil. That's a fact. If you make money 
off the deaths of people. It's not complicated. You're evil. There are no gray areas to owning 10% of Chevron. Chevron is an evil company. It destroyed the Ecuadorian rainforests. And the lawyer who beat them in court ended up being the one who went to prison. Explain that. That's who Warren Buffett is. That's who Warren Buffett is. Like I said earlier, oil money reaches the darkest corner, uh, darkest corners of academia, politics, television, podcasting, radio shows, publishing. And that money is used to distract us from what we see and feel outdoors. The planet is on fire. And the fossil fuel industry, which makes billions and billions and billions of dollars a day, uh, they pay people to distract us. The new wonder kid is Charlie Kirk, still not 30. He runs Turning Points USA. It's a nonprofit think tank funded by millionaires. Charlie Kirk is paid to brainwash the new generation of conservative thinkers uh, brainwash young people into denying what's right in front of them, climate change. He is uh, infecting the brains of our youth. He's paid to infect our youth, to distract them away from climate change. He's a brain amoeba caused by climate change. Or he's a brain amoeba that causes climate change. And apparently he's not the first climate change-related brain amoeba out of Arizona. Arizona is plagued by an amoeba, and it's called Nigleria fowlery, colloquial, colloquial known as a brain-eating amoeba. This is what Arizona is enduring this summer. It's, it, it's called a brain-eating amoeba. And take a look. Frequent as global warming paces forward. To me, it's why I take the risk. Charles Gerba, a microbiology professor with the University of Arizona, has been closely studying brain-eating amoebas for years. And with recent reports in Iowa and Nebraska, he's worried the cases will only become more frequent. Over half the cases actually occurred in Texas and Florida during the summer. And we get them during the summer, uh, largely from uh, making surface waters. And while Arizona has only seen eight cases, 14-year-old Aaron Evans died after swimming at Lake Havasu in 2015. Gerba says temperature increase will only make for the perfect habitat for Nagleria fowlery. So the big concern is we're going to see more and more cases as global warming proceeds. Even in Arizona, bodies of water that were uh, generally uh, cooler in the spring may be warmer, and so exposure may increase throughout the season. He says these organisms love warm bodies of water, and he is worried about more cases starting to pop up throughout the summers. The water is heating up in Arizona and other states that will have increased exposure to Nigleria and higher concentrations of Nigleria in the water. But he says there are always ways to be safe when out swimming in natural waters. What do you do? Well, yeah, you really so they've got uh, the brain-eating amoeba uh, that only affects people under 21, by the way, kind of like Charlie Kirk. Uh, from Turning Points. Uh, he is designed to only affect people 21 and under. He's headquartered in Arizona, and 
The good news is while there is a problem of catching brain-eating amoebas down in Arizona, you can only catch a brain-eating amoeba by swimming. Good news, if you're worried about catching a brain-eating amoeba from swimming, swimming in Arizona, turns out swimming in Arizona is soon to be a thing of the past. It's a crisis on the Colorado. The nation's largest reservoirs are rapidly retreating. Iconic dams could stop producing power. Western states are being warned to drastically cut their water use. This is a crisis that we haven't seen uh, in history, in our lifetime. This week, the Interior Department declared a first-ever Tier 2 shortage on the river that provides water for 40 million people in seven states. Arizona will lose 21% of its water. Arizona, where Turning Point is headquartered, Charlie Kirk lives in Arizona. But what is he paid to worry about? Not the water shortage. He's paid to get other Americans to worry about not... Flash floods, not famine, not drought, not brain-eating amoebas. He's not paid to get people in Arizona to worry about what's right in front of them uh, because it's all caused by fossil fuels being burnt into our atmosphere. So the people who pay him make those fossil fuels. No, So he's paid to distract Arizonians by warning us about the climate in our universities. That's the only climate change he's paid to make us worry about. The climate in our colleges, where free speech is under assault, he says, by cultural Marxists who want to turn America into a totalitarian regime of leftists who want open borders and some kind of sexual anarchy where our kids are forced to explore every single type of sexual experience before they're ever allowed to declare their gender and or sexual preference. That's what he's getting everybody worked up over because he's paid to. He is paid to get young people worked up over anything but climate catastrophe, which is caused by Charlie Kirk's paymasters. He's got a rough road ahead of him because young people aren't dumb. They know the expiration date on the planet is quickly approaching. So the fossil fuel industry must work that much harder to make these kids stupid. Distract, distract, distract. The house is on fire. But the real problem is, let's convince everybody the real problem is someone has hijacked our Wi-Fi and is getting free internet. That is what Charlie Kirk is paid by the fossil fuel industry to do. Your entire house has been set on fire by gasoline, and the people who set the fire are working to convince the people inside that house that they should be fighting each other over who gave out the Wi-Fi password. Right? Charlie Kirk gets his funding from right-wing billionaires. Jane Meyer over at The New Yorker has been writing about dark money for decades, she interviewed Charlie Kirk about three years ago, and he refuses to reveal who donates to his uh, Turning Points organization. He says the people want to be anonymous. Why? Why would they want to be anonymous? Jane Mayer over at The New Yorker writes, Kirk does speaking engagements and fundraising at various closed-door energy industry gatherings, 
including the Natural Mining Association and the Independent Petroleum Association of America. When Jane Mayer over at The New Yorker interviewed him, Charlie Kirk admitted that, yes, some of my donations come from the quote-unquote fossil fuel space. Mayer goes on to write the Charlie Kirk and Turning Point work on college campuses to get kids to oppose their colleges voting to divest themselves of investments in fossil fuels. Uh, it's amazing. That's from Jane Mayer over at The New Yorker. People should uh, read this article. He wrote the uh, introduction for a pamphlet uh, that's being handed out to college kids entitled 10 Ways Fossil Fuels Improve Our Daily Lives. That's Charlie Kirk. He's a brain amoeba and he's a college dropout. So again, I'm going to talk a little bit about college and college dropouts. This is Charlie Kirk bragging about how he didn't go to college. I didn't go to college. And I think that, you know, a lot of young people need to consider that path. Uh, look, the college cartel has done such damage to our country. I believe the college cartel is no better than the Mexican drug cartel. And what they've done to our nation's youth, the bad ideas they've been spreading, the idea pathogens that have been infecting the inner core of our society. Wow. Those are some good words there. Uh, the idea pathogens affecting our society's inner core. Well, it takes one idea pathogen to know another idea pathogen. And Charlie Kirk is a paid idea pathogen. He's a brain amoeba because he's smart and he is a good student. Uh, he is getting his talking points from think tanks funded by fossil fuels. They teach him. They literally give him a playbook to work off. I watched Charlie Kirk debate my friend, Professor Ben Burgess, and on Charlie's lap was literally a loose leaf binder filled with talking points. He didn't go to college, but he's a good student. And when he speaks before the American Petroleum Institute, he gets money as well as approval, the approval he needs. And they convince him he's smart, that he has a future. And they throw him other thinkers who can school him because he's young and he then can school other young people. Here we have Charlie Kirk a college dropout going on college campuses, reaching out to kids in college who are racking up debt because unlike Charlie Kirk, they don't have fossil fuel sugar daddies to teach them. And he's telling these kids they're being brainwashed, that higher education is a cartel that has done more damage than the Mexican drug cartel. And that sounds uh, smart until you examine it, but... Young kids who are impressionable join him. He creates AstroTurf on college campuses. He spreads some money around. And there are enough college kids who are willing to be on the take. They need money. They take the money with promises of future work, parroting fossil fuel-funded think tanks talking points. And they stage these protests to protect the oil companies Again, Charlie Kirk is brilliant, not even 30. He's much richer than I'll ever be. He's married to a Miss Arizona. He's living the life and young people hang on his every word. I, I feel uh, 
good for him. He's uh, an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm jealous of his youth, his hair, his looks, and his innate intelligence. He has innate intelligence, but he is wicked. He is wicked. And despite having a much higher IQ than I, he remains uneducated. He didn't suffer through college. He was never forced to explain himself, how to use footnotes, how to use hyperlinks. He was never taught critical thinking. Now, there are many things wrong with higher education in America, student debt being most of it. And by the way, uh, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona promised this week that we may get a decision on student loans this week, that Biden might forgive some more student loans. But thanks to brain amoebas and idea pathogens that come from Charlie Kirk, a new poll shows that more than half of Americans think relieving student debt will make inflation worse because Americans are brainwashed by tools of the banking industry, tools of finance to be dumber when it comes to inflation. Uh, it's, you know, it's incredible and it's getting us killed and it's destroying the lives of most college students who are underwater with debt. Look, I have many problems with higher education. You know that if you listen to this show. I believe all college should be free in America, all of it. I don't believe there is a cartel like Charlie Kirk has been trained to call it. But I do believe there's price gouging on college campuses, false advertising, restraint of trade, and a whole host of laws on the books that make it easy for colleges to extract money from students and donors and then go ahead and waste that money on too many administrators and celebrity professors who don't teach. I could go on and on. I do, however, believe in higher education. Uh, most Americans, according to a recent poll, think our democracy is ending. Democracy ends when a society gets to vote on the truth. And that's where we're at right now. We are voting on the truth. That's not what a democracy is. One party says Biden won. Another party says he lost. We are a country that is arguing facts. It's all because, as we all know, of the Powell memo, conservatives waging war on facts because facts are a terrible inconvenience for the richest 1%. The Powell memo outlined how to wage war on facts, buy, it, buy up think tanks, create think tanks, get control of the universities, get control of radio and television, get them to parrot talking points that deny the truth. Since the Powell memo, and we all know this, the rich, especially the fossil fuel industry, they've been fueling charlatans like Charlie Kirk or Rush Limbaugh, Shan, Sean Hannity, the National Review, as well as every right-wing think tank that is willing to spread the lie that government is the enemy. They spread the lie of a mythical free market that can cure anything. 
They spread the lie that taxes destroy jobs, and most importantly, the lie that climate change has nothing to do with fossil fuels. That is the catechism upon which all your funding from the Koch brothers and the fossil fuel industry is predicated upon. Now, you can play along the margins by questioning the competence of Republican leaders. You can even attack the CEOs of oil companies for mishandling a major oil spill. You're even entitled to your own opinions on social issues like LGBTQ rights, abortion, and even wars overseas sometimes. You're allowed all of that so long as none of that interferes with the catechism of the mythical free market, taxes bad, government bad, climate change has nothing to do with oil companies. Oil companies good, they create union jobs. Here's all the money you want. Say whatever you want. You can be mean and cruel and nasty, or you can be nice. Doesn't matter. Just don't say the free market doesn't exist. Do not say climate change exists. Do not link oil companies to climate change. Do not say that taxing the rich is good. Call yourself a classical liberal. Call yourself a liberal. Wear long hair. Marry a black person. Say the F word. We don't care. Just stick to the catechism. And that's what we have. We have people like Charlie Kirk, who is giving students alternative facts. And it debases our democracy. It makes it impossible to solve problems because we can't even agree on what the problem is. College despite all its flaws, is a godsend to democracy. It teaches citizens how to converse, exchange ideas, how to think critically, how to use footnotes, hyperlinks, back up their facts with proof, and how not to believe something just because someone said it loud or keeps repeating it. College teaches the intellectual building blocks of thought. I can't believe I have to say this. You know, we have doctors who, with all their faults, are the ultimate arbiters on what causes disease and how to cure it. Deeply flawed, but better than the alternative. Colleges and universities are the ultimate arbiter, along with other organizations, but colleges and universities are the ultimate arbiters of what the facts are. And when the facts change, they update the facts. Columbus discovered America until we realized it was Leif Erikson who discovered America. And then we discovered, no, wait, America wasn't discovered. People were already living here. And that's a Eurocentric conceit of somebody discovering something that already existed in the minds of the millions of people who were already living here. So maybe we need to shake off this colonial mindset where everything is filtered through the West and not say anybody discovered America. That's called intellectual evolution. That takes place in colleges and it's for the better. It allows societies to evolve. 
that allows societies to get smarter, to gain more insight. Universities and colleges allow concepts to become settled law, and then that settled law over time is constantly reevaluated by serious scholars who say, wait, not so fast. Turns out gender identity is a lot more complicated than the 20th century mindset allows for. Maybe we need to go back to the 19th century when they might have had a better understanding of sexuality than all the scholars of the 20th century. This is stuff that requires study, scholars, and honest interlocutors with tenure, with tenure who don't have to worry about losing their jobs if they arrive at a truth that doesn't sit well with the people who fund their research. Charlie Kirk is funded by the fossil fuel industry. He is not going to evolve on fossil fuels. Uh, Louder with Crowder is funded by the NRA. He's not going to evolve on guns. This is a problem with college dropouts who feel stupid and need a grift. Charlie Kirk didn't go to college. He has an honorary degree from Liberty University. And yes, he's smart, innately, much smarter than I'll ever be. My God, he's married to a former Miss Arizona. You can't do any better than that. But he's not educated. Charlie Kirk is not educated. And he's become a useful idiot for fossil fuel billionaires. Turns out education is more important than IQ. It just is. Take Joe Rogan. He has a terrific IQ. He's figured things out that I never could. He figured out comedy, and he certainly figured out podcasting. He has a terrific IQ. But he, too, is a college dropout and decided to start a podcast for other college dropouts and then learn on the job. That's what his podcast is. He's learning on the job. And so he's all over the map. He's voting for Bernie. Now he's voting for Trump. I'm a liberal, but I call black people monkeys. But that was the worst thing I ever said. Uh, I apologize, but I'm still best friends with Alex Jones, who is in bed with white nationalists. And I have Jordan Peterson on my show who attacks transgender people. But I'm for same-sex marriage. But I don't think transgender women should be allowed to compete against, quote-unquote, real women who were born a woman, even though transgender women were born women, but might not have the physical characteristics. It's all so confusing. So I'm learning on the job, and I'm making it up as I go along, and I'm smoking dope, earning hundreds of millions of dollars, promoting my line of supplements while convincing un- uh, other uneducated white males that they, too, are learning when in fact Joe Rogan is brainwashing them into believing might makes right. In the end, the same way the the fossil fuel companies get you to say anything just as long as you, you stick to the catechism, Joe Rogan's catechism is might makes right. He can say 
anything else. But his, to the core of his very being, Joe Rogan is preaching might makes right. And that's immoral. That's wicked. That is evil. It is uh, unevolved. It's spiritually bereft and it's dangerous. And it, it coarsens our democracy, if not destroys it. It's just plain wrong. And it's what makes Joe Rogan dangerous. I'm not calling for his censorship. See, the problem with Joe Rogan and his followers is they don't know what censorship means because, you know, they, they, they're not educated. And uh, so they immediately say, if you criticize Joe Rogan, that's censorship. And that inoculates Joe Rogan from any fact-checking or criticism. You, you challenge Joe Rogan, you're a fascist. You're a fascist. You want to censor Joe Rogan. This is how the right, and I consider Joe Rogan to be ultra-right wing because he believes might makes right. This is how the right wing weaponizes the misunderstanding of the First Amendment. And in doing so, it's a form of their own censorship. If you criticize Joe Rogan for spreading misinformation about COVID and masks, that ends up killing people, right? Then you are accused immediately of censorship. Uh, the right wing right now is doing to our education system the same exact thing. Why are you censoring people? This is what uh, the other college dropout What's his name? Charlie Kirk. This is what he says. Why are we censoring people who believe climate change uh, is natural? Why are, you, why are you shutting down people who believe climate change isn't man-made? Why are college campuses shutting down teachers who don't say, uh, who say fossil fuels have nothing to do with climate change? Uh, because it's not true. See? And Charlie Kirk and Turning Points, they're putting professors on a watch list for only teaching climate change is man-made. 99.999999% uh, of scientists say climate change is man-made, right? But the oil companies want both sides, but there aren't both sides. Oh, you're censoring the science. Well, it's not science. You might as well be teaching phrenology. It's not science. Well, let the students make up their own minds. Give them both sides of the story. No, uh, students aren't racking up $2 trillion in debt to make up their own minds about what is truth and what is fiction. That's the job of the professor. If you believe creationism should be taught in our public schools along with evolution, that doesn't mean you have an open mind doesn't mean you're, you're, you want both sides to be explored. It means you're stupid, okay? So what makes Joe Rogan so dangerous uh, is he's a college dropout, but he is well-educated. He really is well-educated in mixed martial arts. Early on in his teens, he mastered taekwondo and karate. He has three black belts. 
one in Taekwondo, another one in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and another one. Uh, and that's incredible. It really is. And I, and I wish I studied martial arts. I asked my kids to. They did a little. It's a wonderful discipline, and it is an art. Joe Rogan, though, went to the dark side of the art. He went over to mixed martial arts, and that is the dark side of Taekwondo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and something else. He went back to why he first got his black belt. I think uh, Joe Rogan felt he was being bullied. I don't think he was happy with his body. I think he felt picked on and he, th he was bullied and he saw that people are mean and uh, he decided he was going to protect himself and hurt somebody. But then he started studying Taekwondo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and he learned no, it's not about hurting people. It's about protecting your so protecting yourself and dialing back the anger on both sides. It's about walking away from a fight. That's what Taekwondo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu teaches you. It teaches you to walk away from a fight because a fight is the last thing you want to get into because you might kill somebody. But Joe Rogan in embraced the dark side and uh, he abandoned all the core tenets of martial arts by going to UFC. Uh, martial arts is about harm reduction. It's about putting one's safety and your opponent's safety above all else. It's about blending your physical center with your spiritual center. Mixed martial arts is the flip side of that. It is a blood sport, literally a blood sport. I have seen it. It's a celebration of violence. It appeals to our lizard brains. It appeals to the worst instincts of humanity. And what amazes me is how socially acceptable it has become. Now, I can't believe I have to remind people of this. There, I, I guess there are a lot of absentee fathers. Uh, so for, you know, I, 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 I guess there's some kids out there who have never been told that violence is wrong. War is wrong. Fighting is wrong. Torture is wrong. Arguing, wrong. Screaming, wrong. Bullying, wrong. And the notion that might makes right is not godly. It's wrong. All societies teach that. That, that is the basic building block of civilization. That might doesn't make right. Now, that being said, I enjoy boxing and I enjoy mixed martial arts. And I also enjoy uh, watching car crashes. Uh, personally, I think uh, women's MMA is fascinating. Uh, 
I'm not proud of that. I try not to watch it, but if it comes up on my television and I see two women engaging in mixed martial arts, I don't know, you know, something with my mother. I don't know what's going on, but I find it somewhat fascinating. Doesn't mean it's healthy for me or the women engaging in mixed martial arts. What happened to you that you are doing mixed martial arts if you're a woman? What happened to you? What happened to David Feldman that he enjoys watching it? Something wrong, right? It's not healthy. So I'm going to state what most Americans don't like hearing and aren't being told. But this is a fact. Just because David Feldman might occasionally enjoy mixed martial arts, it is still wrong. Okay? Theater is good. Mixed martial arts, bad. Library's good. Mixed martial arts, bad. I don't know who's doing the parenting in this fucking country. That people don't know that. Would you take your 10-year-old to watch MMA? Now, ESPN is owned by Disney. And if you want to accuse me of censorship, go right ahead. ESPN is owned by Disney, and they raised my kids, and I was raised by Disney. And Disney now is getting into gambling, sports books, and online gambling. Uh huh. And they raise our kids. And here is ESPN. Do you watch ESPN? I saw this the other day. ESPN. ESPN is running uh, the the World Series for Little League, the Little League uh, World Series. Do I have it? Here we go. This is really something to watch. And there's a collision here, and it was very concerning, and I want you to watch this. This is when the passion grows. Francesco Carlini drives one in the air to right center, and it's down in the gap and hung onto by Acosta. Through the collision with Cordelia, Joshua Acosta puts it away for the first down in the six. How did he hold on to that ball? He got hit hard. Luckily, it looks like both of them are all right. Cordelia popped up, too, and you get a tip of the cap there. That was scary. Anybody who saw that, seeing two kids bump into each other, and you go, oh, maybe some of you saw the pitcher in Little League who hit the batter in the head. And uh, the pitcher started to cry. And the kid who got hit in the head had to go over to the mound and give him a hug and tell him not to, not to uh, be upset. That's everything that's right with baseball, everything that's right with humanity. That's good, right? I'll make a value judgment, ESPN, which is owned by Disney. Good on you. Well, Joe Rogan also works for Disney. He works for ESPN doing play-by-play for UFC. That's ultimate fighting. And over the weekend, he was in Salt Lake City doing the play-by-play as UFC, welterweight champion, 
Kamaru Usman defended his title against Leon Edwards, who was losing until he scored perhaps the most memorable head kick in UFC history. That would be a kick to the head. This was on ESPN, which is owned by Disney. And uh, this is uh, the knockout. Watch this. That's how Joe Rogan makes his living. Uh, Joe's response, uh, that was like tens of thousands of people with bloodlust watching Kamaru Usman getting kicked in the head. And uh, Joe's you know, response went viral. Here he is again. Now, you tell me if this is right or wrong. Watch Joe Rogan's reaction to Kamara Usman flat on his back eyes rolling to the back of his head, which had just been kicked by the newly crowned welterweight champion, Leon Edwards. This is on Disney-owned ESPN. Watch Joe's reaction to this. Yes, it's a sweet science. This is a sport, an art. It doesn't celebrate violence. It celebrates men who work hard and are dedicated. And these are role models to kids. These, these kickboxers, these, these mixed martial arts fighters are teaching Disney's kids that if they put their mind to it, they can kick a guy in the head and nose and get cheered on and also get paid for it. Look, I don't approve of this, okay? And it's poison, don't want to outlaw UFC or mixed martial arts, but it's poison. I don't think children should be watching this. I don't think adults should be watching it. It's violent. It allows men to enjoy and celebrate their basest instincts when they should be ashamed of them. It is a waste of mind and body. And I understand why a college dropout like Joe Rogan would find so much solace in MMA. This is all about you don't tell me what to do, I tell you what to do. And here's where it's so like Charlie Kirk, Rush Limbaugh, two other college dropouts. They only learn to win. Charlie Kirk has a black belt in arguing, so does Rush Limbaugh. They use their brain to study playbooks to win, not to arrive at a truth. And that's really bad for the country. It's really bad. That's what Joe Rogan, that's what he was trained for with Taekwondo, how to win. Uh, this is bad for the country. People cheering on controlled violence is no different from Americans cheering on the shock and awe of our illegal invasion of Iraq. Americans are trained to enjoy a good blood sport, 
because they frame it as righteous. MMA is a sport. These are trained fighters, we're told. You should watch it to enjoy the artistry. It's not about you wanting to see somebody's face smashed in. And if you think that's why I enjoy mixed martial arts, then you really need to study the art form. Well, you know what? I watch mixed martial arts. I've studied the art form the same way I've studied the art form of pornography. Uh, <laughs> do I, I think pornography is fine. I do not think mixed martial arts is. Uh, here's Joe Rogan again calling uh, a UFC bout. And this is pornography. It's Joe Rogan calling a UFC fight. And this is who Joe Rogan is. This is the core of who Joe Rogan really is and what he believes. Mixed martial arts is his thing. This is what he knows. It's how he grew his podcast. People know Joe Rogan from UFC. This is where his fans found him and then migrated over to his podcast. Let's watch. And I got to warn you, this is... Uh, rough to watch. But this is who Joe Rogan is. Listen to his play-by-play. -play. This is what he believes. This is what gets him off. It's what he dreams about, what his fans dream about. They are intellectually, morally stunted and dangerous. Here is Joe Rogan covering a UFC bout between Paulo Costa and Luke Rockhold. This is Luke Rockhold, literally mama birding his blood-soaked saliva into Paulo Costa. It's bloody. It is homoerotic. It's an exchange of body fluids. It's end times. It's the manifestation of a society in complete decay. If you think this is acceptable, ESPN, which is owned by Disney, you have lost your moral compass you have no right, ESPN or Disney, you're the same thing, to raise our children. Listen to Joe Rogan calling this bout. This is... Uh, this is pretty amazing. That is hilarious. I'll play that once. I'll probably get penalized by YouTube for showing that. Uh, Disney will make millions showing that. That is what our children see on ESPN. I'd rather have them see, obviously, pornography. I mean, that is, I've never seen anything like that. Uh, this is the message. Might makes right, Disney. That's the message. Here is uh, Joe Rogan, Saturday night, uh, congratulating the new welterweight champion, Leon Edwards, who's overcame, who overcame a hard scrabble life, uh, living in, in the trenches. And here he is... Uh, here he is. 
the winner and new welterweight champion of the world. Leon Edwards. Leon, please describe what this feels like. Can't put into words, Joe. It's been a long, long four, four, four years. Don't doubt to me, I couldn't do it. A lot of rage there. That, that, that's not a moral center. That, that's not uh, martial arts. This is the corruption of martial arts. That's it. Leon, were there moments in the fight coming into the fifth round? You now, this behind. is the post-mortem, and I mean mortem. This is Joe Rogan treating this like Kurt Gowdy talking to Tom Seaver after pitching a no-hitter. Uh, but not quite. Scores, were there moments where you were doubting? I know, I know. It doesn't matter from the trenches. I'm built like this. I'll go to the, to the bounce done. That's it. I'm from the trenches. I've been dying my whole life now. Look at me now. Look at me now. I want you to see something. Look up at the big I've screen. I've been down in the trenches my whole life. Look at me now. Look at me now. What, what a nice message Disney is giving kids. Team in Birmingham, when they watch... That belongs to nobody. That's it. Leon, that was one of the most amazing come-from-behind victories I've ever seen inside the octagon. Let's take a look at it. You showed him the left. Take a look at this. You show him the left. I want to say, first of all, thank God. Jay, I love you, Mama, I love you. Mama, I, I love you. I told you I'd do it for you, Mom. I, I love told you, Mommy. I'd change your life. I told you I'd do it. Now look at me now. Leon, what did it feel like the moment you landed that kick and the moment you saw him drop and you knew you did it? What was that like? I, was like, I can't explain it, Joe. God is on my side. God I said it all week. Side. I felt like this is my moment. Everything happened in the past. The two years out, the pandemic, all of it. They all say I couldn't come back and do it. There is no ring rust. I told you that already. Now look at me now. The champion of the world, soldier. The champion of the world. Look at me champion now. Of the world. Look at me now. Everything that's wrong is contained within those 90 seconds. The materialism of the belt, the violence, the idea that you can punch your way out of the trenches. It, look at me now, the exhibitionism, the need to be famous. This is what Disney is instilling in our children. Amazing. It doesn't end well. It doesn't end well for uh, the new welterweight champion, Leon Edwards. It's not gonna end well for him. And it doesn't end well uh, for America and American children. It normalizes violence. It sends the wrong message that might makes right and that you can punch your way out of the trenches. Not good. And there's bloodlust, not, not just from the audience, but from the fighters and Joe Rogan. And that's where Joe Rogan, that's his moral or amoral center. It doesn't end well for this country. It normalizes violence like this. Let me show you something, and it's graphic, and I'll probably get dinged 
for showing it. But it, uh, I can't find it. Where is it? Well, I, oh, okay. I shouldn't be showing this actually, but I'm going to show it anyway. Here we go. Take a look at law enforcement, Arkansas State Police. Those are Arkansas State Police officers. Uh, over the weekend, three officers seen on video beating the crap out of a man they arrested on Sunday outside a convenience store in Mulberry, Arkansas. Two deputies and an officer were suspended on mon- Monday with pay. They get their pay. Uh, uh, they were identified as Zach King and Levi White and police officer Z- uh, Tell Riddle beating the crap uh, punching a man, banging his head against cement. Uh, and that's uh, the man they beat up is, is the one who was arrested and facing charges. That's what this, partly, this is what the, the normalization of violence uh, causes. That's what it causes. Look at me now. Well, Jason Miles and Pascal Robert are the co-hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast. It's good to see Jason. It's been a while. Uh, let me. There you go, Pascal. And Jason, are you with us? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. I, uh, I'm a little uh, in in a very trying to keep myself reserved. I disagree with everything you say Good. wholeheartedly. I Good. think it's extremely insulting. Good. Go ahead. Extremely insulting. Go ahead. Comparing sanctioned fighting to the abuse of law enforcement is beyond insulting. And to assume that anything sanctioned is therefore some sort of um, metaphor for the decay of society. I mean, you can get worse injuries in sports like football. Okay. So there's equal chest beating and quote unquote toxic masculinity in sports like football and basketball and baseball, all sports where people have lost the sight, have had brain injury, race car driving. How are they the same thing remotely? All right, let me let me show That's, a, that's an extremely liberal take. And then to go so far as to say that that fighter is a bad person doesn't make any sense. Uh, I think it's extremely insulting. Well, I don't mind insulting him. I, I think mixed martial. I mean, fuck what you got to say about Joe Rogan. But I mean, why is sanctioned fighting a bad thing? If you want to talk about people like Dana White and promoters like Bob Arum, Don King, Oscar De La Hoya and the way fighting is is pretty much has a pimpo relationship. That's a whole different conversation. Well, I mean, the, you're not talking about that. The, you're talking the, about the death penalty the act of fighting in general. The death penalty is sanctioned by the state of Texas. It's still okay. it's still wrong. Something just because something's sanctioned. It's the law, though. That you're talking about laws. These are you're having apples and oranges conversations. Do you think this is? Let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask you, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, watch this. Is this a sport? 
for a polo coaster's face. I mean, look at that. That is just hilarious. It's so twisted, and that is so Luke Rockhold. Yes. You think that's acceptable? Yes. Why? Why is it not? Because it, you don't like it? it? Is it a sport when a football player tries to hurt another and paralyzes one and then celebrates over it? The same thing happens. And I don't approve. Why of is that. one barbaric and the other is not? I don't approve of football either. What do you approve of? I approve of reading, uh, baseball, oh my God. golf. I do not approve of violence. I think it's, I think it is a sign of a society that hasn't evolved when the only uh, avenue for rage is through. Why is it rage? Have you ever played those sports? Yes. Have you ever been punched in the and face? fought? Yes. And, and, and taught fighting. Yes. And when you get punched in the face, mm-hmm. uh, it creates oxytocins. It create it, it says you? No, 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 no. It it creates says you. Because if I get punched in the face, I'm trying to avoid getting punched in the face again. Well, that's why you stop boxing. But the ones who get punched, it's endorphins. It's it produces a morphine effect in the body that that is actually uh, intoxicating. People get people who get punched for a living. Uh-huh. So if I punch you in the face, you get a you get a boner from that. You get drunk off that. Well, if no, you, you wouldn't. You either try to avoid getting punched in the face. You ask me to stop punching you in the face. Come on, stop. No, you actually. I this is offensive. Well, I'm sorry. I I find violence offensive. You're acting as if a sanction agreed upon fight between two people is the same thing. What's getting punched in the head on the street by an assailant? What about or being beat by police officers? It's exploit- That's insulting the people that get beat by police officers. No. Yes. Violence. It, it's violence and violence for commerce is wrong. Why is it wrong? Because violence is is failure. How is it failure? Because love is the answer. Oh, my God. I think Pascal, if you say something somewhat diplomatic, I'm off the screen. Well, I wasn't the one with being diplomatic. I think we have a philosophical disagreement here, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that Jason has a different idea in terms of how he views the capacity of violence, and I understand where he comes from. I come from a household. My father was a man who used to fight. He was a very physical man, and for him, Violence was a means of resolving conflict between individuals who had come to a point where no other consensus could be met. And he you, was a very physical man. And you went to law school. No, I went to law school. He didn't go to law and school. What, I went to law school. And what is better? So, but this is the thing. Different doesn't necessarily mean better. I think different. This, this is the thing. I don't want to see violence used in any capacity as the first resort. I wouldn't use violence as a first resort, but I'm not also not a pacifist. In other words, I realize that at some point there's going to be a potentiality where the only way conflict is resolved is through violence. I'm not saying that it should be the first resort, but I also don't rule it out as a possibility. And I also think that if you live in the understanding that we have a society 
where physical contact between civilizations and people have been the norm since the beginning of time, if we realize that, we should be prepared to hash out our physical conflicts in the most effective spaces possible between individuals. I, again, I'm not a pacifist. I understand people say that they're against war. I'm against unjust war. I'm against imperialism. I'm against invasions and all that. But I'm also not a pacifist. I don't see a problem. I, I like martial arts. I like the idea of being able to have people trained in the art of defending themselves and fighting themselves. I like the fact that people are able to weaponize the capacity to challenge assailants. But at the same time, I also understand the position where excessive monetization of violence, just like a sense excessive monetization of sex can become excessive and egregious. I get it. I understand. I'm not necessarily saying one of you was right or wrong. I think you guys have two different philosophical worldviews. On this isn't about a worldview, but Pascal, stop. At some point, stop. This isn't about a worldview. This isn't about saying all all boxing. You, when you conflate boxing and MMA with police violence, and you're not saying that's a fucking problem. No, that's not. This, that's not. A, that's problem. not the same. That's not. And I, and I, that's why I, just, I don't think we can make a correlation between MMA, boxing, and even football, and the state. Don't forget, police are the state. When you're saying law officers engaging in violence, you're saying the state is now sanctioned to abuse human citizens. Now, those other entities are private spaces, whether it be boxing, and they are for entertainment. That's correct. So I would not conflate the same thing between boxing, MMA, as being the progenitor. As what, what we're seeing with law enforcement is something that can be traced back to the relationship to the state and the citizens going back to the 19th century in this country and the role of police to be the suppressor of the poor. That's a different relationship than between what two boxers in a ring or in an MMA MMA stadium stadium are engaging in. So I definitely agree that there's a differentiation there without a question. But at the same time, I do believe that you guys have a different perception in terms of what the role of sanctioned violent displays in society and if there should be one. That's a disagreement. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, I just don't uh, think it's uh, morally. uh, Then don't watch it. I, well. Apparently you do. I do. Okay, well. And I'm not proud of that. What percentage of society do you think fights professionally? Do you think, okay, let's change the subject. What would you like to talk about? Unless you want to talk about This. this. Okay, go ahead. No, you go ahead. What percentage of society do you think fights professionally? I think watching, I think blood sports breed a type of thinking that doesn't push the narrative I want to push. I think How long has boxing exist for in a sanctioned format? Boxing, uh, I think the late 19th century, Right. Marquis de Queensberry rules. So you're so using your logic, we're constantly a violent society because there's sports that are violent. No, 
I'm not saying that. What are you saying? I'm saying that boxing, which I enjoy watching, uh, is sad. Why is it sad? Because it doesn't end well for the boxers. It didn't even end well for Muhammad Ali, who- Muhammad Ali lived to be about what, 78? He had uh, Parkinson's. And how did he get that? Uh, he didn't get it from boxing. Oh. Is everyone from Gaz Parkinson gets it from head injuries? Oh. Last that, I checked, that's not how Parkinson's works. Oh, that is the common, uh, that's, that's the consensus. A consensus. There's also consensuses that say that the John Matuzak died from steroids when he did other drugs as well. The Larry Holmes fight with Muhammad Ali, they say he took so much, the brain in the, in the skull was flapping around during that fight and it caused permanent damage. Fighters, it is true, professional fighters have a much shorter lifespan than non-fighters. It is true that athletes in general have a high suicide rate. Well, in general. Depends what sport we're general, talking about. Some sports are better than others in terms of for the players. If you play golf, which I think is also as offensive as mixed martial arts. But, you know, baseball players live long lives. Football players with CTE, something like every corpse. You don't even necessarily have to have CTE, but football players in general and fighters in general have a bit of a shorter life. Because of the concussions. When you get hit in the uh, head, mm -hmm. you, you get CTE and... There is a. Oh, it's it's off. It's not that simple. It's not just a. Oh, hit. But there is a rash of football players mm -hmm. dying young, paralyzed. Their memory is shot. Mm -hmm. They have problems with drug use, suicide, domestic violence. Everything I've read tells me that's caused by the concussions. Some, I mean, some people just had addiction problems as well. That are, also caused, that are also caused by. If you want to have a conversation about. I'm saying some, whether you like it or not, as, Jason, I love you, yeah. but whether you like it or not, uh -huh. some sports are better than others. Some sports uh, are merge the brain with the body and uh, they are a delight for civilizations. Some so you think dumb people fight? Did I say that? Yes. No, I didn't. Some sports are you better. You insinuated it. No, I did not. You've been insinuating the whole time that this is for dumb people. Ultimately. Did I? No, no. I it's did a not degradation of society. I, it's bad for society. Hmm. Violence. Well, it's bad for society. West Point. Nature. Yeah, West Point. Uh, West Point. Some of the, the smartest people in the world graduated from West Point. Douglas MacArthur was a genius. He graduated from West Point. I don't think uh, generals are dumb. Evil, people who are okay with violence, who, who, who are willing to sacrifice a certain amount of lives to get ahead on the field, that's evil. Some sports are better than others. When it, if there's a sport that causes the players to die young, it is a bad sport. Soccer is better than football. Rugby 
is not uh, is inferior to to soccer. When people get injured on the field, when 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 tens of thousands of people are cheering uh, out of blood lust, it is wrong. It is wrong. But you would, you can't admit though, David, that that's a that is a moral evaluation that you're making based on your personal values. Well, I think I think. I put love first. I put nonviolence first. I put pacifism first. Anything that celebrates violence is wrong. No, I, I, I understand that. But at the same time, and I'm not, I'm not trying to cast judgment on what your hierarchy or what your, or your uh, catechism is, if you will, of values is. But you do, we do agree that that is subjective. Well, it gets back to what I was saying at the top of the show. I mean, moral relativism uh, and allowing for subjectivity on the basic building blocks of civilization is the end of democracy, is the end of the republic. When, you, when, when, mora- when basic rules of morality are up for debate, then it's the complete end of civilization. If you have a child and you say to the child, uh, it's okay to watch mixed martial arts. And, and that's just, you know, that's a choice that you can, you can make. Violence is a choice. That's a society in decay. Yeah, but the thing is, though, one of the things, the most consistent pattern of every society and civilization that we've had since the beginning of civilization is violence. And that's wrong. Blood and circus, bread and circus, Rome, the gladiators, that that was everything that's wrong with the Roman Republic. We can, we're not willing to address the problems. Uh, so let's give them gladiators, Christians. So I understand killed. the metaphor between the, the Roman Empire and the fall of the empire with the the needs to have the circus of the uh, the the entertainment coliseum and the the entertainers and things of that nature. I get that, but at the same time, civilizations have had entertainment value spent put on sport that are violent for thousands of years. Whether they be wrestling, whether they be you know some martial combat, some sort of combat, they, yeah. I mean, this is something. This is this is pre-Western civilization. In the 1960s, there was no such thing as marital rape. So, what's your point? That we evolve, we we get better as a as a. Society. Why do you think marital rape is easy to to uh, convict someone of in 2022? At least it's on the books. Wow. Thanks. Okay. I, I mean, obviously there's been an evolution in that context, but the point is, is that I don't understand why we we can't have degrees here. I'm not saying that we should have the most lustful ex- ex- examinations of violent brutality on display 24 hours a day, but why can't we have some agreed upon sanctioned level of physical combat as a means of entertainment, are we saying that, that as a society, that means that we are morally bankrupt for choosing that? Well, wouldn't it be? I mean, we're, I think we I think we all want the best for our society. 
wouldn't it be better if uh, children didn't have to box, didn't have to do mixed martial arts? Why do you think they have to do it? That's an also a very arrogant statement because you're assuming only poor people are doing this to get out of poverty. Well, the uh, people that do sports, especially at a high level at this point, are people that have a little bit of money because you need money to pay for training. Well, boxing this stuff isn't free. What about boxing? Same way. Mm. Really? Yes. Mm. One of the, the fight that didn't happen, but is probably one of the more popular talked upon fights in the last year or so because boxing is in decline was Jake Paul, internet sensation, and Hasim Rahman Jr., son of professional boxer Hasim Rahman. Right. And that was a that was an outlier. Was that no? Okay. It's it's silly to think how many we're seeing just like with basketball and now football, we're seeing more sons of ex fighters fighting. But when we think about competition and who's really fighting, if anything, you're seeing people from Latin America and not necessarily the favelas. Because again, you have to pay for training. It's, I, it's I, not, it's I, not I 1990 think, anymore I don't with hoop dreams. I don't think you're seeing uh, uh, East Coast boarding schools uh, sending uh, mixed martial artists into the that's a that's a huge jump right we don't have to be east coast boarding schools to i don't be think california I, I think california i don't think you're saying the children of the one percent uh playing football owning, there's a difference owning, between the children of the one percent and a petty bourgeois element of people in athletics in general we've talked about this several times on my show that there's even becoming a class of athletes because who can afford for this type of one-on-one -on -one training to be an elite athlete. It's a kind of a legacy. It's becoming like a legacy thing where you have an athlete who bashes a sport and he wants his son to participate. So we having what's going on is that we have like a legacy kind of scenario where professional sports where it was an element of social mobility in the sport and the poor in the past for poor people has now become the providence of children of professional athletes. Right. Well, you, you heard, uh, I don't know if you saw the clip that I played of the new welter, uh, the new welterweight champion. Mm -hmm. Yes. Leon Edwards, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And you heard what he said. Yeah. He said he comes from the treasures. Yeah. What does that mean? He didn't have a roof over his head. He really didn't have a roof over his head? Yeah. He was one of those guys that lived with three walls in, in London. Where was no, that? Jamaica. Where the hell did he live? Jamaica. Had a British accent. Didn't sound very Jamaican, but he could be Jamaican. Do you know him, Pascal? I don't know him. I'm not familiar with him. Uh, he's got a mean kick, though, I can tell you that. I mean, you still <laughs> you got to get sponsorship. It's, it's, it's harder than you think to get to that level. I know. You can't just do it because you're a poor kid trying. You you find people who promote you. Boxers were always 
boxers always had somebody backing them, but that didn't mean they weren't well, poor. Well, let's think about this realistically. And again, let's get out of our kind of preconceived notions on what this looks like, because it's easy to say he's from Jamaica, he's from the trenches, and assume that Jamaica That's what he said. only has poor That's guys with dreadlocks. In it. That's what he said. You just said the trenches doesn't mean anything. He actually says he came from nothing. He was poor. I was broke. Look at me now. Boxing, notoriously, you time out. Now, hang on for one second. Okay, you you take a poor kid, like whomever, and Mike Tyson. My, I was going to say Mike Tyson, and then you get a, a syndicate of investors who back and manipulate, exploit a poor boxer. That is the story of boxing, and they rarely it it never ends well. That's a lovely tale from 1985, I think, but we're in 2022 and Mike Tyson is a liability for investors, but real was investors, it, who, who was it? Not, a, not, not customado in upstate New York. Who was boxing ended? Who, and who left the boxing world? Sugar Ray Leonard. I mean, who ended up? Okay. Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvin Hagler, Thomas Hearns. Uh, these are just people I'm blaming off the top of my head. A lot of people had other problems that weren't just boxing. I mean, if you want to talk about sports in general, a lot of people left sports in general. The 70s and basketball left us with a ton of coke addicts that ended their lives in virtual obscurity. So but, but we can sport, have a whole show about, you know, you don't have basketball is basketball, ruining black America. Basketball doesn't. Uh, render, doesn't what? Doesn't render doesn't what? The, the game itself doesn't render the players unconscious, doesn't create the kind of long term uh, damage to the body, the brain, as as boxing does, as football. But every does. boxer that has left, I mean, I don't know Julio what you're. Chavez I don't know what. Not, honestly, you know, I don't know. Drunk and he fought like of a hundred fights. I, I think you're bringing up anecdotal evidence. I, so are you. No, I don't think so. Yes, you are. No, I think You've the, not cited anything. The science is in on football. The science is in. Every, the science is so in. So every football player. Every, listen, excuse me for one second. Mm -hmm. The science is in on football. 99% mm -hmm. or 90% of all brains of football players. Mm-hmm have some form of CTE. It is a serious problem. Then why me, me, are yeah, you, you not you, talking second. about you, football? You have to. That look. takes 22 people hang on. to run into each other at one time. You're not letting me finish my, you have. You well, have to, because I don't care because you're talking about boxing and you're not talking about football. You're conflating two people fighting in a ring with the referee, the same as Five sheriffs beating the shit out of some guy on the street. You ever got the shit beat out of you on the street by a sheriff? I don't know what that has to do with. I don't know what that has to do with this conversation. You know what it has, it has to do with when you're getting the shit beat out of you by a sheriff. The last thing you're thinking of, man, it sure is just like when I was taking that kickboxing class at the gym. The politics of these iPhones when you see, when people see 
those cops beating the shit out mm-hmm. of that suspect, mm-hmm. it appeals to the same bloodlust. So you're saying that, that you, regular people are cheering me, on state violence. You don't, yeah, it, would you let me, you, don't, you know, you're, first of all, you're very hostile today. Yes. And you're very offensive. I think, you know what? You're, you're, you're coming at me, you know, it's, you're interrupting me and. Yeah. Okay. Then that's not discourse. That's what you see on Fox news, people talking over one another. Okay. Well, and it's a, and it's a form of violence, quite frankly. Okay, okay. Now you're getting your ass kicked by words, right? No, Tom, come on, dude. You're Tom, a fucking comedian. This is you've been hostile. telling people to fuck off longer than I've been alive. This is you're being hostile to me. I have to be. Yes. Honest. You've been telling people to eat dicks longer than I've been alive professionally. Okay. You've been doing, you've been hostile to people with your words for ever. Stop. I, I, this is now it's ad hominem. Come on. Oh, give me a break. You're acting like a sissy. Come on. Okay. I I love you. You're You're having a bad day. So no, no, my day was totally fine okay. until you fucked it up. It was great. The sun was shining, birds were singing, and you came in. Okay. Let's wrap it up. Okay. Everybody, uh, we keep in touch. <laughs> it's uh, the heat, it's the summer. This I think, is, did I come to the wrong address? Check us out. This is Revolution this Podcast. Is, I, first of all, yeah. I, I love Jason. I do. I do. And I uh, I hope he comes back. I, I, I actually enjoyed this. I do. Uh, I just, I'm sorry. Friends can disagree. I Believe me, I've had my disagreements yeah. with Jason and others. Right. It's I, all good. I love it. Right, listen, you. I'll take off, David. We'll, okay. we'll see you soon. Thank you, Pascal. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. I love Jason and, uh, and, uh, and we're all heated. Well, here's what I'm going to do. It's 7.07. I need to hear some uh, Professor Mike Steinell, and then we'll, uh, we'll continue the show. But I've been going two hours straight. Let's listen to some Professor Mike Steinel. And when we come back, we will be joined by Ethan Hershenfeld. That sounds like a good idea, right, Ethan? Uh, count me in. Sounds okay. good to me. Can you hear me? I have yes, headphones. Yes, I can. Yes, oh, good. I can. Okay. I'm just trying to figure out which. Uh, I think we'll do this. Let's listen to Turtle.
okay? I'm good. Can you hear me? I can. I was pretend whistling. Oh, good. Welcome yeah. back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Friend me on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. We have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe to that. And we do office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. If you would like to attend office hours, go to my website to sign up. And subscribe to my newsletter. It comes out once a week and contained within it is an invitation for office hours. I uh, love Jason. I do. And I love Pascal. And uh, and we had a bit of a disagreement. Uh, I don't like uh, disagreements like that. But uh, anyway, how are you, Ethan? Are you in Cape Cod? Uh, David, I'm ready to fight. I'm here to fight with you. <laughs> This is, <laughs> this is a double header. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's go. All right. Uh, are no, you, um, are you uh, in I'm in Cape Cod. Uh, I'm still here. I'm back. Uh, so my, my father is up here like he was last year, and this is the place nearby. They're upstairs. I'm outside here. Um, and I might call the doctor down for a cameo if things get off, off the rails with us. Well, what happened was I uh, invited you to come on the show. Yeah. And then I made a mistake. Not that it's a mistake, but I didn't I understand. I didn't invite your father. However, I sent out an email to both of you. And I'm confused by that because I, I no. thought I just wanted you. But Freud says there are no mistakes. So Right, but Dr. Benjamin, Freud says there are no mistakes, but Dr. Samuel Benjamin says <laughs> everything is a mistake. <laughs> So it's a very different, it's a liberating approach to things. <laughs> Everything is Everything's a mistake. Yeah. So you just don't have to worry about any, any, anything. Really. Don't worry about it. Let's plug your book. Today is now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. To, today is now. It, it's as I said before uh, on the show, without sounding grandiose about the accomplishment of my uh, alter ego, Dr. Samuel Benjamin in this book, he uh, he guarantees that this book will change your life by $14 if you get the hardcover. 
and it will change it by seven if you get the paperback. Uh huh. So you, change will happen. It won't necessarily be change for the better. Um, you know, people sometimes say, I'm really taking my career to the next level, but they don't specify. It could be the next level down. That's the real problem with that expression. I also want to say that um, from a purely from a point of view of punctuation marks, the Spanish language is superior to the English language. Because like, um, if I'm asking you a question like, uh, como estas, David? Right. The sentence begins with an upside down question mark and it ends with another question mark. Yeah, they let you know what's coming. There are no surprises <laughs> in Spanish. I like that. Like in English, at, right at the end of the sentence, you, you get you get the context. In uh -huh. Spanish, they say, okay, here's an exclamation point. Now here's another one. That's how it should, all languages should have that. But how is the stand-up comedy, how is the comedy in Spain, if at least the written comedy? Because the, Yeah, there's like, no comedy because they tell you, they put the punchline at the beginning and then they put it again <laughs> at the end. Or so at the least jokes, you know, they don't work. At least you know there's something like here, it's... It, you're telegraphing yeah. the joke with the punctuation. Yeah, here mark. it comes, and there it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, it's weird at the stand-up comedy clubs in Spain because they laugh before the joke and after the joke. <laughs> while, standing so on, while standing on their heads. Yeah, it's very confusing, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah And you tip your waiter right when you arrive. <laughs> so it's a great gig. If you can get a waitering gig at a Spanish comedy club, I recommend it. Yeah. Uh, so how yeah. is your summer shaping up? We have, what, two more weeks before we realize it's, we accomplished I guess, nothing? I guess. I mean, I just got, let me tell you what happened. I just got pinned. Now, that's not like in a 1950s romantic comedy where my right. boyfriend put a pin on my varsity jacket. Right. I got pinned, which means I auditioned for something a few days ago, and the production said, let's pin him, which means they've pinned a few people. They want you to keep the date open, and then they'll decide. But this is really a step backwards in my career, I feel. It's a step backwards for me and for the Jewish people because I got pinned for the role of a rabbi right? Uh, in a movie. And the real problem is that the audition was they wanted you to say a certain blessing. It was the blessing before you slaughter an animal. So for, I had to decide, first of all, am I going to be okay with the cultural appropriation of my own people of playing a rabbi? Yes, I'm fine with that. As a vegan, am I okay playing a guy who's about to slit a chicken's throat? Yes, I am. But to study for the role, to figure out, is there a tune that goes with this blessing? A friend of mine sent me a video of an actual... So I had to watch the video with my hand over the screen and just listen to the blessing. It turns out, I think it's in very good taste. There is no tune with that blessing. The guy just mumbles it and then does his business. So that's nice. Is this a... Does this take place now or does it take place... It takes place, it's sort of like Planet of the Apes, but it's Planet of the Chickens. The whole <laughs> the whole planet has, no, no, it, it takes place. I think it's in the 60s, and I think it's in Baltimore. I'm not sure. Yeah. Auditioning. It's like diner, it's like diner except kosher. It, there, it must be very difficult to go out on auditions. I was talking to somebody about this last week because all of our self-actualization flows from accepting ourselves, loving ourselves, not relying on others for acceptance. Mm -hmm. Right. But an actor is constantly begging others to accept them. That is, that can be the mindset. And it 
frequently is. But I had great advice from a friend who got it from another friend who was encouraged by this teacher to go into the audition with the mindset of, I am giving these casting directors an option. They have a job. They have to find someone. They are getting paid to find someone for this part. I am providing a service. My audition is giving them a good option. And that's all you can do. That's so it is, a, it is actually possible to, to make that, um, to, to deceive yourself that way. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's, well, the way around possible. that is to get enough success where you are the producer, direct, you're not living at the mercy of casting. Age. Well, that's what I did with uh, Today Is Now, the movie, which will be coming out in about, I think, two months, which is I cast myself as Dr. Benjamin and wrote the book. Well, Ari Kagan also cast me. We put the thing together. Our, our, uh, we put the thing together together. So, um, yes, and that is the idea, to become the producer, to be the decision maker. Um, but also, again, and this is a lesson that I think can apply to people in any, in any job, maybe apart from politics. But it, if you can actually flip that switch in your head and say, can I, in, a, in an endogenous way, in a, just organically, in, internally, can I derive satisfaction from doing what I'm doing, regardless of the reaction from the outside? The answer is no, you can't. But no, no, you might be able to. It's a good, it's a good right. exercise. Right. Yeah. Did you go swimming in the ocean today? I didn't. It was very rainy here, very rainy. And uh, I took a walk with my father, which was nice. And uh, we, we swam yesterday and the day before and um, maybe tomorrow. And what did you um, talk about on the walk with your father? What are we talking about? Oh, there was a house for sale. So it was very <laughs> stereotypical. I took the listing off the house. I was reading the amenities. What comes with the house? We're taking the potted plants with us. You can have the firewood. That kind of. <laughs> yeah. I, when you look at Zillow, mm -hmm. you, you, you seem like the kind of person who can look at Zillow and realize this is not a fantasy. Like I could make this happen. I look at Zillow and I think I am incapable. I, I do not have what it takes to- No, 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 I couldn't, I can't, no, 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 I'm with you. I, I basically, I've lived in the same apartment in Brooklyn for 26 years now, and I, I will probably die there. I mean, not just while, I mean, I will die in there. I have, no, no, I don't know where I'll die, but I don't have any plans. And the place here, I don't expect, I don't think there will be any selling or buying of any yeah, that's my plan. Um, I, I the idea but, of of moving. I would rather. I know. I would rather. Yeah. Because I'm going to be miserable anywhere. Yeah. Right. So. Right. But, and so why be miserable with boxes? You might as well be miserable <laughs> with your stuff out of boxes. Also, why be miserable and also be lifting stuff? Just be miserable <laughs> sitting on a couch. I completely agree. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, it's also a, it's an it's an ethnic thing because you know. You read the Bible, there was a lot of moving, right. always moving around, right. constant. It's very nice to just sit in one place. For also 40 in my years. 20s, I had so many apartments and uh, I just kept moving. I couldn't get happy. I couldn't get, it was, this was too loud. This was too, that, this was, and I, I finally, when I landed in this place, I said, I'm done. I'm not moving again. We were up in Massachusetts visiting a friend. I uh, saw some houses that, 
I thought, you know, I could rent up here. I, I could do the show up here. Right. I could, I don't, what do right. I need to be in New York for? There's yeah. nothing here for me. I could just do the show. And then I'm thinking, well, but that, like, my sh- am I going to bring all my shoes or some of my right. shoes? <laughs> That's where I immediately thought, like, I'd have to move my shoes. Do I want to move yeah, all and, my shoes? And then, to your credit, you don't go beyond that. You're just like, okay, <laughs> I thought about the shoes. I'm done. No move. I'm already here. Well, to quote Dr. Benjamin in his book, he says, you know, they tell you, look both ways before you cross the street. But I say, look a third way. Look inside and ask yourself, <laughs> do I really need to cross the street? Maybe things are worse on that side of the street. Maybe things are just fine on this. So that goes to this point about moving. You don't have to move. We yeah. went to a mall uh, outside of Boston Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And it was hopping. It had a Neiman Marcus. It had mm-hmm. some Swiss chocolatier. It had mm-hmm. several chocolate. You know, I can always tell a high scale shopping mall where they have several Swiss chocolatiers. Right. Yeah. And I said to my friend, Oliver Sacks should study me. I am impervious to shopping malls. I, I The man who could not succumb to a shopping mall, I walk around. I feel zero temptation. If anything, I'm repulsed by the people and the stores and everything. Yeah. They, they, like, it doesn't work on me. Yeah, you're, uh, you're immune to uh, capitalism. You're a real communist. That's the sign. Do you, but do you get tempted by shopping? I'm not a, no, I'm not in, into shopping. Although if I'm in one of those walls, I go straight to uh, Sharper Image and get all of the massages. I will exactly. sit in the massage chair. Yes, I was just I'll put the one on my neck. I'll put yes, one in my pocket yes. and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. yes, that there is a there is a massage chair that I've been looking at that yeah. it's like a pod that you crawl into, like it's like right. the orga- orgasmatron from Sleeper, right. and you go into yeah. it and it has uh, music and it has uh, aromatherapy. Yeah, and I thought that is something that would break in one week and create right. so much tension trying to get it fixed. Well, there's another thing. That knot, that, the knots it would create would be tougher than the ones it relieves. But that's to your credit also. You're able to project a little bit into the future to the point when this is not a new exciting gadget, when it's just a hunk of metal that I then have to figure out how to fit into the elevator. Right, and right. Yeah, so that's, that's actually very healthy. Everything, um, everything I, is an ordeal. If you buy yeah. something, you buy. Right. I agree. You buy I a resist pair of getting pants, stuff. You buy yeah. a pair of pants. Okay. Yeah. Now I have to remember to zip up the fly. Right. If I forget yeah. to zip up the fly, I could do 20 years in prison. Yeah. It's um, always an ordeal. I have a lot of the stuff I own is stuff that was handed down or handed sideways to me, or I somehow, this was. This shirt was a gift. This, I found this. I found this in the water yesterday. Really? It's like one of those. It's a fake Fitbit. It's an Amazon Fitbit. I picked it up. Now there's a dolphin working. going. I don't know what time it is. <laughs> it was working, and it told me how many steps I'd done. It was it was a bizarre experience because it had told me how much the other guy's step, how many <laughs> steps this guy did, who this belongs to. I feel like I'm living this guy's life now. It's. <laughs> And it, it had a 50% charge on it yesterday. A day later, it has a 49% charge on it. It's miraculous. 
Well, wait a um, second. So this is a movie idea. I know. I'm in this guy's life now. I'm taking right. over his steps. And it's like a Dorian Gray thing. I don't know what the well, story no, is. Well, no, I mean, it's hooked up to some kind of cloud uh, medical <laughs> thing that people sign up for. And all they're going, right. he's getting calls. Your heartbeat has never been better. Your right. blood pressure is great. Right. You and, seem 20 years younger. And yeah. the guy said, actually starts feeling better. Right. Getting these reports on the inter, you know, checking in to see how he's doing. Right. Oh, that's good. And he's yeah. and he actually starts to feel better. And he realizes that if you're healthy, he'll be healthy. And then you. So get he has sick. to keep me healthy. And you get sick. <laughs> that's the movie. All right. That, that is anybody a, out there feel like writing that? that movie. I have come up I'll, with so many yeah. great movie ideas. Hmm. That that's a great. By the way, this is zero alcohol. Just so you know, in case any questions, in case anyone thinks I'm like guesting drunk, I don't drink and guest. Do you drink alcohol? Mm -mm. I gave it up about six months ago because the psychologist out in California, my friend Jimmy, sent me a link to this guy's talk, and he says if you have any tendency towards getting depressed, if you have any tendency or history towards depression or in your family. He recommends zero alcohol, not like one drunk drink a week or one a day, just zero. And I, I've, I switched uh, to zero, and uh, I'm totally depressed. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but you're, you you no, hit a baseline I, that you don't go any lower. Then you just remain yeah, permanently depressed. Yeah, See, yeah. alcohol, it doesn't create depression. It lifts you out of depression. You get a taste of the good life, and then the alcohol wears off, and you say, I'm depressed. You're just back yeah, that, where you... Alcohol doesn't create depression. It no, really the truth is my... The truth is it does, for me at least. I know I feel good. I love it. I have a lot of fun on it. Same with marijuana, but the next day I feel like just in the dumps. So right. I, it, like the, 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 the good feeling of today is not uh, worth the bad feeling of tomorrow. Today is now, by the way. But what you just said book. is your next book. The good feeling of today is not <laughs> worth the bad feeling yeah. of tomorrow. Yeah. That's the sequel yeah. to Today Is Now, written by yeah. Dr. Dr. Samuel, Samuel Benjamin. Benjamin. We're running five minutes behind, so we have five more minutes, and then okay. we're going to bring in Grace Jackson. Um, oh, I saw that photo of you guys. You met in person. That's met incredible. met in person in Brooklyn. Oh, that was Brooklyn. That was such a great photo. That yeah, was very Leslie, exciting Leslie to see. Leslie took it. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. We love Grace. Yeah. We, we, she's amazing. She's, yeah. a, a, she's a superstar of your show. She is. That's so cool. She is. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do have a, a sequel in the works. Um, I don't know if I should say the title because the title is just gold. Maybe I shouldn't spill the beans till it comes out. Do it. Um, I should do it? Yeah. Nobody, nobody watches this show or listens. Um, okay, the title of the book, it's, uh, it's Dr. Benjamin's Guide to Medi Meditation. Mm -hmm. And it's called Om, you know, like the, oh, the mantra Om. Yeah. Yeah, it's Om Alone. <laughs> Om Alone. <laughs> that's, I that's love the that. Title. Yeah. I love it's that. It's a very good title. Yeah. And you're just going to learn various meditation techniques from Dr. Benjamin. So yeah, I love look that. for it. I love yeah. that. And you, you're with your dad. How long is he going to stay with you? Uh, they're here for a, uh, uh, a month, a full month. He's taking the, a month. Really? And he sees, 
but he, I think he sees some clients, uh, or patients as they insist on calling them. <laughs> um, um, I think he sees some on zoom still. I think he does some of that customers, right? Customers. Right. And yeah. has he thought about live streaming any of that without the, the, the patients knowing again, that's a Dr. Benjamin move. So in the film, you'll see a lot of the sessions he does. They're part of the film. So these, he... cl these clients have agreed to be taped. Yeah. <laughs> I think if, uh, Anybody saw me talking to a doctor, they would, they'd put me in Rikers. They, I, they, no. they would lock me up. The questions, the, the neuroses. How are you with doctors? Having being raised by a doctor. Oh, are you a Well, so the interesting thing was I didn't miss a single day of school. I'm, I'm not kidding. Not a single day of school between first grade and 12th grade. I didn't miss a day of school. Because, and this was, I thought this might be a thing that was common to people who had a doctor parent. You're not feeling good in the morning. They'd say, hey, you're fine. You know, because if they see people who are really, really sick, so, right. hey, you're fine. So one morning I was quite feeling quite ill, took the lift to school, got out. I would get to school pretty early. No one was in the hallways yet. Got out of the car, wasn't feeling great. Walked into the hallways, just puked all over the hallway in the school and then I heard people arriving, so I just dashed into the bathroom to clean up. And then later in the day, between periods, I saw the principal of the school standing over that pile of my puke and saying, what the hell is this? Who did this? <laughs> but, you know, that I was fine said, later you, in the day. You vomited and you were able to finish. Your... I went, then I went to class and I was fine. Was it yeshiva? It was not. That was only through fifth, sixth grade with me, a Hebrew day school. Now, yeah. I have noticed that there is a prayer before going to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Now, are you asking, is there a prayer before puking? Yes. Um, but there are prayers where you go, that is, uh, that is bizarre that somebody has, I mean, when you get really, when you become an operating Thetan 5 Jew. Right. The one, someone explained to me the one before, um, Orgasm. Before relieving yourself. Before uh, an orgasm. Well, I don't know about that one. Oh, I don't know. A prayer, <laughs> that a, that could really break the momentum. <laughs> hang on for one second. <laughs> just hang on. Just hang on. I'm just going to put. <laughs> I'm just going to wrap some uh, prophylactories around my neck to heighten the orgasm. They're called prophylactories, no. aren't they? No, no. Phylacteries. Oh, uh, phylacteries. Yeah. Yes. Oh, then I um, was using the wrong one on my head. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder they keep getting pregnant. <laughs> But most people don't no. know. I was raised, I went to Orthodox Hebrew school, and you had to put these boxes, these leather straps on your head. Right. Yeah. And they were called phylacteries. Right. Yeah. That comes from Deuteronomy, which we talked about last week. Yeah. But what, do we get the word prophylactic, prophylactic from a phylactery? Um, I don't know, but the place they make them is a phylactery factory. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I don't know that that was that funny, but yes, um, it is. Because you know why? Okay. <laughs> I because I know you had that in fourth grade. You came up with that in fourth grade. Could be. I finally got to deploy it. Um, you came up with that. In no, there was something else. Something else important. I want to say. Oh, right. The prayer apparently before relieving yourself is a prayer where you thank. God for giving for 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 making the for making 
things open and close. In other words, for the miracle of that, that sometimes things open and sometimes they close. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, uh, you know, like CBS. Sometimes it's open (laughs) and sometimes it's closed. So you you also you also say that prayer before going into the pharmacy. No, it's I don't know. What do I know? Okay. Wow. Oh, it's right. so great. It's so great to see you. Likewise. Uh, Grace is here. Thank Grace. you. Grace. Thank you. Can uh, I say hi to Grace? Yeah, sure. Everybody go by today is now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. Let me just plug this Grace. I don't want to creep anybody out. Here we go. You have my permission to go to Amazon and purchase two days now. You get special dispensation because it's only available on Amazon. So go to Amazon and purchase two days now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin. And uh, you also get the Feldman guarantee, but you get the Hershenfeld guarantee, which is if you buy it, let's meet. I'll buy the coffee. And I'll sign your book. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, peace. Grace Jackson joins us. She Now, I'm going to embarrass her. She is a China expert. She speaks fluent Mandarin. So you, you don't like my calling you an expert, but you speak fluent Mandarin. Uh, possible Mandarin. I wouldn't know. I speak Sicilian. <laughs> I speak Sicilian, deep dish uh-huh. and Chicago style. Nice. Uh, that's uh, uh, It's good to see. We had a great time. Leslie and I saw you in Brooklyn, and uh, you were the second highlight of the evening. <laughs> the first highlight was I parallel parked on Carroll Street, which oh, I, I, I like a rock star. You, I wish I wish you could see me parallel park. It, like I, that's one of my I had forgotten. I've been living in New York so long. I forgot that I was like a, one of the greats at parallel parking. And you, you didn't it? get a ticket. And I didn't get a ticket. Perfect. Perfect. Grace Jackson is the co-host of Literary Hangover. And we don't have a one sheet for tonight. This is, I don't know if you know this, but we're running on bare bones uh, until after Labor Day. Mm. So I don't know what you want to talk about. Okay. What what would you like to talk about? Well, um, I was going to say a few things about the white paper that China released a couple of weeks ago on Taiwan. It's only the third white paper they've released on on the Taiwan question. And they released it in response to Nancy Pelosi's visit. So I thought I could do a little follow up on that. Yeah. Now, what is a white paper? What does that mean? Uh, It's basically a policy paper that lays out their position on a particular issue. And they've sort of used it in the past to clarify their position following particular events. Um, So they released one in 1993 and another in 2000 on Taiwan. And it basically just lays out their position, uh, goes over some historical questions and, you know, the reasons that they hold the position that they do on Taiwan. Um, It was kind of intended to basically 
clarify the way they think about Taiwan in the wake of Pelosi's visit and this concern about the gradual erosion of the US's uh, one China policy, not to be confused with the one China principle, but um, we can get into that later. So this white paper, a lot of it was stuff that we've seen before. It kind of reiterated a lot of the familiar concepts and messages um, that the PRC has around Taiwan, but there were a few notable differences and a few significant things that were different. Um, so they did, they stated in this white paper that they would not renounce the use of force and they would reserve the option of any necessary measure uh, in order to achieve reunification with Taiwan. Now that's not new. They've they've said similar things. Can you um, say that again? Like that so they would they would what about reunification? What? So in order to achieve reunification, China has said they will not renounce the use of force. So basically, if it comes to it, they will use force in order to achieve that goal. Right. Um, and that is not a new thing. That has been uh They've stated that several times in the past uh, decade. But there was something slightly new about the formulation in this white paper. So previously, in the other two white papers on Taiwan, the PRC had said explicitly, we will not send troops or administrative personnel to be based in Taiwan upon reunification, basically meaning that they wouldn't occupy Taiwan after unification. And this kind of signaled that Taiwan would enjoy potentially quite a high degree of autonomy after unification. Now, that line has been removed in this most recent white paper. And that, to me, indicates that the PRC is actually thinking more about potentially how they would govern Taiwan should reunification be achieved. Because it's one thing to kind of take Taiwan or to bomb it into submission to to kind of win a military victory. It's quite another to govern a population that doesn't really want to be governed by the PRC, which we do know is the case in Taiwan. Yeah, let, Let me just ask you this. Taiwan does not want to be taken over by the PLC. There, there are some elements, I would assume, within Taiwan, but for, for the most yeah. part, a majority does not want mainland yeah. China to run Taiwan. Yes, according to polling, uh, the overwhelming majority of Taiwanese people want the status quo to continue. Most of them don't want Taiwan to declare independence right now. And most of them also don't want reunification or, as I would call it, unification, because Taiwan has never actually been governed by the PRC. It's been administered by the Qing dynasty, but those are different political entities. So I prefer to call it unification, whereas the PRC would call it reunification. I'm sorry to interrupt you for one second. I just want to... Mm. Taiwan is not threatening mainland China? Uh, Economically, maybe? Is, is that- um, well, with the recent kind of semiconductor situation, there's a sense in which Taiwan is being forced to choose between 
mainland China and the US in terms of where it's going to do its business with with semiconductors. And we, in my last segment, I talked about right. how huge of uh, the global share in semiconductors Taiwan has through TSMC, this one very big corporation. Um, but it's not; it's certainly not threatening the PRC in a, any tangible way. So, um, is there is there a natural resource that mainland China is yearning for? So, well, not a natural resource, but semiconductors. Semi I think there's a strong attraction to Taiwan's very highly developed semiconductor supply chain. Um, Which and, and they, I, I think they use uh, mainland China as f for factories, and don't they employ people? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of actual um, manufacturing done in China by companies that are headquartered in Taiwan. There is quite a lot of manufacturing done in Taiwan of semiconductors as well. It's the case that a lot of Taiwanese-made semiconductors end up being shipped to the mainland where they are then assembled into iPhones and other, you know, electronic gadgets that end up uh, in the US and in Europe. So they so, are they are trading partners. They are Oh yeah. They get along. Absolutely. When when oh well trading partners, yes. Um getting along is is a slightly different question. But there's no doubt that Taiwan's semiconductor industry would really be let's say, the jewel in the crown of uh, PRC-occupied Taiwan. Um, there's a huge incentive there for China to take control of that supply chain. Um, but just going back to the question of governance and you know what Taiwanese people want or what they say they want, um, it's hard to imagine the PRC governing Taiwan in a really effective and uh, you know smooth way, because right now, as as I mentioned, the polls suggest that Taiwanese people want the status quo to continue. They don't want independence, at least not immediately. They don't want unification. Uh, there is a small contingent of people who favour both immediate independence and immediate unification, but it's it's vanishingly small. Those are the people that probably we saw protesting against Pelosi's visit, the, the Taiwanese people who came out against that. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that this white paper that, that China just released does kind of hint that, hint by omission, at least, by omitting that line about not stationing administrative personnel in Taiwan, that a military occupation or even an extended military occupation is being at least countenanced. Um, so I wanted to kind of pivot from that and talk a little bit about uh, another constituent in Taiwan, the indigenous people. So can I can I ask just a follow up yeah, question? Sure. Please. Yeah. I have two follow up. Hold, hold, please hold the thought about the indigenous people. One is mm. I would assume China governs differently in different territories. The way they govern Tibet is different from the way they govern Hong Kong, and mm -hmm. they would govern Taiwan uh, differently than how they would govern Hong Kong, or would it be similar? That's, 
That's a good question. That's a very pertinent question. Um, so China indeed governs in different ways in different territories. So Tibet is a special autonomous region, as is Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs are. Um, Inner Mongolia also has a similar setup, and I think Guangxi province as well, which is very rural in the southwest. So there are different kind of modes of governance and levels of autonomy. And different granted. languages and different ethnicities yeah. and different... Exactly. Yeah. Now, Hong Kong is probably the most relevant example here. And it's also the outlier in terms of governance, I would say. So many listeners will be familiar with the uh, concept of one country, two systems, which was promised to Hong Kong as a way for Hong Kong to maintain its capitalist and kind of somewhat liberal um, way of life when Hong Kong was returned to China by the British in 1997. Um, so it was designed to allow Hong Kong and Macau had a similar thing, which was a Portuguese colony, to, to preserve its separate system, but still to kind of be a part of, of China uh, the country. Now that that one country, two systems has been touted to the Taiwanese by the Chinese leadership. And in fact, it was mentioned in the white paper. Um, Xi Jinping has said repeatedly that one country, two systems is going to be the best thing for Taiwan in the long run, that it would safeguard the interests and well-being of Taiwanese compatriots, to quote him. But there is an issue with that, because in, nine, in 2019, uh, China decided to introduce uh, the national security law in Hong Kong. And that's what triggered those very significant protests. Um, I believe the law was actually withdrawn in response to the protests by the local Hong Kong legislature, by the local Hong Kong government. But then it was imposed the following year. Uh, in 2020. And it has it has changed the status quo in Hong Kong significantly, not economically, we should add. So economically speaking, financially speaking, Hong Kong is still the same business friendly, low tax uh, place that it was. Center for but capitalism. I mean, it is a center for is, capital, exactly. Is, and the flow yeah. of capital. Um, but politically, it has changed beyond recognition. Um, I can go into, you know, how, how it has changed. Do you but mind? I'd be curious. Sure. Well, the national security law um, basically criminalizes dissent and adopts extremely broad definitions of things like terrorism, subversion, secession, and collusion with foreign powers. So it expands the definition of all of those crimes. It allowed Beijing to establish its own security force in Hong Kong. Um, under the law so far, like several hundred people have been arrested and thousands more have been arrested simply for, for their participation in the protests. Um, so newspapers have closed, journalists and publishers have been jailed a few very sort of high profile ones. Um, and in 2021, separate from the national security law, Beijing overhauled Hong Kong's electoral system. So prior to this, 
from 1997, when Hong Kong was returned to China, there was a thing called the Basic Law, which was, it served as Hong Kong's kind of mini constitution. It replaced the British colonial law. Um, and it under the Basic Law, Hong Kongers were supposedly going to get freedom of the press, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. Um, now, Beijing always had the right to interpret the basic law, and there were certain things in the basic law that were intentionally vague. So it did state that the ultimate aim for Hong Kong was to have its leader, its chief executive, elected by a popular vote, but there was no deadline for that um, in the basic law. Now, since 2021, when this overhaul of the electoral system happened, basically, there are new rules about who can run for election in Hong Kong. Uh, only, quote unquote, patriots who respect the Chinese Communist Party are allowed to run in elections. There was only one candidate that was allowed to run for the chief executive position, a guy called John Lee, who happened to be a hardline former police chief who was in charge of putting down the protests in 2019. Um and prior to this, about half of the Legislative Council's members were elected directly, and the rest were chosen by industry groups or professional groups. And now only 20 are directly elected, and that's if they even make the ballot. If they're not patriotic, if they don't respect the party, they're not even going to make it to the ballot. So a lot has changed. Um, many political parties have kind of folded since then. A lot of people have been jailed. Um, a lot of these dissenting voices have been silenced. So one country, two systems is turning out to be, you know, um, quite conducive to the maintenance of, of uh, capital friendly conditions in Hong Kong. But the other part of that, which was the kind of liberal democratic uh, ideal, supposedly, that Hong Kong was going to be allowed to pursue, that hasn't held up so well. So Taiwanese people look at this and they think, well, there's not that much for us in this system, I, th I think. Interesting. Let's go to indigenous. Yeah, indigenous well, it's people. connected. Indigenous yeah. people. Um, so they're a very small uh, part of, of Taiwan's population. They're about two and a half percent. However, um, scholars think that they've probably been on the island of Taiwan for about 6,000 years. Wow, this is really uh, interesting. Yeah, based on the diversity of the languages that they, do they speak. And do they look, I would assume they look different? Yeah, they do look a bit different from, you know, what we would think of as the sort of Han Chinese ethnicity, I suppose. Um, but most interestingly, they all speak different languages, dozens of different languages. Uh, but, do they, but do they know? Languages. But they know they're. I'm sorry. They know they're indigenous, right? They. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, so they do know they're indigenous. However, as with all of these these types of situations, um, the ways in which they've been categorized has been heavily informed by colonial administration on Taiwan over the centuries. So when the Japanese administered Taiwan, when they occupied Taiwan, they had their own 
approach to Indigenous peoples and categorizing them. Um, same for the, the KMT when they came to Taiwan. So there's it's a fluid and kind of ongoing and contested uh, definition. There are many people who are uh, not considered officially Indigenous, who would like to be recognized officially as Indigenous in Taiwan. So there's a whole kind of politics of indigeneity in Taiwan at the moment. But the point is, is that there's more and more recognition now and with the current government on Taiwan, uh, Indigenous people are gaining recognition and representation within the government. And I just wanted to, I guess H I'll, on, I'll end on this. Hang on for one second. Yeah. This is, so the Indigenous people on Taiwan, are they, has their fate been as similar to the indigenous people in, say, America, Canada? Mm, yeah. In what way? Yeah. Explain that. Like, how are they? So they are well, second class <laughs> citizens? Have they always? You say it's been different with each different colonizing empire. Yeah. But each, so each kind of colonizing force on Taiwan, and there have been many of them, <clears throat> um, has dealt with the indigenous peoples in their own way. But a common theme is subjugation. I mean, especially under the Japanese, the, the Japanese treatment of the indigenous peoples was especially brutal. And in fact, there are some very interesting and kind of paradoxical currents in Taiwanese politics today around indigenous people identifying perhaps more with the, the KMT, with the nationalists who came to Taiwan by virtue of the fact that they got rid of the Japanese. Um, it's very complicated and I don't want to misrepresent it, but I do want I, to just I'm know. Sorry, this is so fast. Chiang Kai-shek, <laughs> KMT. Yeah. He, he was not from Taiwan. He was from. No, he was from the mainland. And so when they all went to Taiwan, they, they got rid of the Japanese or no, this was 48, right? Well, this was 47, but after the war, up after the Japanese surrendered in World War II, uh, obviously they they lost their claim to Taiwan and it was returned to the Republic of China. Um, and that's when Chiang Kai-shek went to Taiwan with the remnants of his nationalist forces uh, so is a million Taiwan, or two million of them. Do they? Is it a nation of immigrants? Is that how? Despite the two percent indigenous, do they think of themselves as a nation of immigrants? Um, it doesn't have. I. I mean, yes and no. I think there isn't quite the same discourse of the melting pot right, that right, right, the right. United States has, right. but it's getting there. And actually, more and more. And you see this in the newer museums in Taiwan, the National Museum of Taiwan History, for example. There's a narrative emerging of Taiwan as a multicultural place where civic participation is defined more by things like voting and having kind of democratic values than it is by your blood, by your skin color, you know, your ethnicity or even your language. And so if you ride the, the subway in Taipei, You'll hear the announcements in several different languages, you know, uh, Mandarin, English, Hakka. Uh, I think there's one other indigenous language. I don't have the list to hand, but it is a, a polyglot 
place. And English uh, is, you will have no problem. Live, you lived in Taiwan for two years. If yeah. you didn't speak fluent Mandarin, could you have gotten by just speaking English? Uh, you can get by, but you won't have the best time, which, and I had the best time. <laughs> well, because they, because you don't speak. Yeah, I see. Right. right. You need, you, you, you should speak Mandarin in Taiwan if you can. It's not, English is not quite at the, the second language level that I think the Taiwanese government would like it to be. They're actually promoting English as the second language of Taiwan at the moment. Um, but if you can speak Mandarin, you'll just get so much more out of it. And so then English, there's also the language Taiwanese is a is a language. Um, it's a, a variant of Southern Min from the southern part of China, which is where a lot of the immigrants to Taiwan came from in the 17th and 18th centuries. Right. So you've got just a lot, dozens of different influences. Um, but before we go, I do want to just get to this. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. This, this, the reason I brought the indigenous people up was because when you hear the Chinese government, for example, in this white paper, talk about the inevitability, the historical inevitability of reunification, it's very interesting to consider the perspectives of people who, by all accounts, have been on Taiwan for thousands of years, maybe 6,000 years. Um, in 2019, a group of indigenous people represented by, uh, what was it called? The representatives of the indigenous peoples of Taiwan. It's a small kind of government um, body. They wrote an open letter to Xi Jinping in response to his address where he had said, we're going to do one country, two systems in Taiwan. It's going to be great for everybody. And I read this letter and I thought it was very moving, actually. Um, and I just wanted to read a, a short mm -hmm. quotation from it, if, if, if I may. Yeah. So in this letter, they said, um, we've lived here in our motherland for more than 6,000 years. We are undoubtedly not ethnic minorities within the so-called Chinese nation. The stories passed down to us by our ancestors reveal that Taiwan is the traditional territory of this land's indigenous peoples. They go on. We, the indigenous peoples of Taiwan, have for centuries been enduring the deeds and sometimes the empty words of those who have pushed up onto our island's shores. This has resulted in us being forcibly repressed by colonialists and also by authoritarian regimes. The Spanish, the Dutch, the Jung Kingdom, the Qing, the Japanese and the Republic of China, they have all come here and they've all left their marks. We were even called barbarians and untamed savages. Now we are officially recognized as Taiwan's original occupants. Yes, we have fought against imperialism and every foreign intruder. And they say, this is a nation within which different groups of people are trying to understand each other's painful historical experiences. This is a nation within which we can tell our own stories and in our own languages. We have freedom and can decide the kind of country we aspire to have. We work hard to improve this. This is dignity. Hmm. So I thought that was really interesting and a kind of helpful thing to consider against claims of, you know, history is destiny. 
historical inevitability that are always being offered by the PRC. Great. Fantastic. I hope that made sense. Yeah, it was fantastic. And, and it is uh, a subject that we need to pay attention to, obviously. Uh, yeah. And, and it's, uh, for lack of a better word, alien to, mm. to most Americans. Grace Jackson is the co-host of Literary Hangover. She, I'm going to say you work our China desk. <laughs> is that good? That sounds like we're a big That news sounds guy. great. That sounds like our, on our China desk. <laughs> I like that. And uh, you're, can we, can we tell where you are? Yeah, I'm in Vermont, in Bernie country, still looking for Bernie. <laughs> that's, a no that's a novel <laughs> that you should write. And uh, people can follow you at Grace Jackson, listen to Literary Hangover, and uh, hopefully we'll see you either in Vermont or uh, or Brooklyn. Yeah, Les come visit. Leslie says hi. Hi, Leslie, okay. and hi to Dr. Fraud as well, yes. who I'm a huge fan of. Let me bring oh, Dr. Fraud on for a second. <laughs> Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. She Thank you very much. Uh, you are a little... Uh, Buzzing. Do I have glaucoma? No, I... How's that? Is that better? Because I have an overhead light off. It, it looks like a cat, like, rubbed something on your lens. No, they didn't. I have no cats. Well, it looks uh, like a cat sneaked into your house. <laughs> is, can you wipe, can you wipe the lens of your, of your camera? Like the little computer? Better now? Do you, know where the, do you know where the camera lenses? Sure. There's a stop video, that thing. No, 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 don't, don't touch that. Uh, we, I mean, we could put... I don't have a camera lens in my, at the top. Well, let's see. Do I have a camera lens at the top? I mean, Maybe. we can we can do this. It's okay. It would just be. Well, I'll see. I'll see if I can find a camera lens at the top. You can tell tech is not my area of expertise. Camera lens at the top. I don't see one. Okay, we'll uh, we'll live we'll with it. it. There's a little camera. Maybe that's it. No, this is about it's soft focus. It's it's out yeah. of focus. Nice. I don't know why. Okay. It's, nor what to do about it. It's it, it we we would love to see the full you, but uh well, this here's is, the fuzzy me. That's the fuzzy you, but there's nothing the fuzzy. fuzzy there's nothing No, I'm not a fuzzy thinker. Not a fuzzy thinker at all. Dr. Harriet, mm -hmm. we're gonna be talking about a really interesting subject. We're gonna go from Taiwan to South America and right. the pink tide. Uh, which I really want to discuss with you. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. We'll find out who the co-hosts are at the end of this segment. You can hear her on WBAI Pacifica, Wednesdays at 2.30. Let's, Tuesday. I'm sorry? No, Wednesday. I'm sorry. It's now Wednesday at 2.30. You're right. No, I'm wrong. Right. Let us talk. Let's go through this country by country. Honduras, Colombia, Chile... Uh, have moved, they have leftist governments, as do Bolivia, Nicaragua. I'll start asking about that. Well, Nicaragua Venezuela and Cuba, Venezuela and Cuba, 
And if Bolsonaro goes down, Lula in Brazil. Uh, That's right. Let's start with Ortega in Nicaragua, because isn't he problematic? He is is problematic. He's problematic. Uh, He's now, though, at first the Catholic Church loved him because he uh, fought against abortion. Now he's fighting against the Catholic Church. They love him less. But he has a left authoritarian government. It's a left government. Bolivia. He is the, as they say, the original gangster, Sandinistas. Uh, he was the the. He was the an leader before he got power, and he isn't. He's now an authoritarian leader, but he's a left authoritarian. What is the difference between a left authoritarian leader and a right authoritarian leader? Well, a left authoritarian leader would be somebody like Petro who, and Marquez, who just won as president and vice president of Colombia because he was he was in the resistance and she and he are both socialists and they both want to be a government for the nobodies, the people who have, as the poet Galliano says, uh, people who have dialects, not accents, people who are known only by their first names, people who have never counted before, and they welcome everyone, and they want a democratic process, and they're insisting on it, and they are the, the government of the people. And a unity of the climate movement, feminist movements, the LGBTQIA movements, and the socialist movement, and the communist movement. It's but it's not only political parties, it's movements. And they want people to count. And that's why they're there. And they're celebrating diversity of voices and people. And that is non-authoritarian. <clears throat> Whereas Ortega has put people in jail, has made, <clears throat> has banned abortion, has made strict rules, has crushed the opposition. Why don't you take some, take some water, re, re, swallow some water, because you're sounding the way you look now. <laughs> take a, a, a nice swig of why you're why that's you're, better that's better just a little fuzzy yeah <laughs> and brazil there's lula but on the other hand bolsonaro is trying to organize the favelas the slums evangelists and there's only 31 there's 31 percent of brazil who are evangelical because he's going on a big deal against abortion hopefully he'll fail and lula is the popular hero who was also in jail. Right. Chile is also amazing coming out from under Pinochet and the opponent in the election was a relative of Pinochet, you know, to a victorious democratic unity. One of these, the most exciting thing is that they show America that I forgot one of the huge constituents in all of these is the labor movement, which is a very politicized and powerful labor movement and the indigenous movements. What they show us is if we can have a movement 
of all the unified oppositions in the United States, of the progressive opposition, of the labor movement, which is nascent and growing more and more powerful in the United States, and the feminist and race movements and LGBTQIA movements and the climate, everyone under one socialist umbrella that allows everyone to have a voice, but affirms that class is central, as these people do, we could win in the United States. The right is quite unified in its fascistic Trump-like message. And the left is not. And so we have much less chance. And so I think what they are is a huge inspiration to us. Colombia has never had a left government before. Bolivia, I mean, has, has said that um, he wants to stop NATO, stopping U.S. arms sales and American imperialism in South America. That's very big. But South America is changing. We don't control it. When the U.S. called an Organization of American States conference there this year, Biden called that. Only four countries showed up because he wouldn't allow Venezuela or Cuba or Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. So the other said, no, we're not going either. Well, and the president, the new elected president of Chile said, well, Chile say I have to have time to decide. He was diplomatic, but four countries out of the whole of South America. So our dominance there is minimal. And there is a pink tide coming in. And I hope that pink tide is a lesson because Americans are more and more disenchanted as the empire falls and as the kind of expenditures that the government is making are bizarre, that they are spending all this money with selling Ukraine arms and stopping the child tax credit, which means, you know, 40 percent of poor children will now be desperately poor and cutting out daycare. And nobody questions the 1.7 trillion benefit from the tax cut the Republicans gave. Those aren't even questioned. I mean, there's the government doesn't represent people anymore. And are you talking about the Trump tax cuts or the. Yeah. The Trump tax cuts. No, Biden isn't there questioning them. Right. People feel abandoned. He isn't appointing more people to the Supreme Court or getting the joy out of the post office or fighting for eliminating, which he could do, eliminating all community college and state school tuition, uh, which is even bigger than credit card debt now. He's not doing the things and people feel unrepresented and abandoned. The inflation rate is still over 8% and nobody gets 8% unless they're on Wall Street. Nobody gets that kind of raise, even if they fight hard. And so people feel abandoned. And if they could all get together, I think it would be a huge help to America. And there would be much less crime because people would have a social outlet for their anger instead of taking it out personally on whoever annoys them at the moment. It's a huge and powerful lesson to us of the hopefulness of unity. And 
as we have this nascent and increasingly more powerful and demanding and democratic labor movement, whether it's the Starbucks workers, 200 uh, Starbucks are now organized. Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's. The strippers now have a union and they're on strike. And, you know, it's going everywhere. Where where are the strippers on strike? Just at a Minneapolis. And many of their patrons are picketing with them. Because they didn't, you know, they were not getting any protection and the security was not supposed to come to their aid if someone was sexually inappropriate with them and so on. And they have a right to unionize too. And so, and these are, these developments are showing that everybody needs a union. Everyone who works for a living. Because really, I think Americans are realizing there's two classes in the United States. The employer class that can decide the prices and the inflation and the employee class. And almost everybody's in the employee class. And that people, I think the nascent organizing is a recognition of class. And that employees have to band together, not the gay employees separately from the straight employees and the black employees separate from the white ones. One of the exciting things about the Colombian election is the vice president was a housemaid before, as well as a brilliant organizer and candidate, and is an African-originated dark woman. And so that there is this sort of exuberant connection among the people there, which is the opposite of a kind of divided and lonely and violent environment, which we have in the U.S. at the moment. Right. right. So it's a real inspiration. You know, it's interesting. I uh, was asking Professor Adnan Hussein about this pink tide, why it's happening, because it's stunning to me that it is that the way the United States has dominated Latin America since the Monroe Doctrine. He said it started in 2002 when we took our eye off the ball, not we, the the neoliberal, fighting a global war on terror. We didn't have time to worry about what was going on in in South America. That seems... Yeah, I think that's partially true. And also, the United States, on the one hand, tests their armaments. I think a lot of these wars are basically to test the armaments. Proving ground. So we can, yeah. Yes, because you can't sell them unless they work. Right. It could show with the destruction of the most advanced country in uh, Middle East, Iraq, that you could demolish and send them back to the Stone Age. And then sell you so, weapons. So, so the Ukrainian people and the Russian soldiers are really employees of Raytheon. They're like crash test dummies. That's for right, they Motors. are. Yeah. And it started with Hiroshima, where you tested our new bomb on non-white people. You know, you're, and I think a component, no, there's no one component that determines anything human. We're all very complicated but a component that I'm only beginning to understand is the testing of the latest armaments. And I'm Mm -hmm. afraid that one of the points in the Ukraine is to push 
the Ukraine so that Russia fires a nuclear missile because they have a new anti-missile mechanism that can stop um, nuclear missiles going at the speed of light. And then they can sell them to everybody in NATO who has to buy from the United States. So that that was a factor in addition to the geopolitical uh, advantage of ruining Russia and China alliance. But I also think that BRIC has really helped that Brazil, Russia, India, and China alliance. And so that as we have sanctions against Russia for all sorts of things, India is getting their oil at a discount, uh, very happy. And so are men, so is all of Asia. But BRIC so- has moved authoritarian. We have Modi in India, right. Xi in China, Putin in Russia, absolutely. So, but it's another alliance. It's part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. Instead of invading them, helping them economically, and creating economic alliances that are not based on exploiting their labor, as the United States has been, and so that they're very powerful. Right. And. I heard the Belt and Roads Initiative is not as anodyne as it's billed. That they that they like the IMF, that there there's high interest rates, there are strings attached to all that money. Have you I don't know. I really don't know at that kind of detail about it. Right. But I know that they are spreading it all out and it's very welcome. Right. I don't know if they're bankrupting governments the way the IMF I don't does. think they are requiring yeah. the kind of draconian austerity right. that the United States and the right. IMF requires. And I'm sure the IMF is paying uh, economists to write papers about how exorbitant the interest rates are uh, when China gives money. Right. And all these countries were developed in such a way that the railroads only take their resources out to the country that's exploiting them. And so right. they need crisscrossing railways between the countries and around the countries themselves, like China has now 12 high-speed railways whizzing around China because, you know, they're a technologically advanced society. But I think that there are now alternatives to the United States. We are no longer the most powerful. We have the most armaments, but um, our GDP gross domestic product we create is 21 trillion, I think. And China's is 15 trillion and it's getting on up there. And their growth rate is more than twice ours. We have like 2% growth every year and that's considered... That's very good. During the recession, we had minus something, minus one or something. But 2% is nothing great. No, it is not great compared to China's usual 8%. That's not great. And they have a new initiative. They've already taken 880 million people out of extreme poverty. And they have the new slogan is common prosperity. I think what they're trying to do for their people is what the U.S. had in the 50s. Be an example of what you can do if you empower your people economically. Right. Warren G. in the chat room wrote, and he's absolutely right, 
we need less growth or we need to change the yardstick. We need to measure economic success differently. As Bobby Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy famously said, uh, the GDP measures everything except what makes life worth living. I mean, it really, who gets to decide what constitutes economic success? What, well, not starving is a big one. Yeah, right, exactly. And not, not being what the mass of Americans is what they call Alice, assets limited, income constrained, right. employed. Japan, not, Japan has been in a recession off and on for 30 years. Right. But I'll take the way they live over the way Americans live anytime. And they have longer lives. Yeah. And healthier ones. We're the only advanced country with no public health care and child care. And the quality of life I mean, is how people feel about their lives, what they can do, what they can't do. And China is very authoritarian. But if you have everything is the market and people think the market is this force of nature, it isn't. It's what people can get away with charging. <laughs> right. And so when there's a scarcity and you trust the market, you trust that the people with the money will get the stuff and not anybody who doesn't have it. Right. And that's all that the market does. It's a shitty way to organize things. Yes. Just yes. whoever has the money. And because then people who've gotten it, no matter how horribly they acquired it, decide. The free market, my, by my calculations, 30% <coughs> of the economy is what the government spends. When you add up state, local, federal spending, it, it, it's 30% of our GDP. So there's no such thing as a free market. The, the, if, if there's a government that's controlling spending... And who gets what? Yeah. Although the government doesn't control spending, the government is lobbied to the point where right. the corporations control right. spending. And that's why, you know, we have the one area America is dominant in the world is military. Right. And they, they didn't change the federal minimum wage. My God, if you work at McDonald's in in uh, Denmark, you make $24 an hour as the right. basic wage. And you have free daycare and education. I mean, it's obscene. And I don't see McDonald's do. pulling out of Denmark. It's not like... Oh, no, they're can... making money. Of course. of course. They're making money. And they're, you know, just like they're making money at Chipotle. And they had to raise their workers' wages to over $20 an hour because of the strikes... Still you know, no union. Still make money. Still no union. Chip, Chipotle. No, they bought them off. You know, even at 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 uh, Trader Joe's in New York, they just gave people much better benefits because they're organizing right. elsewhere to sort of cut that off. I don't know if you read today, but the rats at Chipotle are now reunionizing, and, and the listeria <laughs> that you get, and the E. coli at Wendy's is organizing. Yeah, well, they're very powerful organizations. Yeah. You, yeah. If you eat at Wendy's, you get E. coli. Yeah, if you eat at Chipotle, last year they had that big scare of E. coli. Well, it wasn't, so, it wasn't a scare. It, 
I like doing this on our show, Dr. Fraud, because you can't hear the truth about fast food restaurants anywhere else because we don't have advisors, uh, ad advertisers. Right. So I love telling the truth about the E. coli that you catch at Wendy's and uh, right. all the listeria that That's you catch right. at, at Chipotle, however you pronounce it. Chipotle. Well, yeah. they took pictures. One of the things that got Taco Bell in trouble in New York is people photograph the rats coming down from the ceiling when Chipotle cl closed. Not yeah, when Ch Chipotle closed. Or no, no, that was Taco Bell. Taco right. Bell. But oh, these are disgusting places. And Starbucks pays Guatemalan kids sixty cents a day to not to go to school to pick beans. But right. they're all about community, and it's a, yeah. It's except a when people organize a, a union, yeah. and then they get caught firing the people. They just had to rehire the uh, union organizer. I think it was, that was Minneapolis too. I'm not sure, right. but they fired him right? because he led the walkout and all the other workers walked out too, because he was a prime union organizer and he had always been touted as an excellent work worker, sort of like right. Chris Smalls at Amazon. Right. The CEO of Starbucks is Schultz. Yes. And pretending to be a big liberal. Yeah. But people should know his name. Yes, they should certainly it's, know his name. His name is Schultz. He thinks he's a liberal and it's all about community. He does not recognize the government of the United States. There are Buffalo the voted to go. Laws. That's he will right. not negotiate with the NLRB. He will not recognize the, the government of the United States. That's Starbucks. So <clears throat> it's un American. Totally. To get coffee from Starbucks. They voted to go union. Mr. Schultz, the CEO, billionaire, refuses to negotiate. He hates America. Starbucks hates totally. America. It does. So, and their workers are organizing like hotcakes, you know, 200 Starbucks are now organized, even though he's firing people. Is it wrong to throw at the right the same verbal gymnastics they use on us, like accusing them of being un-American, accusing them? It's fine. They are un-American. Yeah. You know, nothing's more American than trying to invade the Capitol. That's yeah. treason. And I always think of how communists were deported and jailed because they thought just being a communist meant you were thinking of violent overthrow of the government, and even though they didn't try to overthrow anything. And these people actually tried to overthrow the government. Right. And they're getting months or a, right. a year or something. This is treason. Right. Right. It's amazing. I am deprogramming a Trump supporter. Good for you. I'm, I'm doing it through inquisition. It's fascinating. There's... As a psychologist, I, I, I just wanted to tell you this because you're a psychologist. There is somebody I know, I'll never reveal he or she, where they're from, but the, I, uh, but this is a person who I was once friendly with. This person disappeared, came back to me looking for a fight about Trump. And first I said to this person via text, oh, you, I, I vote for Trump. I love Trump. <laughs> I, I completely yeah, disarmed him. Disarmed. I agree <laughs> with you 100%. Right. 
And then it was game on. I didn't give them, I didn't give them the fight. I, I don't want, and I said, will you stand up under questioning? Can you endure my inquisition? Uh-huh. Defend who you are and what you believe without, and do it in writing. This person has agreed to it. It's fascinating. Because it, it's in writing, and you ask these, do you believe that our founding fathers, that Christ wrote the Constitution? Just <laughs> I have these building blocks. Do you believe Jesus wrote the Constitution? Do you believe we're a Christian nation? Do you believe that there should be supremacy of the Judeo-Christian teachings over all other religions just going through and you get them to check all these boxes do you believe in abortion i believe it's a state's rights thing i said not good enough this is an inquisition do you believe in abortion do you believe in same-sex marriage i think it's a state's rights thing F states' rights, yes or no, do you believe? You're not the states' rights, right. And you get them to check off these boxes, and it deep. I believe it. this is going to succeed in deprogramming an otherwise liberal-minded, good person who, for reasons unbeknownst to me, has some kind of rage that's being fueled by... Fox News and is twisting this person's brain. Get them to check the boxes. It's a good idea. You know, once I had a conversation with a guest of a friend of mine in Montreal, we spent about three hours taking walks and talking. By the time we finished, he stopped hating foreigners just because I asked him about it. What were all the things he didn't like and why and how did it make him feel and so on? People have a lot of free floating rage. Right. They do listen to a lot of fake news. That's right. There's a lot the New York Times won't report about and twist. Right. And there's a lot of lies and people are being routinely cheated, not by uppity women and black people and refugees, but by the corporations who took their jobs elsewhere to make more money and their rights are disappearing and they don't have much say in the government. And they have a right to be angry, but and Trump captures that anger. But if you interrogate the anger, then people can let it go. Yeah, it's an interesting exercise. I'm almost tempted to invite this person on the show anonymously and kind of do have this person talk like I guess I'm a Trump <laughs> supporter. And yeah. and because how do I get rid of this? There we go. There are a hundred boxes to check where you sit down with the person, say, here are a hundred problems, income inequality, same, you know, uh, uh, Israel, whatever. And you just have this person go through and prioritize and discover that they are being confused and manipulated. We have to wrap it up. Uh, It would be an interest. I'm almost tempted to get a, to deprogram a Trump person on this show, but you, it has to be an inquisition, not a- But not it probably works better with an interpersonal interchange. I know that interventions with violent people work much better when you're there personally looking in their eyes or they're personally connecting with them. 
because you're by your very personal connection, you're deprogramming some of that hate. So right. I don't think it would work with an audience. I, I think an inquisition. I, I, I'm a big supporter of the inquisition. <laughs> the Catholic Church never got rid of it, from what I understand. It's still no, good. no, uh, that's uh, the last Polish pope before that used to be the head of the uh, what was before that the Inquisition Committee. I think people need to sit down and defend themselves, and it, it, that's the problem in America. People aren't don't have to submit to an Inquisition. Also, people are never heard. And if someone's listening and asks and listens, then it elicits a kind of personal response that allows people to question rather than just dismiss. I want to do a show called The Inquisition. That would be fine. I we're think that would be very interesting. And I said yes or no, yes or no, or pass. Uh-huh. That's it. And we're taping yeah. this. We're taping. This isn't live, like Meet the Press, where you can play out the clock. Yeah. I'm taping this, and then we're going to, you want to, you're going to answer my effing questions. Dr. Harriet Fred, we love you, everybody. Thank you. And the other people on Montport, the podcast, it's not just in your head, are <clears throat> Ikoi Hiro and um, Liam. He likes to use that name. Okay, so... Thank you, everyone. Thank and you. And I love the show. And I didn't put Vaseline on the lens. I don't even know where it is. <laughs> That's what they used to do with Lucille Ball in Here's yeah. Lucy. That was, yeah. No, uh, I'm, I, don't, I don't know what's wrong. I'm not very good on computers. So I'll ask my brilliant son-in-law. We love At you. At any rate, thank you. We love you. you. Enjoy, the, enjoy your, the, 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 the summer. The, the remaining, is it my Thank imagination, do the bullfrogs and the crickets get louder as summer comes to an end? I don't know, but that's, it's like, it's a, I don't know. I but they're wonderfully, I'm in the country now and it, everything is incredibly silent. Yeah, I've I, uh, been in New and Jersey. And tree frogs. I called the... Uh, police to complain about the tree frogs and the crickets it was like it was not sure, after nine them all with a nightstick <laughs> well it was after nine problem. o'clock i'm trying to <laughs> read here and these crickets will not seriously it's really uh okay thank you dr fraud follow dr fraud on uh twitter at harriet fraud and uh doc- I'm not on twitter i'm not on twitter good but good reach me at hfraud at gmail.com if you want to. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank bye you. Bye-bye. Thank you. We're bye. running 10 minutes behind. I want to alert the affiliates, as Ted Koppel used to say. We're running 10 minutes behind. Coming up is Professor Adnan Hussein. Let's play some music from Professor Mike Steinel. This is a good show. This is turning out to be a great show. A little controversy, stuff like that. We'll be back with uh, Professor Adnan Hussein. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. 
As long as I stay healthy and I never die Fifteen bucks an hour Five days a week Fifty-two weeks a year And thirty-two thousand years I know it's a long time, honey To thirty-four thousand and twenty But when I get there, babe I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way To be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan to get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die All I really need Is a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots And join that elite herd Of the 600 billionaires In the USA Who make more in a second Than I do in a day I'm on my way Yes I am I'm on my way I'm on my way Oh yes I am That is the great, the great Professor Mike Steinell, who will be joining us in about an hour and a half. Joining us, I think, from Canada is, no, he's still in Canada. Yeah, yeah, you're still in Canada. Professor Adnan Hussein, who has submitted to an inquisition a little later on at the end of his segment. We're running 10 minutes behind. I want to alert our affiliates, but you have agreed to be humiliated by quiz. I guess so. Um, I did put out a call in the chat to which nobody responded. I noted that there are other panelists and seeking solidarity. I said, does anybody want to be on this uh, quiz with me? You know, that way I don't have to be humiliated alone. No, it's all about the humiliation. (laughs) Let me take care. You know, misery loves company. So that's the name of my show. Hey, um, I thought it was the Inquisition, which I think would be a great name for a show. Well, you know, you've got the factor, mm-hmm. you know, you've got this, that, the Inquisition. At least then the guests know what they're getting into and they won't be surprised, you know. Before you know, we discuss great idea. The, before we discuss the Inquisition, I have my mother's car. It is the 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 traditional little old lady used car that you want to buy. She only drove it on Sunday. It has 12,000 miles on it. Mm. And I live in New York. I'm ashamed to say this because, and my son is going to kill me. I love driving this car. I, I, it, I am so, and the open road, I listen, Leslie and I are, 
trying to get out of the city as much as possible. It's right. It's, and, 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 and you, you put in a, your, your favorite eight track <laughs> and you head out on the highway. <laughs> I'm voting looking for, for looking for adventure, <laughs> whatever comes my way. Exactly. Uh, I'm vote. I'm all in on Trump and oil comp. No, but so two, a week from tomorrow, you're going to be in our, but I can meet you yeah. halfway. Yeah. If you, well, that would be really exciting yeah. uh, to meet up. And, we could do it in Connecticut if you want to get out yeah, uh, on the yeah, highway and get out yeah. of the city. And but you have to see me parallel park. This is I, in in Connecticut. You, you may find that there are not as many places where you have to. Well, you uh, have to get two ca- position two cows, and I will without even hurting them. Uh, Professor Adnan Hussein is the host of co-host of Gorilla History with Henry Huckamaki, who I miss. And you also host the Mudgeless podcast. We'll find out who the guests are. You just had Noam Chomsky on. Uh, and uh, obviously, that's what everybody should uh, listen to. Uh, the Inquisition. What, what, how is it possible that the Office of the Inquisition, is it still open? And how do I get that job? That seems like a good sinecure for my retirement. Well, you should ask uh, the former or maybe now the current uh, Joseph Ratzinger right. uh, um, about the job, because essentially uh, he presided over uh, what survives as the Office of Inquisition. They did a rebranding um, and decided that... Um, Inquisition was a little too uh, tainted by medieval history of persecution of conversos, that is, Jews who had been forcibly converted, uh, moriscos, that is, Moors or Muslims who had been forcibly converted, heretics. I mean, basically, they were regarded as heretics. And, uh, you know, sodomites, you know, basically, it was an arm of enforcing you know, a draconian, you know, rule of conformity, right? Um, so they changed that to, I believe, the name of the office of the institution. And they would, of course, say that it's completely different and it's nothing like the Inquisition, but it's something like the Office for the Propaganda, you know, Propagation of the Faith. Um, and they still do have offices that read everything um, possible. So this is maybe welfare for Catholic academics, Catholic theologians. They read everything being published in seminaries and theological schools, and particularly, of course, within universities that offer degrees in Catholic theology, um, and make sure that they conform to orthodoxy. And uh, I actually had met a scholar who was very proud of the fact that um, his book on some topic related to Christology, you know, the nature of Christ or something, had been condemned by this office um, as heretical, you know, a sort of a, a little badge of honor. But so um, even if the Inquisition, that is um, the collaboration uh, between well, the way the Inquisition worked is that the church itself didn't operate like the forcible arrest and torture of, um, 
you know, of suspects. What they did is they collaborated with the secular arm that has established political authorities um, who did sort of the, you know, uh, you know, confining capture and the torture, but under instruction uh, using, you know, the expertise uh, that the church had developed in ferreting out dissent, heretical practices, folk religious, pagan survivals, as well as uh, people who had not fully converted. These large scale populations were forcibly converted en masse. And then they ended up, uh, you know, recognizing and acknowledging that forcibly converting whole, you know, thousands and thousands of people wasn't going to lead to them all becoming sincere mm-hmm. orthodox you know so if you uh, didn't Catholics. what happened if you didn't convert well if you didn't convert um you you know it was basically a state of war so you could be you know killed if you were captured you're enslaved um and you could be also expelled and deported essentially um, and this is kind of unique, actually, if you think of it. In the pre-modern period, you do not find states, empires, as repressive as they may have been, as unjust and, you know, um, y- y- you know, cruel as they may have been. You don't find cases where whole categories of populations are expelled from the domains of of, of a ruler. I mean, they may transfer populations around. Like, you know, if they want to build a new city and have a huge infrastructure project or there's been a rebellion, they may move these people or some group of the population to another place uh, where they can be better managed and controlled and so on. But you wouldn't find them expelling them. And this is partly because labor power was so necessary and so important. It was a resource that you couldn't really afford to do without. So it's really quite atypical that despite the economic value of populations, particularly say the Moriscos as a peasantry in Valencia, up, you know, although Valencia was conquered in the middle of the 13th century, there persists a majority Muslim population in what was called the Kingdom of Valencia in today's Spain until the 16th century. You know, for several hundred years, you have Muslims living under Catholic lords in a Catholic ruled society. And the reason why that happened is because you couldn't do without their labor on the land. They knew how to grow the food. You couldn't bring in enough people to replace them. It was quite difficult to do so. So it's really quite um, interesting and ideologically and culturally and historically important to recognize that something happens in Spain where despite the economic value of these subject populations, they decide they are unassimilable and they need to be expelled. So whether it was Jews who refused to uh, convert, they were expelled or the Moriscos after their forcible conversion, they were expelled starting you know, around the end of the 16th century in the first few years of the 17th century, particularly from 1609 to 1614, hundreds of thousands of people who had been converted to Christianity from the descendants of Muslim populations in Spain who had suffered through uh, Arabic being outlawed, cultural practices, even their typical regional music being outlawed, going to the bathhouse being outlawed, uh, women decorating their skin with henna, you know, like those sort of temporary tattoo type 
decorations that was outlawed. They, you know, um, had gone through this whole cultural suppression as well as religious, uh, you know, conversion. But nonetheless, Spain decides we cannot keep this population. They're too incompatible. And so they persecute them, seize their goods, expelled them. And in many cases, kept their children who were under the age of 10 um, while expelling the parents and older siblings, because that was seen as possibly a, an, a, 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 an assimilable population at that age. Right. And that's really quite a remarkable turn in the history of the Mediterranean. You don't find populations being expelled in that way. Right. In the North, you had the Reformation. Was there an Inquisition for Protestants? Well, uh, you know, there were religious wars, you know, when right. it came to Protestants. So some people think that the witchcraft trials, um, you know, the witchcraft uh, scares were basically, there's a lot of historical theories. On some level, perhaps it's inexplicable. But those who have analyzed it, one theory that they've put forward is that these were um, areas that had been contested, mixed Catholic Protestant populations, and that at a certain point, there had been an effort to make uniform these territories because this was the problem is how could you have a Catholic king over Protestant subjects? How could you have a Protestant, you know, ruler over Catholic subjects? And in order to uh, stabilize the situation, because it led to this period of intense wars of religion. So when we talk about the Reformation and sometimes they say, oh, Islam needs a Reformation. It's like, thank you. No, I mean, this is the most violent, you know, process that we can imagine. Wasn't Bin Laden kind of the Reformation? Wasn't that was a a, a Wahhabism is considered a form of Reformation in that it's a stricter version of the. That's well, I mean, that's some people do make analogies to the Salafist orientation of Islam that. Uh, kind of rejected the established uh, schools or orientations of Islamic law, also aspects of popular folk religion that had developed where you went to shrines and you believed in, you know, the, you know, intercessory power of holy, you know, figures kind of like saints. People have seen that there were some analogies to that medieval form and early modern form of Islam that looks a little bit like Catholicism in that it is interwoven in the structure of society in this fashion. And that this reformist, you might say, puritanical, let's get back to just the texts, you know, um, like is, is a little bit like the sola scriptura turn of the Protestants to say we don't need all of this canon law and all of these uh, priestly theologians who have made doctrine, what we want is to get back to the Bible itself, sola scriptura, you know, and faith rather than, you know, all of the works because there were abuses. And, uh, you know, in some ways, actually, all of the um, practices that were held to be salvific, that is that a priest has to perform certain things if you're going to be saved, you know, you have to be baptized. You have to, it all. You have to uh, be confirmed. Marriage is, uh, is constructed as a sacrament. Last rites. All of these things require uh, a priest to perform them. Not any. No one else can do it. No one has that salvific 
role. And of course, this put a lot of control and in the hierarchy of the church, there were lots of opportunities for abuse because of confession and penance. And this is also one of the critiques actually of the Protestants was the abuse of the crusader plenary indulgence. That is the politicization and economic exploitation of the sale of indulgences that would allow you to be forgiven for your sins. These originally developed out of crusader vows that you wow. took the cross so that you would have your sins all remitted and forgiven. And, but then it started happening that, well, if you can't go, you could pay for someone to go and still get the plenary indulgence. Or if you can't go, you could donate. And the that just led fund. very closely to just a market essentially for these, you know, saving indulgences. So that, you know, Protestants were against this kind of system of exploiting you know, religious salvation in this fashion. And that's somewhat similar in some ways to the reforms that took place in like the 18th century and the 19th century in the Islamic world, where especially as a result of colonialism, uh, encounter with these new technological advancements, Muslim societies felt that we need some kind of change. And they decided, much like the Orientalists who blamed, you know, Islam being calcified for all of the failures of these societies, that likewise, these reformers sort of believed the same, you know, idea mm -hmm. that, well, it's because we've had, you know, this um, inauthentic form of Islam with all of these accretions from the original pure tradition. Let's go back to this pure tradition. We'll only read the original texts and we'll reconstruct a form of Islam that's compatible with modernity as part of some revitalization of society. So it's similar that these processes of reformation are, you know, very kind of like, uh, uh, um, uh, disruptive, you might say, of the traditional rhythms of society. Um, so they're very, they can be quite radical moments. And this certainly was in Europe. I mean, right. in Europe, it was a bloodbath, really. I mean, between the Catholics and the Protestants in the 16th, uh, 15th, 16th and 17th centuries. I, I want to ask you about Pakistan, but I, I, I also, but I want to ask you two things. One is about when the Crusades ended or if they ever mm -hmm. ended. Today. Have they? OK, have they that's ended? a question. Right. <laughs> no. have they, well, have they ended? Like, well, I mean, of course, I would argue. Well, here I'm, you know, I'm working on a on a on a book uh, that, you know, will argue for the continuing relevance of what happens when you transform a society into a crusading society in particular. Um, is that, of course, they they technically the Latin Crusader kingdoms fell in 1291 with the defeat of the last enclave in what is today Akka, Acre, it, it was called. Um, and um, after that, subsequently, there were ca calls for a renewed crusade to recapture Jerusalem. So over the years, there have been renewed calls at different times, different attempts to, to recapture it. Um, so in some ways, you could say it has a much longer history than 1095 to 1291, which is the, you know, kind of narrow historic uh, historical period of the Crusades. Well, look who's looming over Professor Adnan Hussein. Uh-oh. It's uh -oh. time. He sounds Dan scared. He sounds scared. <laughs> it's time for the Inquisition. What a show. <laughs>
quiz master Dan Frankenberger joins us and he's got some questions. Let me put some uh, money in the kitty. And it's time to humiliate Professor Adnan Hussein. Hey, is your son going to be around? Yeah, he'll be with us uh, oh, in I, Connecticut. Good. I, yeah. I, I'd like, there's a great pic. I, I don't want to mean to embarrass you, but there's a great picture before we start uh, of you. I think he either graduated or something, and he's taller than you. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. And you have this <laughs> look on your face of. <laughs> And it reminds me of when I used to pose with mice. It's a befuddlement. It's like. How did this all happen? How did this all happen? <laughs> I feel kind of good. Like I'm, but scared. Like, where is this leading to? <laughs> I'm at his, it's a, a seesaw and it's flipped. The power dynamic is slowly, slowly shifting it. And you, I could see in your eyes you were accepting that this is what's going to happen, but I'm getting old. But not completely resolved <laughs> that it's the best thing. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, exactly. Like you got to accept it, but there are qualms. You've got you got to harbor some qualms, I think. Yeah. And he looks like the kind of kid who is going to go through the motions of paying you respect in a very passive aggressive way going to uh, we're way beyond that at this point your prediction is a description of the past <laughs> i i saw i said i gotta meet this guy he reminds me of my son all right this is gonna get ugly now this is this is ugly and you're so it's a blood sport it, i heard oh my, that uh, yeah it's gonna get worse and a blood sport. Uh, well, speaking of money in the kitty, uh, this episode of Stump the Hump is brought to us by two super chats. Oh, thank uh, you for that. Yeah, we have uh, Randall Hayes who made a donation. He says, "Let's get David to onto President Trump. Uh, let's get on David to get President Trump back on the show to tell us about the search warrant and the upcoming upcoming midterms." Uh, Donald Tr uh, Smigel had an idea to to come on. And then he got busy. He had a great idea. Well, Randall Hayes is thinking you, about Randall. it. Okay. And then we have a MIDI doctor um, who says fighting sports have a role in society based on notions of meritocracy. And to think that it does not have a role in supporting capitalism is delusional. Okay. So that sounds like a, in support of your argument from or earlier. Not. And uh, for this quiz on August 25th, 1939, this movie will become one of the best loved movies in history and opens in theaters around the United States. The American musical fantasy film adaptation of Frank Baum's book premieres at uh, Grom's Chinese Theater Hollywood, directed by Victor Fleming and King Vidor, featuring I, uh, Judy Garland, Ray Bulger, Jack Haley, Burt Lahr, Frank Morgan, Billy Burke, Margaret Hamilton, and songs by Arlen and Yip Harburg. And today's quiz is on... One of the, I think the best movie, I took my kids to see it at Grauman's about 20 years ago. I didn't know how it would hold up and I watched it with my kids and I thought you could play this a thousand years from now. It, it, Professor Hussein, do you agree? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I haven't seen it for some years, but I did see it as an adult uh, and was impressed that it still was pretty riveting and interesting. 
and that maybe there were dimensions that com- I completely missed right. as a child that made it, you know, very psychologically and socially, uh, you know, significant. Were you ter- as a kid, my sister and I would, we knew we had to watch The Wizard of Oz because we wanted to. It was, it would be on CBS and we knew it was going to scare us. Did it scare you the way it scared yeah, I don't really like horror movies. I'm not like into that. This is a great one, but it did really. The Wicked Witch just was so incredibly frightening. The scenes of Dorothy at her castle and the gargoyles and oh, right. just absolutely terrifying. It it I personally think like I I don't watch it the way I'll watch Goodfellas and The Godfather. Uh, Goodfellas is a masterpiece. Goodfellas just gets every time you watch. But in terms of what is like a classic piece of literature for the ages, it's The Wizard of Oz. Okay, all that nice stuff. Now it's let's get to work here and uh, let's hang on. Just warming. That's a sound you're not going to hear, Professor Hussein. Get used to this. It's the last time you're going to hear that. Make friends with... That's going to be you. Okay. Well, we have uh, six questions tonight, and uh, Professor Hussein is first. What did the Wizard of Oz give the Scarecrow a degree in? Was it thinkology, mindology, brainology, or a straw nummy? <laughs> um, gosh, I'm thinking either thinkology or brainology. Um, I'm going to say because, uh, he says, if I only had a brain that maybe it was brainology. Well, here's my strategy. And this is why I'm going to beat you. I don't know the answer to that question. So what you do is you agree. So you (laughs) don't get one up on me because I don't know the answer. So I'm going to agree. The correct answer is thinkology. You're both wrong. So I get one point because I'm the host and Professor Hussein gets negative one. So I'm winning. David, you're first on this one. Question number two. What did the scarecrow in Tin Man use as a crown for the lion in the King of the Forest number? Was it a broken box, a real crown, a flower pot, or Aunt EM's girdle? (laughs) I'm going to say flower pot. So besides the girdle, there was a flower pot. There was a broken box and a real crown. Yeah, I guess I have to go with flower pot. Now I'm going to try. I'm going to guess that I think there's a part of me that wants to say a real crown, but I'm going to stick with my answer. Well, Professor Hussein is stealing your uh, tactic, your strategy here. Yeah, the correct answer is a flower pot. You're both right. We are, we are tied. Well, that means I'm at negative two. We are tied. Uh, I have five points and Professor Hussein has zero. We're tied at zero, zero. The question here uh, to answer first is Professor Hussein. Why did Miss Gulch want to take Toto away? Was it she wanted him for herself? She said he bit her. 
she wanted to sell him for money or he called her a cunt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my version of the thought bubbles. So I'm not sure about the last answer. Uh, It's plausible. Um, But I think it was she claimed. uh, I don't know. I wanted to say claimed it bit her, but that's not really much sociopolitical. Uh, and I have a feeling the film had a little bit of that. So I'll go with the, you know, uh, wanted to make money. Uh, Mr. Feldman, by the way, if you're going to go with the C word, you have to go all the way. The worst. I went hard. I went hard. You, on you, it. Yeah. You can't do, you can't say number four. Uh, no, but I'm saying you can't like, you just got to go all in on the word and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, got to bark it out. Yeah. I would say, uh, she accused the dog of biting her. The correct answer is she said he bit her. Why I knew that? You know how I know that answer? Why is that? I get I get the answers before the show starts. That's right. But my memory my memory is pretty good that I remember <laughs> that you gave me that answer. No, I I actually remembered that, believe it or not. And I am. Be, are you competitive, Professor Hussein? Uh, probably not on Wizard of Oz, but maybe in other things. Did, Film history, I don't. I know I don't know that much, so right. I don't get too worried. We're not going to reveal like a side of you that's. Get me on to sports, which I know you're not interested in, right. but maybe I, you know, Jason, you know, is big into sports. I might, you know, about sports trivia. Okay. And who's the best this or that? I might get, you know, aggressive. You know, okay. that would be fun. All right. So here's I, question number four. It's 908. So we got to move it along. Okay. Uh, David, you're first on this one at the end. When the Wicked Witch was melting, she shouted, Who'd have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful blank? Was it wickedness, plans, nose, or hot green body? (laughs) Margaret Hamilton. She she used to do commercials for Maxwell House, I remember. Uh, Who'd have thought a good little girl like you could destroy my beautiful blank? Give me the choices again. Wickedness, plans, nose, or hot green body? I'm going to say plans just because that feels right. I'm going to go for wickedness. Why not? The correct answer is wickedness. When I get, I, I, this is the inside of my brain when I'm losing. Dorothy threw a pail of water into the air to try to put out the flames on the scarecrow, but accidentally splashed the witch, and the witch started to melt, shouting things. Yes. So we have two questions left. Uh, this is number five, and Professor Hussein is first. How did the scarecrow, the lion, and the tin man get inside the witch's castle to save Dorothy? By the way, we're tied 1-1. Was it the lion distracted the guards and they snuck in? Was it they dressed up as guards? 
Glinda the Good Witch used her magic to get them in, or they drove a sleigh pulled by flying monkeys on Christmas Eve. Um, I'm thinking they dressed up as uh, guards. I'm going to agree. The correct answer is they dressed up as guards. It's tied. It is tied two to two. And here's the last question. And David, you're first. Okay. I, I hope I'm not humiliating you, Professor Hussein. Just with my. Well, I, it's it's amazing how much one can not notice about a film you've seen a few times. Yes, this is this is why <laughs> the, the quiz master is so good. We're tied, what, but I'm. Winning. What were Auntie M and Uncle I'm Henry start doing? Again, please. Start again. Yep. What were Auntie M and Uncle Henry doing in the beginning of the movie when Dorothy approached them? Front. Were they f- fixing the wagon? <laughs> hang on, hang on. Sorry. Oh no. All right, hang on. Now you already. Okay, go ahead. You're going to be a filthy pig. What were Auntie N and Uncle Henry doing in the beginning of the movie when Dorothy approached them? Fixing the wagon, feeding the pigs, taking chicks out of the coop, or making a private film? (laughs) (laughs) You're first, David. I think fixing the wagon. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was fixing the wagon. The correct answer is taking chicks out of the coop. Oh, that was the when name, Dorothy was when the Dorothy ran home to tell Auntie M and Uncle Henry that Mrs. Gulch wanted to take Toto away. She found them busy and a little grumpy because they were having a problem with their chicks and they thought they would lose a lot of them. Mm. Hmm. Somebody was fixing a wagon, weren't they? Yeah. Maybe the hands. Yeah. The farm I, hands. I, I think it might have been the um, the circus oh, no, master guy. That's right. Yes, that's right. The guy who sold elixirs and things. Frank his, Morgan. His thing broke down. Yes. Okay. That's the wizard. Was. He was the the grand wizard. Yes. Who that's burnt right. the the cross on Bert Lars lawn? Go ahead. Is that it? It's tied. that's it. That was question number six. It's tied. Well, Professor Adnan Hussein, the tie. So so sorry. Yes, so sorry. The tie goes to me. (laughs) But you do. Vegas rules, right? So (laughs) the dealer wins the ties. But you do get a parting gift. Harvey J.K. and David Feldman will be hiding in your home in Canada uh, until things settle down here in the United (laughs) States. Enjoy. Welcome. That would have been a good sitcom. Harvey J.K. and David Feldman living, hiding uh, in Canada. Thank you, Professor Adnan. Thank you. Thanks, Uh, Dan. uh, Good night. Who's on the Mudgeless podcast? Oh, um, well, we're still, uh, I don't have a guest lined up. We're still working on the uh, Muhammad Abdu uh, anor- Islam and Anarchism uh, episode. So Jackie, the joke I, man's available. Oh, that's great. I, you know, um, I don't know if he has any appropriately themed jokes, actually. You know, he has uh, got a library of jokes. I, I wonder, does he have any like, uh, you know, Muslim jokes? He's got to. He's right? got to. I have to call him. I miss him. I do. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that sometime soon. Thank you. And everybody should 
listen to Gorilla History and your Twitter hand. Do you you're on Twitter? Yeah, I do. Yeah, at Adnan A Hussein H U S A I N. Fantastic. Thank you, Thank sir. You. I'll see you a week see from you tomorrow. Soon. Uh, Peter B. Collins joins us. Give a plug for Rahima.org, please. Rahima.org is the website of the Rahima Foundation in San Jose, California, that was founded by the parents of uh, Professor Adnan Hussein. And they support, have supported waves of immigrants to the Silicon Valley area uh, for many years. And I learned about them earlier this year when Adnan and his sister, um, I think they're twins because they have the same birthday, uh, they uh, were raising money for Rahima. And the more I looked into it, the more compelling I felt it is, particularly uh, I was telling a friend over the weekend to watch Ai Weiwei's documentary called Human Flow. It's now five years old. And at that time, there were 60 million refugees, displaced people internally and externally from their homelands uh, worldwide. And uh, it's really hard to know right now, but the number is easily above 75 million now and could be approaching 80 million. And uh, this is, uh, you know, one year since we left so many people behind in Afghanistan. And while I certainly supported the exit, uh, it was very badly managed and really thousands of people who risked their lives to support our misguided presence in Afghanistan were left to fend for themselves. And uh, we still have done very little uh, to try to find a way out, either through negotiation or through subterfuge. And so we do have uh, the, the media is not covering it anymore, but thousands of Afghans have uh, come to our country uh, in the past year. And we're doing uh, darn little to uh, help them integrate, to give them the kind of support that they need to uh, transition to a new culture. And uh, so I think that uh, Rahima does very important work, David. I agree with you. And it's a great way to thank uh, Professor Hussein and uh, to treat yourself to the the thrill of doing something good. It, it is a, I guess the word, I don't want to say indulgence, but it's a great way to feel good uh, and knowing that it's going to where it belongs. It's rahima.org and all the proceeds go to helping by the way and the food it's healthy food it's mm -hmm. it's yogurt beans it's they're that you know a, a pound of beans you can live on a pound of beans for three days with some rice and some vegetables and uh, you don't need that's your protein the beans are your protein so mm -hmm. uh, I have the address on the screen, Rahima, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. Indulge me for, for one second. I don't want you to answer this question. But occasionally when you're on the show, it looks, and this is, I'm going to invite the chat room, there, there, it looks like you're fishing. 
There, there, it looks like you haven't. <laughs> so I don't. But don't answer the question. I, 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 I never. I never want to know what the answer is. It, it, there is a, a tubular-looking thing that goes in and out of the shot. It, it could be you're you're an archer and you're firing down it. But I. I don't can, can we have Dan referee this? I might be able to make some money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you if you're in our chat room, feel free to guess what is this thing that's sort of bouncing up and down to the left of the screen with Peter B. Collins. And I don't think you should reveal what it is for a while. I think this should be in one of the great questions because I have no idea. Dan, you want to venture a guess? I think he's caning a wrongdoer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, the the Catholic Church gets tax exempt status in America. Are they using their tax exempt status for politics? Are they allowed to? The Johnson rule? Mm, yes, they are. And David, I, I want to just reference that uh, I appreciate the deep knowledge that Professor Hussein shares about Islam. I, I don't have any degree in theology. I'm just a recovering Catholic. And so uh, what I'm about to talk about is informed by my own experiences and views. I was raised a Catholic uh, by my parents. I went to Catholic schools, including a Jesuit high school. So I, I was fully inculcated um, by the Roman Catholic Church. But before I, I dive into what is going to be a blistering critique, I want to do something that's very unusual for me, because Dan Frankenberger's use of a, a certain word uh, jogged my memory. Canaan. And over the week, uh, yeah, over the weekend, I was... Uh, uh, drinking with some guys who like to tell, you know, jokes that have been in circulation for a long time. And this one uh, I laughed at. So uh, the Pope is on a long flight to some far flung part of the church's territory. He's passing the time by doing a crossword puzzle and uh, he's doing pretty well. And then he gets stuck. And so he turns to the Archbishop, who's sitting next to him, and he says, look, I got three of the four letters here, and the clue is a four-letter word that refers to a woman. <laughs> so he asks the Archbishop, what four-letter word ends in U-N-T? <laughs> and the Archbishop grabs his rosary and is you know, fingering it uh, nervously, and he thinks really hard because, you know, English isn't his first language. And he says, well, your holiness, try the letter A, <laughs> ant. <laughs> and the Pope said, oh, that's such a relief. Do you have an eraser? <laughs> I love that joke. I love that joke. That's, that's one of the best. The other one is, and she's got to have a big tits. <laughs> Remember that one? With I do. The yeah. Pope. There was also when the Pope made his first visit to uh, the U.S., he actually flew on Alitalia. But for the purpose of the joke, 
Uh, it was said that he had flown on TWA, an airline that no longer uh, is in existence, right. and that the uh, letters on the tail stood for Top Wop Aboard. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So now that we've softened up the Catholics with a little papal humor, um, I was really troubled by an opinion piece that was in the Sunday Times a week ago, written by Julia Yost. I don't know her, but she's the senior editor at First Things magazine, and I've frankly never heard of First Things. But the headline reads, New York's hottest club is the Catholic Church. And she describes a uh, small but uh, significant scene that is called Dimes Square, a Manhattan neighborhood popular with pandemic-weary Generation Z. And they call themselves Zoomers that may have some relation Mm -hmm. to this Zoom thing that you and I are talking on right now. But essentially, she uh, tells that there is a group of people under 25, and we don't have to tag them with the, the Z, Uh, you know, like a Russian tank in Ukraine. Uh, But I am very distressed to hear that there is a rush of people who believe it is fashionable to be a Catholic in this day and age. And I want to separate this criticism from people who are devout and faithful, and you are entitled to your beliefs. But when we see the role of the Catholic bishops and the Roman Catholic Church in the United States that has been be, become increasingly political. And the most recent example is that they took four and a half million dollars in the Archdiocese of Kansas that could have been spent for homeless people, for uh, displaced refugees from Afghanistan, or any other purpose that I believe if there was a Jesus, he would approve of and prefer. Mm -hmm. And they spent it to support that deceptive ballot measure that would have uh, amended the state constitution to allow the Republican-dominated legislature to roll back or eliminate abortion rights in Kansas. So it's such a relief that the voters, including many Catholics, declined to play in this game. But that participation by the Catholic bishops, and it's one thing to speak from the pulpit about moral issues and values and the teachings of the Catholic Church, but it's another to take money out of a tax-exempt organization and spend it on politics of what I consider to be the lowest order, to try to remove a right from all people, not just to counsel Catholics. We believe you should never get an abortion. But to say that our beliefs are so important, so righteous, that we can impose them on the entire population. And so... When I see this description of these hip, young New Yorkers who are embracing what I consider to be a really regressive criminal organization, a racketeering scheme that involves uh, sexual predation that was widespread and claimed 
thousands, if not tens of thousands of victims, and not just in the United States. And this fraternity, because the Catholic Church is all, it is a patriarchy completely controlled by males. Also, my comment is that it uh, is the owner of the greatest real estate portfolio worldwide. And I believe that this is antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. And because I was raised a Catholic, I don't reject the story of Jesus, the fables, the myths that are part of the Catholic liturgy. I just reached a point where the earthly uh, extension of the Catholic religion is so corrupt that I cannot be a part of it. I consider myself agnostic today, and that allows for, you know, a shred of possibility that the whole story is true, that there's a heaven and, you know, you, you get points and you can burn off some sins in purgatory and, and get up there to the pearly gates. I consider it highly unlikely, but I understand that a lot of people believe that and that it's very meaningful to them. It's when you take these teachings that are so counter to our culture and to our government structure, which endows us with inalienable rights that were found to include abortion until Sam Alito and five other Catholics on the Supreme Court said, no, the bishops tell us what to do. And we are going to, you know, purge this nation of the dark forces who have supported abortion rights. And we're going to roll back uh, without any scientific basis the uh, claim, the the point where we believe life begins to conception or some people joke erection. And this, this is just so uh, it's misguided. It is going to cause a lot of pain. We're going to have unwanted pregnancies, unwanted children. We're going to have women who will take extreme measures to end a pregnancy. Some of those women will die. And these self-righteous bastards are promoting this sense that they're part of MAGA. That by ridding America of the evils of the right to an abortion, and contraception isn't far behind on that list, that we're going to be a better, purer, more godlike Christian nation. And I'm Focusing, I, I don't want to totally dismiss the evils of uh, the evangelical political right, but I want to focus today on the Catholics. And so they enjoy, along with the Christian churches and almost every other church, including a phony church like Scientology, the right to collect money and not pay taxes on it, the right to own property and not pay taxes on it. I, you know, lived and worked in Chicago and in the 1970s, the local newspaper, the Sun-Times reported that the Archdiocese of Chicago was the biggest landowner in the loop, the center of commerce 
in Chicago. I believe they owned uh, a major department store. I think it was Carson Peary Scott. They owned the land and the building. And they received income from that that was tax-free. So do you, mind if, so, I, do you mind if I just... Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, and please hold your thought. I, I understand what you're saying. I, I just want to point out that there are one point what, 5 billion Catholics around the world. And that the Vatican, much like Apple, is running a, uh, a big Roman Empire, so to speak. They, and I'm looking at the stats here, uh, 45,000 secondary schools, 95,200 primary schools around the world and 5,500 hospitals. My mother uh, was in one uh, and I, I feel obligated to tell you that uh, there is a Catholic hospital that my mother frequented uh, in her old age that was absolutely perfect and so I, I understand. I, I'm, I'm not trying to sound like a, an apologist for organized religion. I think there are, yes, there are many problems with the Catholic Church. The, the sexual, the rape of the children, mm -hmm. the, the treatment of indigenous Canadians and uh, indigenous Americans satanic I can't justify that uh, uh, it's horrible uh, but it is consistent the rape thing is uh, you know I can't that I can't address that's just but they are consistent they're against uh, the death penalty. Mm -hmm. They believe, you know, life. And so the abortion thing, I believe in abortion. I, I, I think we need, I don't even want to tell you what I think about it. I'm pro-abortion. I'm not pro-choice. I'm pro-abortion. So, yes, I have a problem with that. But there are a billion and a half Catholics who are, Go, uh, who have, uh, there are 420,000 priests. It is a big organization. And I think the good far outweighs the bad. They, when you look at liberation theology, when uh, Texas Tom Weber has taught some classes on that, when you look at how the Catholic Church in, in South America is, you know, feeds the poor, houses the poor, teaches the poor, the hospitals, the nuns. You don't see priests and nuns getting rich off the church. The church might get rich, but nobody is going into the Catholic business to make money. Molest children, yes, but 
I wholeheartedly disagree. If you were to take beans, and that's how I, you know, like John Stewart, who I don't like, you take some beans and you put them on a scale, good versus bad. John Stewart gets the beans, more beans in the good column than the bad column. And the Catholic Church, in terms of just bean counting, the the beans weigh heavily on the side of good. They just do. And I know a lot of people are going to be pissed off at me for saying this, but. Well, I'm not I'm not one of them. Uh, I do not in the least disagree that the Catholic Church has done and continues to do a lot of good things. And the Pope is, you know, is attacking capitalism. He's talking about man-made climate change. He attacks greed. He talks about the poor. He's trying to move towards same-sex marriage. You can hear it. He's putting out feelers uh, on that, and he just gets a pushback on it. But you get a sense that he wants to modernize this church and may even be thinking about letting priests marry but he's up the same way. I'm not an apologist, but he is up against a sclerotic system that dates back to Peter. What is that, the first century? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a deeply entrenched bureaucracy. When you look at most bureaucracies, it is a miracle that the Catholic Church has survived, what, 2,000 years? I mean... Mm-hmm. How, how many? Well, David, I, I want IBM to um, can claim that. just just build on what you're saying here. Will but I don't believe Get on that your this knees, Henry and pl- pray with me like Nixon and Kissinger. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I need a few drinks to get okay, to yeah, Nixon and Kissinger. Right. Uh, I, I want to use the uh, Catholic Church's own value system to disagree with what you just said, without disputing that uh, Catholic charities in the U.S. and other parts of the world do work that no one else does. Yes, the church has advocated against the death penalty, but not nearly with the fervor that they try to snuff out abortion rights in this country. Right. And I don't believe that this can be reduced to beans because the rank hypocrisy of the leadership of the church and the way that misleads the flock is the fundamental failing here. And so the hospital that took care of your mother also will deny an abortion to a woman who needs it and who lives in that area. And that's how uh, she died. Uh, They refused to perform an abortion on her. So. I'm not touching that one. <laughs> <laughs> She's laughing. That was Feldman. That was Feldman. She laughed. <laughs> My mother had a go ahead. Has and so the once again, the church feels free to impose its uh, sense of morality on people who are not Catholics. And it, it really is the corruption at the top. And Francis has tried to fix some of that, much more than his predecessor, Benedict, 
who was Cardinal Ratzinger before he was elevated to the papacy, directly managed the cover-ups of the pedophilia scandals. He personally told the Archbishop of, of Oakland that he could not transfer or defrock a priest who was a serial rapist of children. He didn't want bad publicity. He thought it would be bad for the image and the optics of the church. And what Jesus taught, and Catholics still practice, David, I got to finish. He was just giving orders. Come on. Okay. Uh, Well, and he's the one who was a brown shirt Nazi youth growing up. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) the, uh, the way that they can go into a massive denial about the criminal behavior that wasn't isolated to a few bad apples. It was known, it was tolerated, payoffs were made. And I want to take a minute to talk about your cardinal in New York, Timothy Dolan. Dolan is driving the political action of the Catholic Church. They've got dark money super PACs. They've got lobbyists in Washington. This is not just an amateur operation where they occasionally dump money into an initiative in Kansas. And Dolan was the Archbishop of Milwaukee, where one of the worst pedophilia scandals uh, uh, became known. And that was a priest who ran a home for the deaf. And he uh, sexually abused reportedly more than a hundred children and he was never moved out. And uh, after it was all exposed, they did uh, relieve him of his priestly duties, but they put him up in a, a pretty nice lake house to live out his final years. So Dolan uh, went through the motions of meeting with victims of this priest And he told them that, you know, gosh, he was sorry about this. And he felt their pain. He even negotiated monetary settlements with them. And then before the deadline to pay those amounts out, the archbishop took the entire diocese into bankruptcy. He transferred millions of dollars from the you know general bank account of the archdiocese to the cemetery fund. And then he said, gosh, I'd love to pay you, but we're broke. Now, this is pure evil. And we have to separate that evil people can do good things. Mobsters are really nice to their kids and grandchildren. Very generous. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the good works of the church do not erase what I consider to be, you know, very evil things. And Jesus left a process and broadly it's called reconciliation, but people know about it as confession. That's where the priest sits in a box and you go into the door and you kneel down and you say, father, forgive me, I have sinned. And you lay out what you've done and he gives you some hail Mary's. And once you've said those, you're clean and ready to sin again. Well, the church has never used any form of reconciliation to 
even a, a you know a, a more common restorative justice model to deal with these egregious long-term offenses. And if they did, I'd sit up and applaud and I would I'd pay attention and I would endorse that effort. But when I see that this church is attracting new members who are politically right, who do to some extent identify with the current ascendance of the power of the church in the United States to Trump. This is a really toxic, toxic combination. And so uh, that's what I wanted to say today. I, I just believe that people need to understand before they, you know, join a clique that becomes part of a church, that they understand the dimensions of what they're embracing. And the extent to, to which people want to uh, learn the gospel and live their lives that way, I'm, I have no criticism and I, I have full support. Right. But when you identify with the institution that really is a racketeering scheme in the, the you know real black and white terms of the law and that it enjoys tax-exempt status, that every American is subsidized. I feel that young people need to know this and uh, make their decisions accordingly. Okay. Uh, you go after the church, I'll go after APAC, and uh, we'll move uh, out of the country. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I'm more concerned. Personally, I'm angrier at APAC for doing similar things, uh, supporting how many insurrectionists, not insurrect, but there are about 120 Republican Congress people who refuse to certify for Biden and they're getting endorsements and money from dark, you know, dark APAC groups and APAC. Well, you and I, uh, are in full accord on APAC. Yeah. It is a, an illegal, unregistered foreign lobby that uh, uses different legal dodges to raise money that is perceived as coming from APAC directly, even though they use a dark money super PAC and they don't actually use uh, Israeli money. They use money raised from American Jews. But they are using that to uh, squeeze out progressives from the Democratic primaries and to uh, promote extreme policies of the government of Israel. And uh, the, the Democrats are, are not talking about it. They're simply accepting the money. And they see this as a, a deal that uh, they can live with to try to hold on to power. Right. And these are unholy alliances, and uh, we, we need to expose them and eliminate them. It is not anti-Semitic to criticize APEC influencing elections. Eighty percent of American Jews uh, do not support the candidates APEC is funneling dark money to. Uh, so... Uh, mm -hmm. It is, and then with anti-Semitism on the rise in the United States, 
you make the situation worse by saying criticism of APAC is tantamount to anti-Semitism. It trivializes real anti-Semitism and it, you're hiding behind uh, a, a false charge. And it's not good. And for if you want to see the, the extent of all this, uh, I don't know if it's still available on YouTube, uh, but <clears throat> Al Jazeera uh, produced and distributed a three-part uh, documentary, maybe six or eight years old now, but it's called The Lobby. And using undercover cameras and uh, <clears throat> reporters who uh, were undercover, they exposed quite a bit. And it, this relates to campuses and uh, the Hillel centers, which are uh, politicized as bases for um, an effort that is directed from Israel right. with a $25 million annual budget and a cabinet minister who uh, runs the operation. <laughs> and, you know, we wouldn't allow any other country to do that. Uh, but well, Saudi Arabia. They're not allowed to operate politically in this country, not to that extent. Russia? No, we've 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 taken care of that. Hey, Ross Douthat in the New York Times on Sunday admitted that Russiagate was a bunch of bullshit without tagging the Times, Rachel Maddow, or anybody else who promoted it. But it's he's a, a brilliant, but but he's, brilliant a, but he's a conservative. That's okay. All right. <laughs> Uh, excellent. Let's bring in Professor Marianne Cummings. She is a particle physicist. Sorry to keep you waiting. We're running behind schedule. Sorry about that. I and we know who you, to blame. I alert. Uh, what do you now, now? You are a particle physicist, Professor mm -hmm. Marianne Cummings. You look at the web, the photographs emanating from the web telescope, and you can conclude things. That, that are light years. You're going back. You're looking at clouds from the Big Bang, four billion yeah. years old. We're trying to ascertain what is going up and down to the left of Peter B. Collins' screen, and what it's what? the string theory of everything. <laughs> the spaghetti monster string theory of everything. The one unifying principle I can like get behind. Such a relief. Not since the Church of the Subgenius have I ever gotten behind another religion. <laughs> so would you like to venture a guess? What he's not gonna tell us tonight what it is. I said it looks like he's fishing. He's a, isn't that just, you know, your little earphone wire? I can't Don't confirm or question. deny that. I'm sorry, Don't Professor. I can't because it goes off the screen. We cannot either. So it'll just have to like I think hang there in the air, so to speak. <laughs> although I think the particle physicist, I think that's the answer, but we'll never know. <laughs> I think well, right. also here in my this this is my home office, which doubles as our, our guest quarters. And I have a, uh, a mobile that is constructed of sailboats. And you can partly see one uh, on, on my camera mm -hmm. right oh, now. Pretty. Oh, pretty, yeah. Anyway, when I turn on the fan here, um, they go flying around and bang into things and make a lot of noise. Mm. So, yeah. And, and David, I just want to check in. Is, is it true you don't have air conditioning in your apartment? Why well, don't turn it on during the show? 
Oh, but you do have. I, I, I thought you were living in some kind of HUD place that uh, doesn't actually have air conditioning. I go full Opus Day during the show. Out of respect <laughs> for my Catholic. Okay, lady. and what's the status of your oven? No oven. I have a portable uh, convection oven that I finally bought. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I live an ascetic lifestyle. Uh, okay. I, I call well, it morally uh, show us your ash, your, your ash cloth. <laughs> uh, I, I consider myself morally superior to everybody. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I feel it. Uh, uh, Virtue hoarding there in Manhattan. Yeah, New York City. I think most people these days are living an ascetic, ascetic lifestyle in Manhattan. It's uh, I don't know if it's uh, you know it costs twenty five dollars just to leave your apartment in New York City. You have to pay. You step outside your door. And you just have to hand somebody $25 just to. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was visiting there first back in the 80s, somebody told me, yeah, New York's great, but it's just one $20 bill after another <laughs> you know, all day long. And, and you kind of marvel. You go, wow, that's good. Like oh. you kind of, everything's a scam. And you just kind of go, well, I, like I went to, I talked about Zabar's and they, I don't want to trash Zabar's. It's a sacred place for people, and I, I understand it. But you go around, and they are the they were doing inflation before it was fashionable. That's all I can tell you. They <laughs> oh, were they yeah were, ahead of the curve. Yeah. On the other hand, I had a so this was when I was hanging out with those physicists as an undergraduate. I was working at Brookhaven National Laboratory, so we'd often go in town. On the other hand, when I visit my boyfriend at the time when he moved to New York and he got a job as a proofreader. I don't know if that job exists, but he's a musician and he met like musicians and artists and all these people were doing this kind of job proofreading. So he got connected with all of the, you know, the art world. And I just remember seeing fabulous concerts for like two bucks and four bucks and, you know, and, um, strange, who was the guy who was the, uh, Dave Letterman's um, music director. Paul Schaefer. Paul Schaefer. Paul Schaefer. Unbelievable. All of these incredibly obscure musicians and acts. And he was always there. And in right. fact, kind of accused us of kind of tracking him. I said, no, I mean, we just sort of happened to have the same kind of good taste, but it was pretty astounding. I always thought that guy was talented, but he oh, really yeah. did make the rounds. Now we're talking the mid 80s. In right. New York. Yeah, that was fantastic. I saw uh, Yo-Yo Ma for four bucks. He was just playing at a local church. Gary got wind of that, and we were there in line waiting for like two hours before the concert. So New York was weird. I mean, it was an incredibly expensive place, and if you knew the right, if you were in the right circles, it could, it could be a cheap place, too. It's just a... We met Grace. That was a time. We we met Grace in Brooklyn last yes. Wednesday. I don't hang out in Brooklyn. Never did hang out in Brooklyn. I used to hang out a lot in the village. Uh, my favorite place was Cafe Reggio's. I hope it still exists. Yeah, it's near the I, cellar. I'll be sad if it doesn't. No, it's still there. That, 
Okay, that was my go-to place whenever yeah. I visit New York. It was just to hang out there. Brooklyn, I, I said to Leslie, we were in Brooklyn. I don't get to Brooklyn that much. Yeah. Uh, I remember when Michael Brooks was alive, I occasionally met him in Brooklyn. I thought, oh, I'm going to start coming to Brooklyn more often. This is great. And it reminded me of New York. It reminded me of New York when New York was more fun. And mm-hmm. I still hated it. I don't like New York. <laughs> like I went, Isn't yeah. it like a, like impossibly gentrified now? Yeah, it was like, you know, like, a lot of young kids and they were out on the street drinking. And I thought, this place is really happening. And I hate these people. <laughs> I just, I, I'm, I grew up. In, <laughs> to in, compare with my life, your life right now. I just, no, I, I mean, I love St. Grace and, and, Actually, Brooklyn, in all honesty, and then I'll change the subject. Here's what is strange. My daughter lives in Brooklyn. It truly okay. is another country. It is. There are things in Brooklyn that you see that you can't see anywhere else. And it's, it, it, it feels safe ideologically. You can just see people who, who, whose mindset has been shaped by Brooklyn and and a a freedom of thought that uh, and that includes all you know all types of people. There's just something about Brooklyn. I also anyway. I'm rambling. Thank you, Peter. But did you, so do you think that Senator Sanders is a real son of Brooklyn? Yeah, don't you? Okay, <laughs> he sort of hesitated there. Is there another <laughs> Brooklyn within Brooklyn? Well, if you can get through his thick Vermont brogue, I can hear the Brooklyn, but it's hard through that thick, that syrupy Vermont accent that he's got. (laughs) David, David, before I go, just a quick one. I will make a note to self to get a longer uh, earbud cord or maybe even get the wireless going. Um, But I just wanted to know what you uh, are handicapping for tomorrow. I was just going to ask you. Oh, oh, no, I'm asking yeah. you. You're yeah. in New York. Is Mondaire going to win? And is uh, uh, Jerry going to beat Carolyn? Well, I wanted to ask you, do I vote for Carolyn or Jerry? Well, it's it's there. where you live, dude. Um, I, I try not to tell people how to vote. Uh, I think that's kind of presumptuous, and I find it annoying when people do it to me. Well, I, I've been watching. Uh, Here's I recognize thing. it's a tough call because Nadler is chair of judiciary. I think that's important. Maloney uh, is is running uh, what administration House Oversight Committee, and yeah. she's really good. And I um, noticed he wasn't real. Was he the impeachment manager? Yes, uh, but he's not on the January sixth committee, is he? No. No, if, if you remember, before the uh, Ukraine Gate impeachment, there were special hearings where they were, you know, running investigations and trying to get uh, a Trumper to flip, and nobody did. And then, you know, when the phone call surfaced, that's when it, it became impeachment. Um, I, I think Nadler is, uh, I mean, he's he's powerful, he's... Uh, he's smart. He's way too pro-Israel for me. Um, but on domestic issues, um, I, I think, you know, he he offers slightly more uh, than Maloney does in terms of the issues that matter 
for Democrats, you know, like, what do we do with the January 6th findings? Can we actually reform this uh, machinery? Uh, I had a couple of interviews over the years with Nadler, and he has absolutely no sense of humor. Uh, he's a real stuffed shirt, um, but that doesn't matter. Right. And and what about uh, he looks like, uh, he, Maloney, Sean Patrick? He looks like, by the way, he looks like Vito Spadafore <laughs> from The Sopranos, Jerry. Nadler. I think he's lost a little weight because I, I saw a, a photo of him campaigning uh, over the last couple of days and he looks slimmer. Yeah. Uh, well, Sean Patrick Mal Maloney. Mm -hmm. The head of the DCCC. Who's he running against? Isn't that Mondaire Jones? I would vote for Mondaire Jones. Oh, no, no. Wait a minute. I'm wrong. It's, uh, it's a state legislator. Mondaire Jones. Uh, we got it on the Isn't chat. Alessandra Biagi. Right. Yeah. And right. Mondaire's I guess I'm in a completely for, different district. Yeah, Biagi, I, I, I know from Howie Klein not to yeah. uh, support the head of the DCCC. So. Mm-hmm. That's pure evil. Uh, yeah. We're running behind. I, I think you let me let me get out of the way here. Marianne, great you. to see you. David, thank you thank very you. much. Great, great to see you, great. Peter. Go to PeterBCollins.com for this brilliant man's radio shows, podcasts, interviews. He always has great guests. One politician on this show, Professor Marianne Cummings, mm -hmm. is a parks commissioner, elected parks commissioner, from Aurora, Illinois. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. What's going on? Doing real well. What's going on in Illinois that we should know about? Uh, well, we're, um, of course, we're gearing up toward election season. And uh, I am on one campaign, and that is Rachel Ventura's campaign. And she... Um, Better man than I will ever be that Rachel Ventura, because, you know, <laughs> she has the patience of Job to deal with Illinois Democrats in a way that I, I just wouldn't be able to handle it. But, um, you know, the, as I to recount, to recap, the Democratic Party spent almost a million dollars through their PACs and through their organizations um, in a primary, in a state Senate primary to defeat Rachel and lost. I mean, lost definitively. She won by 15 points, percentage points. And uh, now they are kind of concluding that, well, you know, it's a safe district, so you don't need any money. Hmm. And so she's had to like, no, she's gotten, she, she knows how to work politically. So she has gotten many, uh, many, Democratic state senators on board who really uh, did not like the old regime, even though Madigan is gone. I mean, the, his his political apparatus is still intact, although uh, considerably less uh, it, it's considerably less formidable. And I think people just realize that it wasn't it wasn't the you know un, unbeatable machine really. It, it, when it started cracking, it kind of collapsed pretty quickly. But he still has his people there. And um, so she's given me an she's given me kind of an education on how to make alliances and, you know, on how to deal with things. Um, she's 
distressed. She put out, you know, a rah-rah on the uh, on, on the Inflation Reduction Act, even though, you know, she finds it just really just a disgrace. I mean, a disgrace mostly in, you know, lost opportunity that we don't have. I, I caught a little bit of your show earlier. Um, yeah, the Republicans... Hey, I mean, my former student is working for Chevron down in Houston. You know, she says, yeah, we kind of have earthquakes now. They're kind of regular. People don't mm-hmm. used to remember because they're fracking the, the hell out of that right. area. It's, it's like, oh, that's fantastic. Can, can you get earthquake insurance down there? It's just <laughs> not really. But anyway, um, so I don't respect anything. I don't expect at all anything from the Republicans, but it is just gut-wrenching when this is what we were all supposed to be working toward, getting Democrats elected. They had the power, and this is all they're able to do. And although I think a lot of a lot of uh, Democrats who aren't really deep into the issues are feeling are feeling like you know they can rest now, relax. We we've got the problem. People are on the problem right now. That's all we have to do is just elect Democrats, and it's just well when you uh, look at disabuse me when you look at the Inflation Reduction Act and Mm -hmm. we've been over everything that's wrong with it. But can it be transformative? Can it? You'd have to have well, you'd have to have a different Democratic Party. I mean, at least least you have to have a real cell of disruption within the Democratic Party. To sort of make it work, I, I told but people that bills, pa- I mean, the thing that you know, passed, the thing that was yeah, signed the, into law last the year, the thing that passed is that it gave. Not only was it a massive giveaway to the fossil fuel industry, which is just right then or there. I mean, it's just like it, it's locking in extraction of of fossil fuel. I'm going to when, at I'm a time when we need to be clamping that. down. I'm going to challenge you on that, but go ahead. But the thing is, it's also. I I tell people to look at timelines for things. So it's like, I think Peter was talking about this a little last week, like the fossil fuels get first, the fossil fuel industry gets first dip at any, uh, at at, at leasing on any public lands it wants. And it has to do that before the provision for sustainable renewable energy kicks in. But they're not going to buy or lease that land. They're not going to do that. They're not going to buy it. They're not going to lease it. But they're going to use it as as leverage for getting everything else they want. The other thing, well, you know, you it's you, the usual oh, thing. Man. When what, you look at these bills, who gets what they want? Who gets the power up front? And then, for instance, NAFTA is a great example. I mean, there were a lot of provisions for labor protections and and environmental protections in NAFTA. The problem is that the players at the table get everything they want. They've they've been pushing the politics on this bill, you know, on whatever bill they want. And then when they get what they want, the things that are supposed to come out later, there's no political will to fully implement. Now, nobody's giving, nobody's giving. Okay. Hang on. Nobody's giving a seven thousand dollar tax refund if you buy a, a car that runs on an internal combustion engine. So that's a that is, yeah. 
and you know, for the, the this is the other problem we were discussing with the tax incentive when this needs to be a national mode, uh, mobilization. Like nobody in my neighborhood is going to buy an electric car. Not anytime soon. I mean, nice idea. If you want to talk about like a, a real effort, like putting millions of people to work on a uh, on an energy grid, that would be a step in the direct in the right direction. But there's investment in fossil fuel companies and, and not in in wind and solar. And, and wind and solar aren't going to do it without the necessary infrastructure in place. And and the wind and solar again. You need a national mobilization. You can't let marketplace, you can't let companies, they'll just, you know, do what they do with fossil fuel is that they'll have an oligarchy or they'll be entrenched in a certain technology, you know, that is really not long-term sustainable in the case of photovoltaics and in, in the case of uh, of solar. And, you know, you don't, when what we really need is just money to national labs. You know, you need a real Manhattan product, a project, real serious investment in R and D. But isn't that the chip? There is R and D. There is some money for nuclear. <laughs> little shy, little silver lining in all this. There's about thirty billion dollars going to nuclear energy to keep nuclear plants going. I'm afraid that our California friends are going to be really unhappy, but there's like there's federal money uh, to the state for keeping, you know, well, dangling in front of the state legislature and the governor there to keep Diablo Canyon going. But there's also two billion dollars for research. That could make a difference if we get that. I mean, we don't even know the the. Is that $2 billion over 10 years? Is that is, is that program going to start immediately? You know, same way with a uh, with with bargaining, you know, being able to negotiate prescription drug price, uh, prices. It doesn't kick in until two, 2026. And as somebody pointed out, patents on these uh, on, on these drugs would have been close to expiring anyway. It, it's just, uh, you know, again, if you have a really dedicated cell of people within the Democratic Party who would be willing morning, noon and night to, you know, like hold the whole Democratic caucus hostage in order to get things in this that are theoretically in this bill that would be good implemented. Yeah, then you could do it. I mean, it's all about political will. As I said, the uh, the environmental and labor protections in NAFTA never got fully implemented, never really got implemented at all, because once the big players and the donors to both parties get what they want, you know, there, there's where's the political will to push these other things forward? Because bills mostly, even though these bills are thousands of pages, the actual mechanics of how to implement them are usually left for later for people to work out later. So it's very, it, it's very important to, to get the time uh, to, to get the timelines of all these things in place. But that being said, we're going to have a little experiment. If Rachel and her friends can, you know, get elected to the state Senate in Illinois uh, by John Lash's count, there's about, there'll be 13 progressive 
senators in the state Senate. I mean, serious progressives, not people who just want the branding. And that might be enough to like force the legislature, I mean, to hold up, and they're willing to hold up legislation to like do things that absolutely need to be done. And there's money in all the states, of course, you know, for a bill like the uh, the IRA to pass, I mean, every state's got to get its bit of cash. So you can be there to decide what to do with it in the spirit of saving the planet because the Democrats keep bragging about what a historical bill this is in terms of environmental issues. You know, again, it, it all depends on who you've got there at the table. So that's why I, you know, I, I take voting seriously. That's why I say that, boy, you give your vote away and make no demands. It's like, what influence do you really have? You have to make demands for it. And so, and the state's legislatures and state politics are where you can, you know, are little incubators of, you know, where federal leaders may come from. I mean, people like Sean Caston and Bill and Bill Foster, the two scientists in the house, the two people who are supposedly pro-green. I mean, they're just beholden to people who brought them. I mean, they're 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 not building. They didn't get their building coalitions or you know working on real problems at the state and local level. They're just kind of sitting high. You know, they just they just have a, a an easy career. And they're comfortable. In fact, that's the part. That's part of the problem because people in Congress are comfortable, even if it's a hideous situation in terms of the way politics runs. They've got their comfortable little perch in that system. And if you start talking about disrupting that system, even if it's to save the planet, you know, you're not going to get people like that on board. And and furthermore, I really think that these rich guys think, yeah, it might be unfortunate. I mean, already people are dying because of climate change, but it's mostly in the in the global south. It's going to be coming, but it's going to be coming here. It is coming here. Actually, what am I saying? It's already here. I mean, the, there's a, the temperatures are getting more extreme, the, the forest fires. But people who are wealthy really feel like immune to all this, like they can move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, can move they can afford their bunkers or whatever they move think they're where, going though? to like be living in. Move where? When, when the planet changes and, you know, there there is you don't even have to have people starving. All you have to have is the fear that there might be food shortages and just watch how things go nonlinear. You know, particularly in a country of people who are used to at least having food available, although increasingly, apparently like 9% of the households are fueling food insecure. So that even might be changing. What's the percentage on that? Like nine percent, I thought nine percent of the kids are food are That's in households that. that food insecure. Twenty like percent, nine. No, no, twenty. You think it's more like twenty? The that could be. The well, year. I mean, there's a lot of elderly people who have no kids at home who you know are on fixed incomes for whom this uh, inflation is really hitting hard. So, you know, I. I, I don't want to speak to it because I don't really have hard numbers. I was just reading an article about the problem facing a lot of kids in school is just basically one of hunger. So, you know, 
Gavin Newsom feels he's got to at least uh, <laughs> got to at least present as progressive. And I guess he's uh, he signed a law where all the the schools have to, public schools have to provide lunch for kids. I mean, you know, so yeah, it's 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 such a disappointment that you don't have leaders. And we don't have leaders. I mean, we have careerists, we have politicians, we have people who are, you know, trying their best to get a bead on the people who for whom they are just completely disconnected with, you know, from Pappy Bush not knowing how a scanner worked or not knowing the price of bread or things like that, you know, to people who it, it literally, you know, um, people who never have to worry about fighting with an insurance company, you know, to cover, um, you know, a cost associated with an emergency. That's frustrating. And, you know, uh, there's a, I, I'm astounded that working class people, when I was at Rachel Ventura's house this weekend, we were having, having kind of a kickoff. And it's just amazing to me, the people that were there who were like single moms, working class people who nonetheless won their primaries. Yeah, you know, we're talking about county board, we're talking about school board, things like that. But, uh, you know, that's um, that that's astounding. I mean, I'm just me. I don't, I'm not raising kids. You know, I'm not worried about if, if if things got nasty politically, I'm not worried about family members being in the blast radius. But, um, you know, this it's just very, very inspiring to me, you know, that there's still people out there. I mean, if even if Bernie is left kind of left his movement high and dry, I mean, the, the remnants of his movement are still metastasizing, you know, in the state of Illinois and, and causing trouble. So, you know, there's that. Good news. I mm-hmm. just got a message that Ethan Hershenfeld booked a role, the rabbi role in Baltimore for Wednesday. So that's good news. He Hang booked on. a rabbi. He auditioned. I, he wasn't allowed. He, I guess he auditioned for the part of a rabbi for another important oh. project, and he was waiting to hear. And he sent me a note that said he got he got the booking. So that's if I did happy for other people, I would be happy for him. But I don't do mm-hmm. happy for other people, so. Moving on. No, that's great. You know, well, you know, I was uh, I wanted to I wanted P- Peter to stay on just for a little bit because, you know, the Catholic Church, what a you know, what an organization, a true living fossil, by the way. The, the now you were raised our, Catholic, right? I grew up in the Catholic Church. Right. Um, the Catholic Church was had the beginning of turning into a much different organization in the late 60s and early 70s. And, uh, you know, the who was it? Pope John the 23rd was also a very cool guy, was a pope that non-Catholics liked. You know, he would he left the Vatican. He'd go visit people in prisons. You know, he was like he, he was cool. He was he uh, he thought that, you know, they should be at least reaching out to other Christian groups that, you know, these historical divisions in, you know, in, in Christianity were kind of obsolete. And uh, there were some pretty radical uh, theologians in the Catholic Church that, you know, were, Tom Merton was one of them, and I read stuff of, uh, stuff of his, and 
you know, he by the end of his career, he was also a practicing Buddhist. He he was the one that introduced uh, this famous Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh. You know, if you went to the Borders bookstore in the spirituality section, you probably saw where well, you first saw a lot of his books. If you went there. Um, and so and that all took a U-turn in the late 70s. When uh, there was one pope, Pope John Paul I, who like had was in for all of like one month before he was found dead. I mean, this is kind of like a Medici pope reign and. Okay, then there's JP2 comes in and he picks very, very, I mean, everybody was really ecstatic because it was a non-Italian Pope for the first time in 300 years or some some such number. And uh, But boy, did he ever turn, turn things very, very conservative. And he hired Joseph Ratzinger, <laughs> Ratzy, you know, Pope Benedict. The guy that's still wandering around the Vatican like the ghost of Christmas future or something, you know, and his and and half the college uh, cardinals still refer to him as your holiness. So there's a little skizzy schism. He's effectively under house arrest. That's that's about the most polite way to put it, because there were several countries, you know, that were preparing indictments of him. And they and I think there was diplomatically it was just moved over if you get a new pope we won't arrest the old one we just don't want him you know like traveling around anymore so but you know it's too bad because the catholic church you know i i think jimmy carter nailed it the ex-president jimmy carter nailed it when he said look you know theologians for throughout the 2000 year history of christianity not just in and catholicism in particular uh, you know, could have interpreted scripture in a way that exalted women rather than suppress them. They just consistently for 2000 years chose the latter. You know, this is, th- these are just decisions made by people. I mean, I'm, I, I understand my parents still believe it's easier to believe that there's a God than to not than to be an atheist or a Buddhist, you know, because then it's like, you know, you never get away with anything ultimately. (laughs) And and death is no escape whatsoever because karma is going to come up and catch up with you. But, um, you know, still um, it's it's it's. It's kind of like the Queen of England. In in many ways, hideous should be centuries outdated, but people need something more than just, you know, material comfort. They absolutely need that. Even Jesus understood they needed that. But there it, it does provide a certain level of comfort and the sense of universal community to people. And so I can't, you know, life is so goddamn hard. I'm not gonna be like I'm not going to be getting after people for still being devout Catholics, which is a good chunk of my family. So, plus, yeah, I mean, you know, there it's it's not just the church; it's the people who go to mass who require it. I, I'm not going to mm-hmm. dip my beak into this. It, uh, no, I, I got my own issues. But I just have my- to say that that rings of pedophiles behave universally the same. Whether it was that guy Sandusky, you know, Mark Paterno's like assistant coach, who, as 
the guy who uncovered the story for and wrote about it in Sports Illustrated said he the story gets worse. It was the reason why these guys were protected, why Sandusky was protected, because his second mile orphanage, he was providing children for the wealthy Penn State donors. That's why that's the, that's why the, the cover up went all the way up to the attorney general's office in Pennsylvania. And you looked into like the spotlight story in Boston. There's a, a, a Netflix series called The Watchers, which was a similar situation in Baltimore. And, you know, again, it was, it was the same everywhere. And my great aunt, who was Mother Superior of the Dominican Order out of the Adrian House, Adrian, Michigan, she was onto that too. She just about... Literally, she talked to my mother and I about this one night, and our jaws dropped. I was 19 years old. I thought I was pretty damn sophisticated and shockproof, but I'm like going, holy crap. What did she do? She got money out of these guys to build schools, to, you know, run old folks' homes, have programs for the poor. See, look at me and my moral superiority. I mean, she was a much more practical person did more good for more right. people than I probably ever do. But uh, boy, it's a dirty system. You have to work through sometime to get stuff done. It's a, yeah. Pure heart, dirty hands, dirty hands, yeah. pure heart. I mean, there, there's something I need to work on. Uh, anything you're paying attention to tomorrow on election day? You know, I'm not really, um, I guess uh, there was a, there was a state house. I think it was a state senate. Uh, uh, Nomiki Konst had entered into it, you know, kind of at a late date when there was already a good progressive. And I, I know our friend Harvey J.K. liked her, but boy, she just came in there and stunk the place up. You know, made accusations of the uh, of the campaign of Jessica Gonzalez, and but. I guess she had a talking to uh, last week by the party chair. And so she dropped out and endorsed Gonzalez. That's good because she seems like a, a very solid progressive. Uh, but Mondaire Jones, I mean, he was, who is he running against? I thought he was running against another really good progressive because their districts had kind of merged or you know, they'd been redistricted. He, into he's each not other. my, let me look him up. Uh, yeah, we like him, and I almost had him on the show. Uh, no, I just wish all of these guys were 10. could. I wish they would be much more willing to take on Democratic leadership. Um, hang on for but one. you know, hang on. I, I guess I. There, there were a few things looks, I was watching, and I guess I, you know, after last week, I guess I, I, I was really hoping that Jason Call would get, you know, would get into the top two over in Washington's second district, and he just seemed and so I was kind of, hey, I had a. Oh, the, I, I apologize for not knowing this. Uh, okay. Mondaire Jones is going up against Dan Goldman, the Levi Strauss heir who Donald Trump. Endorsed. Oh, okay. So he's not going up against. Okay, so no, Maloney's going up a bit against Biagi. Okay, uh, all right. Yeah. So I guess there'll there'll be no real surprises 
in New York. I mean, I would like to see Jessica Gonzalez win her state Senate seat. So, you know, that would be uh, because she's running against one of the favorites is, I believe, the cousin of Joe Crawley, who AOC beat right. four years ago. So people were worried that the two progressives running would just make it much easier for her to pull through. So we'll see if that all congeals. And okay. um, Professor Marianne Cummings is a particle physicist. We'll talk about the web, uh, the telescope next week. Yeah, let's do that because there's a lot of interesting things coming up. So um, turns out the sun revolves around the earth. I, I didn't know that. Um, technically speaking, they revolve around each other. Uh, that's what I've heard. <laughs> it's just go. that the sun is much bigger mass, so you don't see it move much. Okay. Thank you, Professor but, Marianne Cummings. Okay. Marianne. Yes. I want, I've been meaning to thank you for something for many months. In 2000, oh, no. in 2019, uh, we have family up in Warrenville. And oh. um, we, my wife's, kind of research something that we could all do. It's a pretty big family. They have mm -hmm. three kids and spouses and stuff. And we were up, I was doing a, um, I was doing a workshop at um, uh, Vandercook Music, which is at ITT. I, 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 IT. IIT yeah. is downtown Chicago. Yeah, south, it's on the south side. By the yeah. way, their visitor parking lot, Best kept secret for Chicago White Sox parking on Nike. Oh yeah, it's very close, very yeah. close. But I, I did I did a workshop there many years. The first year I did it, I stayed in a dorm right there, mm -hmm. and of course it's in a you know it's got it it's gotten better and more gentrified over the years. I'll get back to my original story, but anyway, so uh, I was I was I went out to the some bodega and I got a beer and stuff, and I was going back into my dorm, and all of a heard all of a sudden I heard pow 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 pow. pow. And I, I ducked and everything. And then I oh, realized yeah. somebody hit a home run at, at uh, White Sox Park. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was in a... In a, in a oh, uh, that's right. Yeah, I think those uh, infamous Robert Taylor homes are no more. Uh, I think a few years, but no, just... No, it's gotten... It, yeah, by that, by 2000, last year, I time I did it, 19, it's, it's very gentrified all the way to there. Yeah. But it was, it was the ghetto, like... Oh, it was I, rough. It was I started rough. going there 20 years ago and doing, uh, doing oh, I did. Workshop. I did too. I was, uh, I was working with colleagues down there. I was going there between there and university of Chicago. And yeah, that was, uh, I mean, there were, it was a Chicago police presence when we'd saunter on old, over the Dan Ryan to, uh, yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, the architecture there is very important. Mies van der Rohe, and it's really ugly, but anyway, I know. Oh, Oh my God! Thank you. I'm sitting <laughs> they're there. Terrible. Like, they're terrible. Around. And they're there's. Is this a, is this like uh like you know temporary kind of building for this? Well, place? What, Are you kidding? No, oh, people come out from all over the world to look at this place. It's yeah, what's like, important about it is the buildings are hung, like the 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 student union looks just like a regular boxy cement building. Yeah, and then you see these big iron things above it. It's actually suspended. It isn't. Oh. Anyway, that's that's part of the design. But anyway, I was we were in Warrenville and my wife researched that there was there was Shakespeare in the park in your town. In in, in your uh, in Aurora. 
Yeah. And we went yeah. over to, to the, they had a, a stage set up on the river there. Yeah. And, that's the river park. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and there was a really park. cool restaurant across the street. The roundhouse. Yeah. The, we went to the roundhouse and then we. Oh, you we, did. Okay. Yeah. And then we went and had, that we, we sat there and it was kind of hot, but it got cool. It cooled down. We're from Texas. We don't care. But anyway, it was great. And thank you so much because that was a really, it was really well done uh, drama and it was free. Yeah. It was totally free. Anyway, thank you for doing that as a parks yeah. commissioner. Are they still yeah. doing it? They're still doing the uh, Shakespeare. It's the Shakespeare that happens. Yeah, in I don't Lincoln think they're Park. doing it. They, they were doing a Shakespeare in the round at the roundhouse a few years back. Um, oh, OK. I, they they are slowly opening up all their programs. I went and saw a projection of Shrek about two weeks ago. And I was I'm, stunned how good it was. I'm it was sorry like, about that. Oh, okay. It no, no, good. it was actually, I was like, you know, I'm because I've been involved in theater and in like set design and direction. And I'm like going, damn, this is Park District. This is my Park District. That's <laughs> a yeah, real, well, good, got a great, good on you for having, I, yeah. I think it was really important. And it was well attended. It was packed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. By the time we, I think we had to, maybe it cost something. I'm not sure, but we had to, we, I can't remember. We got there really. I early haven't been to the ones seats. over. You might have. You might have had to to uh, pay something, but they we. It there was, was very t- reasonable before COVID. There was like Shakespeare in the Round, which was inside the Round Courtyard, inside the Roundhouse. This was across. This was yeah. This was it, but that this was, was before the, COVID. It was summer of nineteen. Okay. I just retired, okay. and right. we we went over there. But it was it was great. Thank you for doing that. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. I aim to please. Yeah. Oh, great. Peace out. All right. Uh, thank you, Professor Marianne. Joining us is Professor Mike Steinell, the author of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Go to savingcharlieparker.com. Buy the book. It gets the Feldman guarantee. If you don't enjoy it, I will reimburse you. And <clears throat> you came in heavy today. Before we talk about the bold and the beautiful. Yes, sir. You had some flash flooding. Yeah, we it, it rained hard all night long. We didn't get the brunt of it. I mean, my backyard's got standing water, but it always has. If you get any sort of, the drainage is really bad here. But, um, you know, there was, yeah, <laughs> it really flooded. Um, people driving in it. And I don't think anybody, I don't think there were any fatalities. No, but, they um, did a pretty good job. They're, the one good thing that I'm reading about climate catastrophe is we are getting better at saving people. Yeah. They warn people don't, don't drive into deep in any kind of water, you know, cause you don't know how deep it is, you know? But, uh, um, so where were you throughout all that? Uh, we were inside here. I was actually, I had a, I was going to play golf this morning. I was a little disappointed with the rain, but, we, but, we really needed the moisture. It was so weird. I was seeing the reports about Lake Mead, yeah, and the Colorado River. Oh, that's that's oh my goodness, my goodness. What are they going to do if that doesn't fill up? That's a problem. Well, Rick Perry prayed for it. Remember I, that? I enjoyed your uh, news. I I had to step out to do some shopping, and I missed the dust up. I'll, I'll be, be watching that tomorrow. Right. 
you know, I was going after Texas and I was thinking, well, people who listen to me in Texas must have loved that. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right. We have a, a cruel, the, the cruelty of our governor and his cavalier, his ability to like pass it off as something normal, like sending all those immigrants to uh, New York. That is so, that's juvenile. Yeah. It costs, you know, just give them some housing here, you know. But I do think that New York's kind of sh- showing him up because they're going like, no, okay, we'll take them, you know. Well, it, not really. Not really? <laughs> yeah, it, it's a political, you're, it's a political football with human lives. And Oh, I know. It's it horrible. Is, it is absolutely horrible to do that to when you think about people my age who move and how upsetting it is to our equilibrium and then you think of somebody who came all the way from guatemala unbelievable and you treat them like that yeah Yeah. i mean evil i was really shocked that barry um Reverend Barry W. Lynn is moving out of that's a that's hard it's hard to move when you're when you're uh, you know past seventy I'm sure he is I think he's a little older than but, me but his grandkid he's 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 actually looking for I think the, oh I'm sure he's looking forward yeah. to it but man I look at our house and I go like it was hard enough for me to retire and bring all my I had a you know an 40 years of office stuff. Right. So it's all packed in there. Uh, I'm looking at it now. I built shelves and you, now I've got, um, I've got all this product. I've got books Mm -hmm. and I put them in CDs and everything. Hey, by the way, the book is on audible. I think I told you that last week. I think it went on audible last Monday. So saving Charlie Parker. I think the audible is the best way to enjoy the book. You'll hear some music. The, CD is available at Pender's Music, but it's still not quite on Spotify. I don't know. I don't know what's up with, uh, you know, I didn't, I, this is a, I made my own record company, uh, Rosewood Audio. You like the name of that? I Rosewood Audio. Good, good name, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's, we produce the record, the CD and, uh, and the audio book is produced on Rosewood Audio. So I don't have like all this, the other, uh, my other CD, Song and Dance, was on uh, Origin, and they took care of all the, you know, sending it out to radio stations like there are any radio stations and magazines, print and media and all that. So I've got to do that yet and uh, and submit it for the Grammy like I guess you should do. If you got something Great. out, you should submit it. But uh, anyway, I'm, I'm really, you know what I'm more excited about than anything is I've, I'm three chapters into my new book and uh, we talked a little bit. I've got some, what do you think of these character names? Okay. Okay. The main character is going to be Martin Spencer and his family is Robert Spencer, Sylvia Spencer. His little brother is Wilson and his little sister is Tamara Spencer. Tamara Spencer. You like that? No. Well, it depends what the setting is. Well, they're mid. They're 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 going to be growing up in Morgan, Kansas. 
oh, okay, that sounds about right. If it yeah. were Czechoslovakia, I might have a problem. But Martin's birth father, his his uh, his uh, biological father, is uh, a guy from a gangster family in Kansas City called Tony Carello, mm. who's a musician who gets murdered in 1949 in 52nd, on 52nd Street. This is a time, another time travel novel. The guy, Martin Spencer, has, has a gift to time travel. Is, is he, uh, and is this based on a true story? Oh, yeah, there's a man named Martin Spencer who can time travel. No, 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 the murder. What do you mean? <laughs> no, no, but, but, but I'm going to bring in all this stuff about 50. Did you... Do you know much about 52nd Street in the 40s? I know a little bit about 42nd Street in the 52nds. <laughs> 52nd Street, the two blocks between uh, basically Broadway and Fifth Avenue. Oh, in New in, York City or Kansas? In, in New York so, City. In New York City. Oh, is that ten, uh, the... Uh, no, it was called... They called it Swing Street. It was all these clubs sprung up. Uh, there's wonderful pictures of it. Matter of fact, what inspired me was a book called uh, Sitting In. Oh, let me let me just kind of run and get it. Sure. Okay, hang on a second. Uh, you're listening to The David Feldman Show. Today's show is produced by Grace Jackson, Jonathan Bick, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Hannah Feldman, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, and, of course, Dan Frankenberger. Perfect timing. I hope I didn't leave anybody out. Okay, this book is called Sitting In, and what it is, it's pictures from jazz clubs. Mm. You know, it used to be that you go to a jazz club, and there would be a photographer, and they would, they would take a souvenir photograph. Oh. And so, my character is going to be presented in, 19, in, in 2018 with... A picture from a nightclub, and uh, his mother said, "This is this is your biological father." But um, and he has, you know, some of them are like this, and some of them have uh, some of them have jazz personalities in them. You know, every club had a photographer, and then they had um, they would give you a little folio, you know, a, a folder. Mm-hmm. It would look like that. There's a place called the, wow. the Harlem Club. But anyway, this is a great book, and the pictures are so cool. And I thought, oh, this is good. This, this, this. But my character, and I've, I've, re I've refined my. Saving Charlie Parker is a time travel novel, and but I've refined my explanation of time travel, and I think it makes a little more sense. But, In what um, way? Let me ask you something. If you had the power, and that's not a, you know, um, that's sort of a thought experiment, but supposedly you could get up tomorrow and instead of it being tomorrow, it was today. What would you do? Kind of a groundhog thing, but suppose you could control it. In other words, you could say tomorrow I didn't like what happened today. So you could so relive. Now, you could. Re I'm going to repeat it. Oh, I would have gotten up at six a.m. When did you get up? Nine thirty. I slept in. Yeah, I got up at five thirty. 
I've been yeah. up a long time. I can't sleep anymore. Well, it's I think the, it's thinking the about murders. the book and everything. It's you know? the murders when you have crime when you've committed crimes the way you have. <laughs> it's hard to sleep. I think it you would be a big burden who, having that gift to be able to repeat a day and 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 I'm I'm gonna just I'm I'm kind of giving away the next I'm I'm into chapter four and my character is gonna try it. The first thing he did was he just uh he did an experiment to see if he could go back five minutes because he senses he can do this. And there's a way that he does it. That's in the, that's in the story. And, uh, oh, by the way, he, he's a clinical psychologist who spends his whole life basically trying to find anybody who has the same affliction or gift, how you want to think about it. And he comes up to a guy, his name is Thomas Gaylord. You like that? Who's mm-hmm. in like a, he's in a, he's in a, a home for the criminally insane hmm. because he is, has a, but he he sets him straight and he explains what's going on with the gift, you know. Thomas Scaler. That's a pretty good name, huh? Yeah. Yeah. If you I could, could put your name in it, you want you want to be in my book? You should sell that. Sell what? People with the naming rights to characters. Oh. <laughs> I've already put some people, I put some former students who I really liked into the last book. Um just an incidental characters, you know, but then you have to put the disclaimer has no, I, sh- I may have opened myself up to a lawsuit right there. But um, if you could go back in time in the 20th century, where would you go? Oh, I'd go to the 1940s when jazz, when bebop was starting. I would go to 52nd Street. That's what got me interested. What? So he'll go back and he'll try to. His father's been murdered on 52nd Street. Matter of fact, he's been murdered in front of Birdland. I'm going to call it murder at Birdland. I better get a, I better um, <laughs> buy that website tonight <laughs> before would... somebody else gets it. Uh, now people in the chat are going to go purchase that website. Please don't. <laughs> murder at Birdland or something like that. But he's going to die at Birdland. And that was on Broadway. You know that area, the, you know where the Paley Center for the Arts is in 21? Well, I'm always at 21. 21 have closed. You, have you ever been to, no, it's open still, isn't it? I think it just closed. Just now? Well, they took the jockeys down, that's for sure. Yeah, I think 21 closed. You know what's amazing is that they started in 1920 or something like that. Isn't it in the Great Gatsby? Isn't the 21 Club, in, isn't that where? Well, maybe so. Let me just see if it closed. I've never been there. It's pretty expensive. It was expensive way back in the in the twenties. It was expensive. It was started as a speakeasy. You know, you went down the steps and through a hall, then up the steps, and then there was a door, and you had to give the password. It's closed. Ah, dang it. Well, I can I can still I, I'm I'm setting this in the the present time is two thousand. It's I got to write. It's pre-pandemic. The pandemic part of the Saving Charlie Parker became problematic because I had to remember, oh, yeah, you can't really do this because there's a pandemic going on. But um, right. 
Yeah. Anyway, so that's what I've been getting excited about. And so I wake up early in the morning. Today I woke up and I recorded your song. You came in heavy today. Yeah, it's a, it's a song about, uh, it's the ballad of Sheila Carter. If people are watching, this is, uh, the, that's Sheila Carter right there. She's the villain on Bold and Beautiful. Well, are you going to give us an update on? You know what? It's in the song. Oh. But I can give you some, I'll give you the outline. Okay. This goes back to New Year's Eve when Sheila Carter spiked the drink for Brooke that made her kiss Deacon, his, her, her ex-husband, and wake up in bed with him, and that freaked her out. They didn't know exactly what happened. Ridge was gone, the husband, but when he found out, it caused a huge problem, and he kind of went over to his first wife, Taylor. But anyway, meanwhile, this whole thing kind of unwound, and uh, Steffi knew what was going on. Steffi was Finn's wife, and so Steffi confronted uh, Sheila in the alley behind the club, and Sheila was going to shoot Steffi, but Finn shows up, the husband, and jumps in front of the bullet, and then she shoots Finn. But then Steffi's going to call the police, so she shoots Steffi. But everybody's got a coma, and, and supposedly Finn didn't make it. But finally they do, it does come out, and they have to track down Sheila. Meanwhile, you think, you think that Finn is dead, but it turns out that his adopted mother, Lee, right there, has snuck him out of the hospital and keeping him alive in her, her hotel. Now, Sheila gets out of jail. They did put her in jail. She gets out of jail and she confronts Lee and, and then they have a fight and she pushes Lee into the ocean and the car is on fire. Now, you think that's over, but Lee eventually shows up as a homeless woman with amnesia, of course, because it's, it's the bold and beautiful. And she has, um, she finally figures it out that, oh, yeah, she's got a son and he's in the part. They, they go there and Sheila gets away yet again. But Finn is re reunited with Steffi, who's in Monaco. So it was a chance for the bold and beautiful to film in the beautiful. I'd love to go to Monaco. It looks Monaco. It looks amazing. And anyway, and there's a lot of kissing and hugging there. And this this show is uh, almost softcore pornography. There's a lot of jumping in and out of bed with half-closed people. But anyway, so you think Sheila is on the loose, and then it shows up that uh, the police find her clothes bloody, mm. her hair bloody, mm. and a toe. And they think that she's been eaten by a bear. <laughs> and then I'm not going to, I'm going to, that I'm going to take you up that far. And then the song, the last verse of the song shows what happened last week. Uh, I may get addicted to this. <laughs> All right. This is this is the ballad of Sheila Carter. By the way, I recorded this early in the morning. I sound like the Grinch, the guy on the Grinch. The ballad You're of Sheila one. Carter. Mr. Grinch. I can't do it. It's too this late. This is uh, Mike's uh, bold and beautiful update in song. <laughs> This is a song about evil Sheila Carter 
She's unbold and beautiful, and she's a real trouble starter. She shot both Finn and Steffi and left them for dead. Took their rings and money, and then she fled. The police tracked her down and put her in the slammer. Seemed like any minute justice would lower the hammer. But Sheila got out somehow. She's really very tricky. The plot didn't make much sense, but let's not be picky, 'cause it's bold and beautiful, not bold and logical. Finn could not be saved, or so they said. If you watched the show each day, you figured he was dead. Lee, his adopted mother, would not give up so soon. She snuck him out and took him home and kept him in a room. But he was very alive. He was hooked to a machine. He was breathing kind of bad. He was looking kind of green. Sheila showed up, and there was an awful lot of commotion. It ended with his car being plunged into the ocean. That car was on fire. For more than three weeks, we thought that Lee was dead. Then came two, and Sheila messed with his head. He wanted to see his wife. He seemed quite agitated. Sheila knew he couldn't go. She kept him all sedated. Lee was found like a homeless woman. She acted like a freak. She couldn't remember anything. She couldn't even speak. But it all came back quite soon, and the police came swooping down. But Sheila got away, and she beat it out of town. That Sheila got it is a bad mother. Shut your mouth. Now everyone was worried with Sheila running loose. They wanted to track her down and put her head into a noose. They found her bloody clothes and some bloody hair. They thought there was a possibility she'd been eaten by a bear. They needed to be sure they couldn't let it go. They finally wrote her off as dead when they found her bloody toe. They checked the DNA. The match was quite exact. Sheila Carter now was dead. That was settled fact. And good riddance. Bye bye, Sheila Carter. But Deacon was getting drunk when he saw the mystery lady. He didn't know who she was, but she acted kind of shady. He took her to his room, and they had some crazy sex. She ripped his shirt apart so we could see his pecs. The lady was a redhead, someone we didn't know. But Deacon sobered up, and then he saw the missing toe. The mask and wig came quickly off. Deacon had a panic attack. Sheila laughed her evil laugh and whispered, "Mama's back." Oh no, Mama's back. Sheila Carter, she's back, missing a toe. Oh no, Sheila Carter.
She is bad, but she's missing a toe. Oh no. She is kind. She's bad. Mama's bad. had an idea. What's that? This is probably how Bob Dylan writes music. Watching soap operas. This could be a Dylan song. <laughs> that's mysterious and it's a story with hidden meanings. But it's just something he watched on Bold and Beautiful. This this is a Dylan oh, song. Oh, you know his his uh, a lot of his things are are directly from movies. Scenes out of movies, you know, but he, he, he won't, it won't be one movie. It'll be like a scene from here and scene there, you know? Yeah. He's, he, um, you know what I, I've interest, I've, I learned a lot from Bob Dylan. I've listened to everything. And, um, one of the things I've found is that I can do these songs if I, if I find the rhyme and make the content fit rather than the other way around. So when I start to go with the content, I want to say this and I want to say that, and it never works. So I have to find the, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a, I like the rhyme, the rhyming thing. I know it's old fashioned, but <clears throat> I, saw I think an people with, enjoy it. I saw an interview with Stephen Sondheim over the weekend saying, of course I use a rhyming dictionary. Why well, yeah. Would, why yeah. wouldn't I? What I do, here's what I do sometimes. If I have a difficult rhyme, I can't rhyme this word, then I use rhyme zone and I click on the, the, um, uh, oh, the, this, oh, oh shoot. What is it? The, it sounds the same. The word that sounds the same. Homophones. Um, homophones? A, syn a synonym. I click on the synonym and I find a synonym. Oh, maybe that'll rhyme with something, you know? Right. So something that means the same. I go back and forth between rhyme zone and the synonym, synonym thing. Um, you know, many, many times. Hmm. You know what's hard to write? I was going to write a song called I Know a Man Named Feldman. He has a show. <laughs> I actually have the track ready to go. It's the same same stuff, you know. I was going to do uh, this. I know a man named Feldman. He has a show. It's way too long. He has this guy from Texas on. About a half an hour before he said he would <laughs> But that's okay Because his name is Feldman Anyway, nothing rhymes with Feldman, David You know, you're you right You got a lot of nerve to have that kind of name Bellman, Bellman Bellman, What's Bellman, that? yeah, I could say Bellman What's that smell, man? That's man <laughs> oh, that's right. oh, God That's uh, good <laughs> Garbage can Oh, that's really good. Flim flan, <clears throat> no, uh, garbage can. Uh, oh man, this is good. Garbage can. What's that smell, man? Oh, that is beautiful. Not a single fan. <laughs> You're hot. Uh, What's that smell? By the way, did you watch uh, Saul all the way to the end? The, the Odenkirk thing, Better Call Saul. Oh, I, you know what? I don't have time. You got to watch it. You need to watch it. It's good. Yeah. Um, what's that smell, man? Are, are, you, are you jealous of his, of his uh, fame? 
No, I'm happy for him. I really am. He's you know he's one of those guys, like you know Chappelle was one of those people before he made it. Everybody said, "How come Dave Chappelle has never?" And then he made he made it. Usually yeah. when they say, "How come he's never made it?" They never make it. And, and Odenkirk was one of those guys. So yeah, it's really good. They took a the last half of the last season took a strange turn, and I and uh, don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I was I was doubtful whether they could pull it off. But but it but anyway, you know what the last um, the last episode, you know what they called it? Saul gone. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> well, you know, Saul Goodman was, hey, man, Saul Goodman. That's where he got the name. You know, right. like, he said, what do you mean, Saul Goodman? Oh, it's like you, like, the, like they say, you know, so, Saul Goodman. Okay, so you watch The Bold and the Beautiful. Yes. Give me some shows to watch. I, I just don't. You know what? I have these guests on, and I watch them, and I go, how the F do they know all this shite? And I don't know anything. And I wrap up. You, the- no, you're not. You shouldn't. No, you, you, you know everything. You're, you're old courant. Nah, I need to be reading more. Hey, and- speaking of reading, they changed it. It's not Sunday Review anymore. Yes, Sunday it's, it's Sunday Opinion. Why'd they yeah. do that? I, I don't know. I, I find myself, uh, just a more accurate name. It was yeah. always opinion, anyway, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. What 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 television do you watch? You watch Bold and the Beautiful, Better Call Saul. What else? Uh, I watch I watch a little MSNBC. I like Chris Hayes. Um, you know, I'll work. <clears throat> I'll get up in the morning and I'll work on uh, on the book or yeah. do some music or something. MSNBC. It's just cat and mouse with. It's Tom and Jerry. Will we catch Trump today? We really got him this time. It's the road. The frustrating thing is that that it's basically the recycling the same people for all the shows. There's a couple of I think Chris Hayes does interesting takes. You know, Um, Rachel only does one day a week now. Yeah. And uh, I used to like I used to like the show at 10, you know, the. The eleventh hour, with Brian Williams. Yeah, but uh, not. I I just thought he was pretty smooth. I knew he was a liar and everything, but he was pretty smooth in terms of uh, he was the his, snark in terms of anchor people. Just in terms of doing the anchor job, I think he was one of the best. I agree. I agree. Yeah, just I he, agree. He was. He was like a. If you could program, if you could manufacture a perfect anchor person, I think he would be it. And I and, saw him and on interviews, writer. and he was he was very very funny off the cuff. Yeah, and and a brilliant writer in terms of writing news, it, it had a bounce. A, there was pep and zest. Yeah, he it. didn't he didn't he didn't go to college, right? He had no college background. No, I talked about that on the show today. And I, I know I came across as a snob, but I wasn't trying to come across as a snob. Well, I was. I heard part of that, and um, I was um, disturbed to know that I was part of the college cartel. Yeah. And all I could think, what disturbed me is if I was part of the college cartel. Yeah. I should have had a bigger check. <laughs> 
all along, don't you think? You were working for El Chipo instead of El, El Chapo. El Chipo instead of El Chapo. <laughs> El Chipo. That's good. That's a good song. Oh, that's a, oh, it's a song to, I'm part of the college cartel. Uh, I'm going to write this down, El college Chipo. cartel. The, oh, I know people are going to, all I was saying, God, I'm so hot and tired, uh, that people should, if they can somehow get a college education, it's become too expensive. It teaches you, and I'm being serious, how to waste time, how to just lounge around with your friends and read. And unfortunately, you have to work your way through college now so you don't have that luxury. Well, mo some people, most, a lot, but a lot don't. A lot don't have to work, you know. Right. There, there was a time where you could... <clears throat> pretty much go to college and it didn't, you didn't have to work your way through. It teaches you that. I have canceled checks for tuition that were $200 Amazing. in 1969. Right. $200 for a state education. You know, I don't know what the dorm was. I can't remember how that worked, but I remember writing a check and it was $200. It's disgraceful Amazing. what they're doing now. Yeah. But I was bringing up people like Charlie Kirk and Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, I heard that. And Joe that was good. That was, that was good, good they, information. They're taught by one person. They have great minds, and then somebody sits them down. Uh, like Ned Beatty in, in Network, looming great, over. Great scene. Uh, Howard Beale. This is the way it's going to be. This is what you you're going to have say. meddled with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he is so good. Yeah, and they're told what to say because they lack critical thinking, and they it it and they're dangerous. They are really dangerous. Yeah, I saw something on uh, kind of a meme where I can't remember a friend of mine put it up. Um, if you're if you have trouble with books, books make you think. So you really do, you don't really have trouble with books. You have trouble with thinking, right? You know, right? And um, yeah, it's <clears throat> the fact uh, the, his, who he is bankrolled by is pretty amazing. You know. Well, yeah, we, we have to wrap it up. Yeah, we do. Everybody, go to Saving Charlie Parker. Dot com, SavingCharlieParker.com. Buy this book. If it doesn't thrill you, let me know, and I will reimburse you. Great job as always, sir. I'm glad you liked it. Great. All right, David. I'll see you next week, I hope. I hope so. Stay dry. I will try to do that. Okay. I love you. I, I love said you it too. first. Thank oh, <laughs> no problem. I, I was that's Ron, no uh, Rich that's Rich Brown's joke. Rich Brown, great comedian. Rich Brown. You always like, give credit to the joke. That's that's a, a comedy writer. Oh you? my god, I would hate to uh You wouldn't use, want to steal it? No. I would want to steal it. I just feel horrible if I did. So That's good. Yeah. That's a good sign. Yeah. All right, All man. Right. See you later. Thank you so much. Rodrigo. Money to National Rodrigo? Hi, David. Sorry, I was trying to listen to the show at 1.75x and it was enjoyable at that speed. 
Oh, you're listening to the show Sped Up. Yes. Ah. Sure do. Really? It's a little slow today. That's the wrong voice. What's on your mind today, Rodrigo? Um, I'm finding it a little hard to separate what I wanted to say from the argument you had with Jason earlier, but I'm going to try. Uh, there's a new anime called Extreme Hearts that is about a girl who wants to become a famous singer and ends up joining a league called Extreme Por Sports. Sorry. Let me tell you about this before I tell you what's wrong with it. Uh, in the beginning, this 12, maybe 13-year-old girl has moved to the big city by herself to try to become an idol. I catch all term in Japan for someone who does acting, singing, dancing, and is basically a slave to their label. This girl has been dropped by her label because she couldn't take off in popularity, and her manager has recommended that she join extreme sports as a last chance. In this league, you use special gear to perform superhuman feats, and you have to play different sports in each game as you advance. This means you have to play competitive baseball, handball, basketball, soccer, and learn each sport. Uh, the reward for winning your local league to represent your region is to be able to sing for 10 minutes in front of the audience that came to see your last game. Now, there's a lot of hand-waving to dismiss all the dangers of shooting a soccer ball through a 12-year-old girl, but the point I want to make here is that you ask anyone in Japan about this new series, and they will tell you that she probably won't become a professional, but the work ethic will serve her well once she gives up on her dream and becomes a salaryman. Salaryman, incidentally, is how most people in Japan has me, can be described, but that's for another time. Uh, what you will not find upside of a few lost lefties is a single person who thinks there's something wrong with moving on your own, becoming responsible for your own grades, cooking and cleaning, spending all the hours you're not at school trying to find idol-type jobs. And this is what I mean when I say that conservatives have taken from us the ability to think about certain things. When people in the United States hear about Medicare for All, they literally cannot think that it could happen. They can't understand what it consists of, and they can even understand that it's between $2 trillion and $5 trillion cheaper than the current system at some level, but they don't understand that the government owes it them to be treated like it treats millionaires. They understand that they have a right to complain about gas prices being high, but they don't understand that the rise in gas prices is completely disconnected from the billions big oil gets in subsidies. I could go on, but I hope I made the point that we have a failure of imagination in terms of the things we believe are possible in the real world, and we have to fight that before people are ready to follow Bernie beyond the first time someone gets in his way. People just don't understand what the long haul involves. And regarding the disagreement you had with Jason Early, I'll only say that it's curious how children are allowed to see people dying in their shows, sometimes in very graphic ways, but God forbid they watch straight people having sex, or worse, two women kissing chastely for a whole second. Thank you. Thank you. Do you watch mixed martial arts? Uh, not often. 
uh, I've seen some things. Uh, I would agree with Jason that it's not only for poor people. In fact, poor people generally can't afford the kind of training that goes into MMA, unlike they can boxing, for example. Do you think it's uh, moves the needle forward, MMA? Think it's good for for a culture to to watch that and celebrate that. I think it should be a low priority to try to get rid of MMA compared to other things. But in terms of a value judgment, like you know, you think it's something that. Uh, should be celebrated? Or is it like a bowel movement? Better left behind doors? I think it's less problematic than many shows where soldiers kill people and the good guys never get, never die and sometimes they get hurt, but it, Inevitably, they always get better, and I think those kinds of shows are more problematic than MMA. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you, Rodrigo. Thank you to all my guests. I want to thank Jason Miles. I love you, Jason. Come back. Pascal Robert, the two of them host This is Revolution podcast. Ethan Hershenfeld, Today is Now is the book. Go buy it right now. Grace Jackson, Dr. Harrod Fraud, Professor Adnan Hussein. Go listen to the Mudgeless podcast as well as Guerrilla History. I want to thank Dan Frankenberger. Great quiz tonight. I think I won. No, it was tied. It was tied, so I won. Thank you to Peter B. Collins. Go to peterbcollins.com. Professor Marianne Cummings. Follow her on Twitter at RazorGirl. And, of course, Professor Mike Steinel. Uh, no, I have to end the show. Uh, prof no. Uh, Professor Mike Steinel. Go by Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Go to SavingCharlieParker.com. Sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday night, and it includes an invitation for office hours. Join us every Friday night at 8 p.m. for office hours. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to it. Please share it with your friends. Please do that for us. And we have a YouTube channel. Thank you to the moderators. I need a list of our moderators. So uh, I don't thank them enough. We have uh, a skeleton. Uh, somebody isn't here to do our one sheet. So anyway, thank you to the moderators. And this was a great show. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong 
and protect the weak. Let's go out on Turtle once again. Everybody loves Turtle. Let me find Turtle. There you go. We'll see you on Thursday.